The Final Phase Coping with the Democratic Ascendancy The final phase of the drive for a central bank began in January 1911. At the previous January's meeting of the National Board of Trade, Paul Warburg had put through a resolution setting aside January 18, 1911, as a, quote, monetary day, devoted to a businessmen's monetary conference. This conference, run by the National Board of Trade and featuring delegates from metropolitan, mercantile organizations from all over the country, had C. Stuart Patterson as its chairman. The New York Chamber of Commerce, the Merchants Association of New York, and the New York Produce Exchange, each of which had been pushing for banking reform for the previous five years, introduced a joint resolution to the Monetary Conference supporting the Aldrich Plan and proposing the establishment of a new, quote, Businessmen's Monetary Reform League to lead the public struggle for a central bank. After a speech in favor of the plan by A. Piet Andrew, the entire conference adopted the resolution. In response, C. Stuart Patterson appointed none other than Paul M. Warburg to head a committee of seven to establish the Reform League. The Committee of Seven shrewdly decided, following the lead of the old Indianapolis Convention, to establish the National Citizens League for the creation of a sound banking system in Chicago rather than in New York, where the control really resided. The idea was to acquire the bogus patina of a, quote, grassroots, heartland operation, and to convince the public that the League was free of dreaded Wall Street control. As a result... The official heads of the league were Chicago businessmen John V. Farwell and Harry A. Wheeler, president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The director was University of Chicago monetary economist J. Lawrence Laughlin, assisted by his former student, Professor H. Parker Willis. In keeping with its Midwestern aura, most of the directors of the Citizens League were Chicago non-banker industrialists, men such as B.E. Sonny of the Chicago Telephone Company, Cyrus McCormick of International Harvester, both companies in the Morgan Ambit, John G. Shedd of Marshall Field & Company, Frederick A. Delano of the Wabash Railroad Company, Rockefeller Controlled, and Julius Rosenwald of Sears, Roebuck. Over a decade later, however, H. Parker Willis frankly conceded that the Citizens League had been a propaganda organ of the nation's bankers. The Citizens League swung into high gear during the spring and summer of 1911, issuing a periodical, Banking and Reform, designed to reach newspaper editors and subsidizing pamphlets by such pro-reform experts as John Perrin, head of the American National Bank of Indianapolis, and George E. Roberts of the National City Bank of New York. Consultant on the newspaper campaign was H. H. Colsot, former executive committee member of the Indianapolis Monetary Convention. Laughlin himself worked on a book on the Aldrich Plan to be similar to his own report of 1898 for the Indianapolis Convention. Meanwhile, a parallel campaign was launched to bring the nation's bankers into camp. The first step was to convert the banking elite. For that purpose, the Aldrich Inner Circle organized a closed-door conference of 23 top bankers in Atlantic City in early February, which included several members of the Currency Commission of the American Bankers Association, or ABA, along with bank presidents from nine leading cities of the country. After making a few minor revisions, the conference warmly endorsed the Aldrich Plan. 
After this meeting, Chicago banker James B. Forgan, president of the Rockefeller-dominated First National Bank of Chicago, emerged as the most effective banker spokesman for the central bank movement. Not only was his presentation of the Aldrich Plan before the Executive Council of the ABA in May considered particularly impressive, it was especially effective coming from someone who had been a leading critic, if on relatively minor grounds, of the plan. As a result, the top bankers managed to get the ABA to violate its own bylaws and make Forgan chairman of its executive council. At the Atlantic City Conference, James Forgan had succinctly explained the purpose of the Aldrich Plan and of the conference itself. As Kolko sums up, quote, The real purpose of the conference was to discuss winning the banking community over to government control directly by the bankers for their own ends. It was generally appreciated that the Aldrich Plan would increase the power of the big national banks to compete with the rapidly growing state banks help bring the state banks under control, and strengthen the position of the national banks in foreign banking activities. End quote. By November 1911, it was easy pickings to have the full American Bankers Association endorse the Aldrich Plan. The nation's banking community was now solidly lined up behind the drive for a central bank. However, 1912 and 1913 were years of some confusion and backing and filling as the Republican Party split between its insurgents and regulars, and the Democrats won increasing control over the federal government, culminating in Woodrow Wilson's gaining the presidency in the November 1912 elections. The Aldrich Plan, introduced into the Senate by Theodore Burton in January 1912, died a quick death, but the reformers saw that what they had to do was to drop the fiercely Republican partisan name of Aldrich from the bill and with a few minor adjustments, rebaptize it as a democratic measure. Fortunately for the reformers, this process of transformation was eased greatly in early 1912, when H. Parker Willis was appointed administrative assistant to Carter Glass, the Democrat from Virginia who now headed the House Banking and Currency Committee. In an accident of history, Willis had taught economics to the two sons of Carter Glass at Washington and Lee University and they recommended him to their father when the Democrats assumed control of the House. The minutiae of the splits and maneuvers in the banking reform camp during 1912 and 1913, which have long fascinated historians, are fundamentally trivial to the basic story. They largely revolved around the successful efforts by Laughlin, Willis, and the Democrats to jettison the name Aldrich. Moreover, while the bankers had preferred the Federal Reserve Board to be appointed by the bankers themselves, it was clear to most of the reformers that this was politically unpalatable. They realized that the same result of a government-coordinated cartel could be achieved by having the President and Congress appoint the board, balanced by the bankers electing most of the officials of the regional Federal Reserve Banks, and electing an advisory council to the Fed. However, much would depend on whom the president would appoint to the board. The reformers did not have to wait long. Control was promptly handed to Morgan men, led by Benjamin Strong of Bankers Trust as all-powerful head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The reformers had gotten the point by the end of the congressional wrangling over the glass bill, and by the time the Federal Reserve Act was passed in December 1913, the bill enjoyed overwhelming support from the banking community. 
as A. Barton Hepburn of the Chase National Bank persuasively told the American Bankers Association at its annual meeting of August 1913, quote, The measure recognizes and adopts the principles of a central bank. Indeed, it will make all incorporated banks together joint owners of a central dominating power. End quote. In fact, there was very little substantive difference between the Aldrich and Glass bills. The goal of the bank reformers had been triumphantly achieved. Conclusion The financial elites of this country, notably the Morgan, Rockefeller, and Kuhn-Leb interests, were responsible for putting through the Federal Reserve System as a governmentally created and sanctioned cartel device to enable the nation's banks to inflate the money supply in a coordinated fashion without suffering quick retribution from depositors or note holders demanding cash. Recent researchers, however, have also highlighted the vital supporting role of the growing number of technocratic experts and academics who were happy to lend the patina of their allegedly scientific expertise to the elite's drive for a central bank. To achieve a regime of big government and government control, power elites cannot achieve their goal of privilege through statism without the vital legitimizing support of the supposedly disinterested experts and the professoriate. To achieve the Leviathan state, interests seeking special privilege and intellectuals offering scholarship and ideology must work hand in hand. Part 3. From Hoover to Roosevelt. The Federal Reserve and the financial elites. This chapter is grounded on the insight that American politics, from the turn of the 20th century until World War II, can far better be comprehended by studying the interrelationship of major financial groupings than by studying the superficial and often sham struggles between Democrats and Republicans. In particular, American politics in this period was marked by a fierce struggle between two major financial-industrial groupings. The interests clustered around the House of Morgan on the one hand, and an alliance of Rockefeller, Oil, Harriman, Railroad, and Kuhn-Leb, investment banking, interests on the other. The Morgans began in investment banking, and moved out into railroads, commercial banking, and then manufacturing. The rockefeller harriman kuhn leb alliance began in their three respective original spheres and moved into commercial banking. In most instances, the two mighty combines clashed, for example, in whether or not Theodore Roosevelt, always closely allied to the Morgans, should use the antitrust weapon to smash Standard Oil, or whether, in his turn, President Taft, allied with the Ohio-based Rockefellers, should try to break up Morgan trusts such as International Harvester or United States Steel. In other areas, the interests of the two mammoths coincided, and they were allies. Thus, both groups were heavily represented in the drive for measures cartelizing industry that were sought and lobbied for by the National Civic Federation during the Progressive Era, and both groups joined to push through the Federal Reserve System. The Early Fed 1914 to 1928, the Morgan years. In their joining together to draft and then to lobby for the new Federal Reserve System, the House of Morgan was clearly very much the senior partner in the enterprise. The secret meeting of a handful of top bankers at the Jekyll Island Club in November 1910 
that framed the prototype for the Federal Reserve Act was held at a resort facility provided by J.P. Morgan himself. The Federal Reserve, in its first two decades, contained two loci of power. The main one was the head, then called the governor, of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Of lesser importance was the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. The governor of the New York Fed, from the beginning until his death in 1928, was Benjamin Strong, who had spent his entire working life in the Morgan Ambit. He was a vice president of the Bankers Trust Company, established by the Morgans to engage in the new and lucrative trust business, and his best friends in the world were his mentor and neighbor, the powerful Morgan partner Henry P. Davison, as well as two other Morgan partners, Dwight Morrow and Thomas W. Lamont. So highly trusted was Strong in the Morgan circle that he was brought in to be the personal auditor of J. Pierpont Morgan Sr. during the Panic of 1907. When he was offered the post of governor of the New York Fed in the new Federal Reserve System, the reluctant Strong was convinced by Davison that he could operate the Fed as a, quote, real central bank run from New York, end quote. The Morgans were not nearly as dominant in the then lesser institution of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. On the original board, there were seven members, of whom two, the Secretary of the Treasury and the Comptroller of the Currency, were ex officio. The Morgan bloc on the original board was led by Secretary of the Treasury William Gibbs McAdoo, son-in-law of President Wilson, whose Hudson and Manhattan Railroad Company in New York had been bailed out personally by J.P. Morgan, who then proceeded to staff the officers and board of Hudson and Manhattan with his closest business associates. From that point on, McAdoo was surrounded by a Morgan ambiance. Comptroller of the currency was John Skelton Williams, a protege of McAdoo's who had also been a director of the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad. Another board member was McAdoo protege Charles S. Hamlin, who came to the board from the post of Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. In addition to being a wealthy Boston lawyer, from a Boston financial group long affiliated with the Morgan interests, Hamlin had married into the wealthy Pruin family of Albany, which had been associated with the Morgan-dominated New York Central Railroad. If these three were solid Morgan men, the other four reserve board members were not nearly as reliable. Paul M. Warburg was partner and brother-in-law of Jacob Schiff of the investment banking house of Kuhn Leb. Frederick A. Delano, uncle of Franklin D. Roosevelt, was president of the Rockefeller-controlled Wabash Railway. William P.G. Harding was an Alabama banker whose father-in-law's iron manufacturing company had prominent Morgan as well as rival Rockefeller men on its board. And Adolph C. Miller was an academic economist at Berkeley who had married into the wealthy Morgan-connected Sprague family of Chicago. Thus, of the seven members of the original board, three were Morgan men, but of whom two were ex officio. One was Kuhn Leb, one Rockefeller, one an independent banker with both Morgan and Rockefeller connections, and one was an economist with vague family ties to the Morgans. Hardly complete Morgan control of the board. But the Morgans not only had by far the most powerful Federal Reserve banker, Benjamin Strong, in their corner, they also had the Republican administrations of the 1920s. Although there were various groups around President Warren G. Harding, as an Ohio Republican, he was closest to the Rockefellers, and his Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, was a mentor of John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s New York Bible class, a leading Standard Oil attorney, and a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. 
Harding's sudden death in August 1923, however, unexpectedly elevated Vice President Calvin Coolidge to the presidency. Coolidge had been misleadingly described as a colorless, small-town Massachusetts attorney. Actually, the new president was a member of a prominent Boston financial family, who were board members of leading Boston banks. One, T. Jefferson Coolidge, became prominent in the Morgan-affiliated United Fruit Company of Boston. Throughout his political career, moreover, Calvin Coolidge had two important mentors, both neglected by historians. One was Massachusetts Republican Party Chairman W. Murray Crane, who served as a director of three powerful Morgan-dominated institutions, the New Haven and Hartford Railroad, the Guarantee Trust Company of New York, and AT&T, on which he was also a member of the board's executive committee. The other was Amherst classmate and prominent Morgan partner Dwight Morrow. Morrow began to agitate for Coolidge for president as early as 1919 and continued his pressure at the Chicago Republican Convention of 1920. Dwight Morrow and fellow Morgan partner Thomas Cochran lobbied strenuously for Coolidge at Chicago. Cochran, who was not an Amherst graduate, did not have the Amherst excuse for working for Coolidge, and so he kept in the background. Cochran and Morrow were happy, as prominent Morgan men, to confine their work to the background and to push forward as their frontman for Coolidge, the large, doughty Boston merchant Frank Stearns, who did have the virtue of being an Amherst graduate. Secretary of the Treasury throughout all three Republican administrations of the 1920s was the powerful, multi-millionaire tycoon Andrew Mellon, head of the Mellon Interests, whose empire spread from the Mellon National Bank of Pittsburgh to encompass Gulf Oil, Copper's Company, and Aluminum Corporation of America. Mellon was generally allied to the Morgan interests. Furthermore, when Charles Evans Hughes returned to private law practice in the spring of 1925, Coolidge offered his crucial State Department post to longtime Wall Street attorney and former Secretary of State and of War, Elihu Root who might be called the veteran head of the, quote, Morgan Bar. At one critical time in Morgan's affairs, Root had served as Morgan's personal attorney. After Root refused the State Department post, Coolidge was forced to settle for a lesser Morgan Light, Minnesota attorney Frank B. Kellogg. Undersecretary to Kellogg was Joseph C. Grew, who had family connections with the Morgans. J.P. Morgan Jr. had married a Grew, while, in 1927, two highly placed Morgan men were asked to take over relations with troubled Mexico and Nicaragua. The year 1924 indeed saw the House of Morgan at the pinnacle of political power in the United States. President Calvin Coolidge, friend and protege of Morgan partner Dwight Morrow, was deeply admired by J.P. quote, Jack Morgan Jr. Jack Morgan saw the president, perhaps uniquely, as a rare blend of deep thinker and moralist. Morgan wrote a friend, quote, I have never seen any president who gives me just the feeling of confidence in the country and its institutions, and the working out of our problems that Mr. Coolidge does, end quote. On the other hand, the House of Morgan faced the happy dilemma in the 1924 presidential election that the Democratic candidate was none other than John W. Davis, senior partner of the Wall Street firm of Davis, Polk, and Wardwell and chief attorney for J.P. Morgan and Company. Davis, a protege of the legendary Morgan partner Henry Davison, was also a personal friend and a backgammon and cribbage partner of Jack Morgan's. 
It was an embarrassment of riches. Whoever won the 1924 election, the Morgans could not lose, although they decided to opt for Coolidge. However, 1928 saw inevitable changes in Morgan domination of monetary policy. Benjamin Strong, sickly all year, died in October and was replaced by George L. Harrison, his handpicked successor. While Harrison was a devoted, quote, Morgan loyalist, he did not quite carry the clout of Benjamin Strong. The Coolidge administration, too, was coming to an end. The Morgans, again facing an embarrassment of riches, were torn three ways. Their prime goal was to induce their beloved president to break precedent and run for a third term. Not being able to persuade Coolidge, the Morgans next turned to Vice President Charles G. Dawes, who had been connected with various Morgan railroads in Chicago. When Dawes dropped out of the race, the Morgans turned at last to Herbert Clark Hoover, who had been a powerful Secretary of Commerce during the two Republican administrations of the 1920s. While Hoover had not been as intimately connected with the Morgans as had Calvin Coolidge, he had long been close to the Morgan interests. Particularly influential over Hoover during his administration were two unofficial but powerful advisors, both Morgan partners, Thomas W. Lamont and Dwight Morrow, whom Hoover consulted regularly three times a week. Herbert Hoover's cabinet was also loaded with Morgan people. As Secretary of State, Hoover chose the longtime Morgan lawyer and disciple and partner of Elihu Root, Henry L. Stimson. Andrew Mellon continued as Treasury Secretary, and his undersecretary, who was to replace Mellon in 1931 and was close to Hoover, was Ogden L. Mills, a former congressman and New York corporate lawyer whose father, Ogden L. Mills Sr., had been a leader of such Morgan railroads as New York Central. Hoover's Secretary of the Navy was Charles Francis Adams III, from the famous Boston Brahmin family, long associated with the Morgans. This particular Adams' daughter had been fortunate enough to marry Jack Morgan. Benjamin Strong's monetary policy throughout his reign was essentially a Morgan policy. The Morgans, through their subsidiary, Morgan Grenfell, in London, had long been intimately associated with the British government and with the Bank of England. Before World War I, the House of Morgan had been named a fiscal agent of the British Treasury and of the Bank of England. After the war began, the Morgans became the sole purchaser of all goods and supplies for the British and French war effort in the United States, as well as the monopoly underwriter in the United States of all British and French bonds. The Morgans played a substantial role in bringing the United States into the war on Britain's side, and, as head of the Fed, Benjamin Strong obligingly doubled the money supply to finance America's role in the war effort. After the end of the war, Strong's monetary policy was deliberately guided by the prime objective of helping Great Britain establish and impose upon Europe a new and disastrous gold exchange standard. The idea was to restore, quote, England, which really meant the Morgans, English associates and allies, to her old position of financial dominance by helping her establish a phony gold standard. Ostensibly, this was a return to the pre-war, quote, classical gold standard. But the return, in the spring of 1925, was at the pre-war par, a rate that hopelessly overvalued the pound sterling, which Britain had inflated and depreciated during the fiat money era after 1914. Britain insisted on returning to gold at an overvalued par, a policy guaranteed to hobble British exports 
and yet was determined to indulge in continued cheap money and inflation instead of contracting its money supply to make the pre-war poor viable. To help Britain get away with this peculiar and contradictory policy, the United States helped to pretend that the post-1925 standard in Europe, this gold bullion pound standard, was really a genuine gold coin standard. The United States inflated its money and credit in order to prevent inflationary Britain from losing gold to the United States, a loss which would endanger the new, jerry-built, quote, gold standard structure. The result, however, was eventual collapse of money and credit in the U.S. and abroad, and a worldwide depression. Benjamin Strong was the Morgan's architect of a disastrous policy of inflationary boom that led, inevitably, to bust. The Hoover Fed, Harrison, and Young While Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover had been a severe critic of Strong's inflationary policies. Unfortunately, however, Hoover was in favor of a different form of easy money and cheap credit. When he became president, he tried, like King Canute, to hold back the tides by continuing to generate cheap bank credit, and then using, quote, moral suasion to exhort banks and other lenders not to lend money for the purchase of stock. Hoover suffered from the fallacious view that industrial credit was productive and, quote, legitimate, while financial, stock market credit was, quote, unproductive. Moreover, he believed that valuable capital funds somehow got lost or, quote, absorbed in the stock market and therefore became lost to productive credit. Hoover employed methods of intimidation of business that had been honed when he was food czar in World War I and then Secretary of Commerce, now trying to get banks to restrain stock market loans and to induce the New York Stock Exchange to curb speculation. Roy Young, Hoover's new appointee as governor of the Federal Reserve Board, suffered from the same fallacious view. Partly responsible for the Hoover administration's adopting this policy was the wily manipulator Montague Norman, head of the Bank of England and close friend of the late Benjamin Strong, who had persuaded Strong to inflate credit in order to help England's disastrous gold exchange policy. Norman, it might be added, was very close to the Morgan Grenfell Bank. By June 1929, it was clear that the absurd policy of moral suasion had failed. Seeing the handwriting on the wall, Norman switched and persuaded the Fed to resume its old policy of inflating reserves through subsidizing the acceptance market by purchasing all acceptances offered at a subsidized rate, a policy the Fed had abandoned in the spring of 1928. Despite this attempt to keep the boom going, however, the money supply in the United States leveled off by the end of 1928 and remained more or less constant from then on. This ending of the massive credit expansion boom made a recession inevitable, and sure enough, the American economy began to turn down in July 1929. Feverish attempts to keep the stock market boom going, however, managed to boost stock prices while the economic fundamentals were turning sour, leading to the famous stock market crash of October 24th. This crash was an event for which Herbert Hoover was ready. For a decade, Herbert Hoover had urged that the United States break its age-old policy of not intervening in cyclical recessions. During the post-war 1920-1921 recession, Hoover, as Secretary of Commerce, 
had unsuccessfully urged President Harding to intervene massively in the recession, to, quote, do something to cure the depression, in particular to expand credit and to engage in a massive public works program. Although the United States got out of the recession on its own, without massive intervention, Hoover vowed that next time it would be different. In late 1928, after he was elected president, Hoover presented a public works scheme, the, quote, Hoover Plan, for, quote, permanent prosperity, for a pact to, quote, outlaw depression to the Conference of Governors. Hoover had adopted the scheme of the well-known inflationists Foster and Ketchings for a mammoth $3 billion public works plan to, quote, stabilize business cycles. William T. Foster was the theoretician, and Waddle Catchings the financier of the duo. Foster was installed as head of the Pollock Foundation for Economic Research by Catchings, iron and steel magnate, and investment banker at the powerful Wall Street firm of Goldman Sachs. When the stock market crash came in October 1929, therefore, President Hoover was ready for massive intervention to attempt to raise wage rates, expand credit, and embark on public works. Hoover himself recalls that he was the very first president to consider himself responsible for economic prosperity. Quote, Therefore, we had to pioneer a new field. End quote. Hoover's admiring biographers correctly state that, quote, President Hoover was the first president in our history to offer federal leadership in mobilizing the economic resources of the people, end quote. Hoover recalls it was a, quote, program unparalleled in the history of depressions, end quote. The major opponent of this new status dogma was Secretary of the Treasury Mellon, who, though one of the leaders in pushing the boom, now at least saw the importance of liquidating the malinvestments, inflated costs, prices, and wage rates of the inflationary boom. Mellon, indeed, correctly cited the successful application of such laissez-faire policy in previous recessions and crises. But Hoover overrode Mellon with the support of Treasury Undersecretary Ogden Mills. If Hoover stood ready to impose an expansionist and interventionist New Deal, Morgan man George L. Harrison, head of the New York Fed and major power in the Federal Reserve, was all the more ready to inflate. During the week of the crash, the last week of October, the Fed doubled its holdings of government securities, adding $150 million to bank reserves, as well as discounting $200 million more from member banks. The idea was to prevent liquidation for the bloated stock market and to permit the New York City banks to take over the loans to stockbrokers that the non-bank lenders were liquidating. As a result, member banks of the Federal Reserve expanded their deposits by $1.8 billion, a phenomenal monetary expansion of nearly 10% in one week. Of this increase, $1.6 billion were increased deposits of the New York City banks. In addition, Harrison drove down interest rates, lowering its discount rates to banks from 6% to 4.5% in a few weeks. Harrison conducted these actions with a will, overriding the objections of Federal Reserve Board Governor Roy Young, proclaiming that, quote, the stock exchange should stay open at all costs, end quote, and announcing, quote, gentlemen, I am ready to provide all the reserve funds that may be needed, end quote. By mid-November, the great stock break was over, and the market, 
artificially buoyed and stimulated by expanding credit, began to move upward again. With the stock market emergency seemingly over, bank reserves were allowed to decline, by the end of November, by about $275 million, to just about the level before the crash. By the end of the year, total bank reserves at $2.35 billion were almost exactly the same as they had been the day before the crash, or at the end of November, with total bank deposits increasing slightly during this period. But while the aggregates of factors determining reserves were the same, their distribution was very different. Fed ownership of government securities had increased by $375 million during these two months, from the level of $136 million before the crash. But the expansion had been offset by lower bank loans from the Fed, by greater money in circulation, and by people drawing $100 million of gold out of the banking system. In short, the Fed tried its best to inflate a great deal more, but its expansionary policy was partially thwarted by increasing caution and by withdrawal of money from the banking system by the general public. Here we see, at the very beginning of the Hoover era, the spuriousness of the monetarist legend that the Federal Reserve was responsible for the great contraction of money from 1929 to 1933. On the contrary, the Fed and the administration tried their best to inflate, efforts foiled by the good sense and by the increasing distrust of the banking system, of the American people. At any rate, even though the Fed had not managed to inflate the money supply further, President Hoover was proud of his experiment in cheap money and of the Fed's massive open market purchases. In a speech to a conference of industrial leaders he had called together in Washington on December 5th, the president hailed the nation's good fortune in possessing the splendid Federal Reserve System, which had succeeded in saving shaky banks, restoring confidence, and making capital more abundant by lowering interest rates. Hoover had personally done his part by urging banks to discount more at the Fed, while Secretary Mellon reverted to his old Pollyanna mode in assuring one and all that there was, quote, plenty of credit available. Hoover admirer William Green, head of the American Federation of Labor, proclaimed that the, quote, Federal Reserve System is operating, serving as a barrier against financial demoralization. Within a few months, industrial conditions will become normal, Confidence and stabilization in industry and finance will be restored. End quote. By the end of 1929, Roy Young and other Fed officials favored pursuing a laissez-faire policy, quote, to let the money market sweat it out and reach monetary ease by the wholesome process of liquidation. End quote. Once again, however, Harrison and the New York Fed overruled Washington and instituted a massive easy money program. Discount rates of the New York Fed fell from 4.5% in February to 2% at the end of 1930. Other short-term interest rates fell similarly. Once again, the New York Fed led the inflationist parade by purchasing $218 million of government securities during the year. The resulting increase of $116 million in bank reserves, however, was offset by bank failures in the latter part of the year and by enforced contraction on the part of the shaky banks remaining in business. As a result, total money supply remained constant throughout 1930. Expansion was also cut short by the fact that the stock market boomlet early in the year had collapsed by the spring. During the year, however, 
Montague Norman was able to achieve part of his long-standing wish for formal collaboration between the world's major central banks. Norman pushed through a new central banker's bank, the Bank for International Settlements, or BIS, to meet regularly at Basel and to provide regular facilities for cooperation. While the suspicious Congress forbade the Fed from joining the BIS formally, the New York Fed and its allied Morgan interests were able to work closely with the new bank. The BIS, indeed, treated the New York Fed as if it were the central bank of the United States. Gates W. McGarrah resigned as chairman of the board of the New York Fed in February to assume the position of president of the BIS, while Jackson E. Reynolds, a director of the New York Fed particularly close to the Morgan interests, became chairman of the BIS's organizing committee. Unsurprisingly, J.P. Morgan and company supplied much of the capital for the new BIS. And even though there was no legislative sanction for U.S. participation in the bank, New York Fed Governor George Harrison made a, quote, regular business trip abroad in the fall to confer with the other central bankers, and the New York Fed extended loans to the BIS during 1931. Late 1930 was perhaps the last stand of the laissez-faire, sound-money liquidationists. Professor H. Parker Willis, a tireless critic of the Fed's inflationism and credit expansion, attacked the current easy-money policy of the Fed in an editorial in the New York Journal of Commerce. Willis pointed out that the Fed's easy-money policy was actually bringing about the rash of bank failures because of the bank's, quote, inability to liquidate their unsound loans and assets. Willis noted that the country was suffering from frozen, wasteful malinvestments in plants, buildings, and other capital, and maintained that the depression could only be cured when these unsound credit positions were allowed to liquidate. Similarly, Albert Wigan, head of the Chase National Bank, clearly reflecting the courageous and uncompromising views of the Chase Bank's chief economist, Dr. Benjamin M. Anderson, denounced the Hoover policy of propping up wage rates and prices in depressions and of pursuing inflationary cheap money, saying, quote, Our depression has been prolonged and not alleviated by delay in making necessary readjustments, end quote. On the other hand, Businessweek, then as now a spokesman for, quote, enlightened business opinion, thundered in late October 1930 that the, quote, deflationists were, quote, in the saddle. In August 1930, however, President Hoover took another decisive step in favor of inflationism by replacing Roy Young as chairman of the Federal Reserve Board by the veteran speculator and government official Eugene Meyer Jr. The Advent of Eugene Meyer Jr. Eugene Meyer Jr. differed from Strong and Harrison in not being totally in the Morgan camp. Meyer's father, an immigrant from France, had spent all his life in the employ of the French international banking house of Lazard Ferre, finally rising to the post of partner of Lazard's New York branch. Eugene Jr. early broke out from Lazard on his own and became a successful speculator, investor, and financier, an associate of the Morgans, and even more closely an associate of Bernard Baruch and Baruch's patrons, the powerful Guggenheim family, in virtual control of the American copper industry. It is true, however, that Meyer's brother-in-law, George Blumenthal, had left this post at Lazard to be a high official in J.P. Morgan & Company, 
and that Meyer himself had once acted as a liaison between the Morgans and the French government. By the 1920s, Meyer's major financial base was his control of the mighty integrated chemical firm Allied Chemical and Dye Corporation. Before World War I, Meyer's major financial involvement had been with the Guggenheims and the copper industry. By 1910, he was so prominent in the copper industry that he was able to arrange a cartel agreement between his old patrons, the Guggenheims and Anaconda Copper, each agreeing to cut its production by 7.5%. In the same year, Meyer discovered in London a highly productive and profitable new process for mining copper and was quickly able to become its franchisor in the United States. It should not be surprising, then, that, under the regime of World War I collectivism, Meyer began, first, in early 1917, as head of the non-ferrous metals unit of Bernard Baruch's Raw Materials Committee under the Advisory Commission of the Council of National Defense. The non-ferrous metals unit included copper, lead, zinc, antimony, aluminum, nickel, and silver. When the War Industries Board took over the task of collectivist planning of industry in August 1917, Meyer assumed the same task there, and was also to become the virtual, quote, czar of the copper industry. More important for his eventual role in the Hoover administration was Meyer's crucial part in the War Finance Corporation, or WFC. The WFC had been set up by Secretary of the Treasury McAdoo in May 1918, ostensibly to finance industries essential to the war effort. Meyer was named the WFC's managing director. The WFC massively subsidized American industry. During the war, it had two basic functions. One was acting as agent of the Treasury to prop up the market for U.S. government bonds. During the last six months of the war, Meyer spent $378 million to keep government bonds from falling by more than one quarter point a day, and later resold the bonds to the Treasury at the cost of purchase. The second and dominant function of the WFC was to subsidize and bail out firms and industries in trouble, allegedly, quote, essential to the war effort. The WFC began with an authorized capital of $500 million supplied by the Treasury, and with the power to borrow up to $3 billion through the issue of bonds. Its major focus was on utilities, railroads, and the banks that had financed them. Banks were also under strain because many of their savings deposits had been drawn down to help finance the federal deficit. All in all, during the war, the WFC made loans of $71 million in addition to its bond price operations. It was clear that the essential mission of the WFC acted as a camouflage for a government subsidy operation. As Meyer's approving biographer writes, quote, The WFC had been created as a rescue mission for essential war-disrupted industries, and Meyer had shaped it into a powerful instrument of public policy. End quote. If the WFC, and for that matter the rest of the apparatus of war collectivism, had been strictly war-related, they all would have been dropped swiftly as soon as the armistice was signed on November 11, 1918. But, on the contrary, Baruch, Meyer, the War Industries Board, and most business leaders were anxious to continue the benefits of collectivism indefinitely after the war was over. The goals were twofold. 
price controls to keep prices up during the expected post-war recession, and a permanent peacetime cartelization of American industry enforced by the federal government. Permanent cartelization was endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and by the National Association of Manufacturers. President Wilson, however, prompted by Secretary of War Newton D. Baker, insisted on scuttling the WIB by the end of 1918. Other aspects of wartime government interventionism continued on, however, not the least of which was the War Finance Corporation. The War Finance Corporation was a striking example of a wartime government agency that refused to die. After the war, the investment bankers were worried that Europeans, shorn of American aid, would no longer be able to keep up the bountiful wartime level of American exports. Hence, the Morgans urged their friends in the Treasury Department to use the WFC to provide credits to finance American exports, specifically to pay American exporters and then collect the money from foreign importers. While the Wilson administration did not want a permanent government loan program, it persuaded Congress to extend the WFC in March 1919 and to authorize it to lend up to $1 billion over five years to American exporters and to American banks that made export loans. Particularly ardent in pressuring Congress was WFC head Eugene Meyer, who had been gravely disappointed when the Wilson administration scuttled the War Industries Board. Meyer happily plunged into making and encouraging export loans and, while in Europe for the peace conference, he tried unsuccessfully to pressure British banks into issuing $600 million in loans to finance British imports and to keep the overvalued pound from falling to its market levels. To counter the dangerously inflationary post-war boom, President Wilson shifted David F. Houston from the post of Agriculture Secretary to Treasury Secretary, and Houston boldly set about shifting America to a more laissez-faire and deflationary course. Meyer worked feverishly to keep the inflationary boom going, the WFC approving loans totaling $150 million to finance the exports of cotton, tobacco, copper, coal, and steel. But Treasury Secretary Houston refused to give Meyer his required approval. Houston declared, in fact, that he was proposing ending the WFC in order to complete the government's withdrawal from all its wartime activities of government intervention in the economy. Houston pointed out that exports had already attained an unprecedented volume in 1919 and that it was important to bring down inflation. Meyer tried every device to persuade Houston, but he couldn't go over his head to the president because of Wilson's illness. Finally, Meyer threw in the towel and resigned his post in May 1920. Unfortunately, however, Eugene Meyer was soon back in the saddle. Recession always follows an inflationary boom. A recession hit in the fall of 1921, and the newly burgeoning farm block began its long-term drive to get the government to bring the farmer back to the unprecedented good times he had enjoyed from the artificial export boom created by World War I. During the presidential campaign of 1920, Secretary of Treasury Houston bravely resisted the farm bloc, maintaining that the federal government should do nothing to interfere with the inevitable post-war recession. Eugene Meyer, working for the Harding ticket, put himself at the head of the interventionist forces battling his old laissez-faire enemy. 
When Houston addressed the annual meeting of the American Bankers Association, or ABA, in Washington, he refused to speak if the ABA succumbed to pressure by a group of Memphis bankers and businessmen to have Meyer address the group at the same meeting. When Houston's ploy was successful, the Memphis group of inflationist and interventionist bankers organized a rump meeting nearby featuring the address by Meyer who led a fervent campaign for restoration of the WFC, this time stressing government financing of agricultural exports. The defeat of the Democrats in November was a referendum on World War I, its aftermath, and the inflation and rationing of wartime, rather than against Houston, but Meyer used the victory to step up attacks on Secretary Houston. Organizing a nationwide campaign of demagogy, Stressing especially the plight of the cotton farmer, Meyer personalized his assault on Houston's stalwart, laissez-faire views. Combining hyperbole with alliteration, Meyer roasted Houston before the Joint Agricultural Committee of Congress. Meyer thundered, quote, History records no precedent for the wholesale sacrifices imposed upon the civilized world by the secretaries, Houston's, present policies for the purpose of maintaining the petty platitudes of the outworn political economy which he professes, End quote. Congress duly passed the measure to revive the export lending of the WFC. When Wilson followed Houston's advice to veto the measure, asking Houston himself to write the veto message in December, Congress easily overrode the veto. During the interregnum, Meyer and his friends angled for top jobs for him with the new Harding administration. But with Treasury and Commerce closed off, Meyer turned down the post of Assistant Secretary of Commerce under Herbert Hoover, correctly expecting Congress to reenact the WFC. The new president duly appointed Meyer to be head of the revived WFC, refurbished as an Agricultural Export Aid Bureau. In fact, exports were largely forgotten as the WFC was transformed into a simple agricultural relief agency. Under Meyer's aegis, and supported by Harding, Congress passed the Agricultural Credits Act of 1921, which increased the maximum authorized credits by the War Finance Corporation to $1 billion and permitted it to lend directly to farmers, cooperatives, and foreign importers, as well as exporters. Meyer plunged in with a will, heavily financing farm co-ops, enabling them to buy and store crops, thereby raising farm prices, and presaging the more directly governmental farm price support policies of the Hoover and Roosevelt administrations. The WFC's first loan was to Aaron Sapiro's Staple Cotton Cooperative Association. Sapiro was a high-priced young attorney for several California farm co-ops who concocted grandiose plans for voluntary price-rising cartels in cotton, wheat, tobacco, and other crops, all of which turned out to be failures. By the summer of 1923, the WFC had loaned $172 million to farm co-ops and another $182 million to rural banks, which in turn loaned money to farmers. The WFC, working closely with farm block leaders, appointed a Corn Belt Advisory Committee of farm leaders to pressure Midwestern rural bankers into lending more heavily to farmers in that region. With banks providing a steady flow of short-term farm loans 
and a vast federal farm loan system established in July 1916, supplying plentiful mortgage loans, the farm block still felt a gap in unsubsidized intermediate-term credit. Meyer and the co-op interests duly introduced the bill into Congress, calling for a system of privately capitalized agricultural credit corporations, with the Federal Reserve empowered to extend credits and support these corporations. But the farm block, supported by Secretary of Commerce Hoover and Secretary of Agriculture Henry C. Wallace, went further, backing a competing bill establishing a large, governmentally capitalized system of federal intermediate credit banks, patterned after the Federal Reserve System and governed by the Federal Farm Loan Board, or FFLB, which had already been established to run the farm loan system. Congress passed both bills in one Agricultural Credits Act of 1923 in the summer of that year. But the Meyer system was in effect a dead letter. How could a privately financed, albeit subsidized, credit system compete with one financed by the U.S. Treasury? With WFC duties now assumed by the new federal intermediate credit system, Eugene Meyer allowed the War Finance Corporation's authority to make loans expire at the end of 1924. The WFC lingered on with no duties for five years, until Congress finally liquidated it in 1929. Meyer was cheerful about its demise, however, because he was able to use the virtually defunct post to meddle in and eventually take over the now-powerful Federal Farm Loan Board, or FFLB. Meyer assumed control of the FFLB in March 1927 and continued to run it until the advent of the Hoover administration two years later. His lengthy record in charge of inflationary government lending, in addition to his service in helping swing the New York Republican delegation to Hoover at the Republican Convention of 1928, made Eugene Meyer eminently qualified to be Hoover's new governor of the Federal Reserve Board in the autumn of 1930. Meyer in the Hoover administration. In the midst of a German and the American bank crises and a growing depression, Eugene Meyer battled the totally Morgan-run New York Fed for dominance over the Federal Reserve System. The Morgans were even more interested than Meyer in bailing out the European banking systems. In late June 1931, the New York Fed agreed to participate with the Bank of England, the Bank of France, and the Bank for International Settlements in a $100 million loan to try to bail out the German Reichsbank. Soon, the Germans were asking for $500 million more to save their banking system. While Harrison was sympathetic, Meyer and the other bankers felt this was too much of a long-term commitment. The German government then asked the Fed not only for the extra loan, but also for a reassuring statement, clearly mendacious, hailing the, quote, fundamental soundness of the German economy. Happening to be in New York in the midst of this German crisis on the weekend of July 12th, Meyer found out by accident of a secret meeting at the New York Fed on the crisis with the top Morgan people in the administration, including Morgan partners Russell Leffingwell and S. Parker Gilbert, Albert Wigan, head of the Morgan-run Chase National Bank, acting Treasury Secretary Ogden Mills, Owen D. Young, chairman of the Morgan-run General Electric, and from the New York Fed, Governor George Harrison and Deputy Governor W. Randolph Burgess. 
The meeting had already persuaded President Hoover to issue a statement of sympathy for the German situation. Meyer, at this point, went ballistic, insisting that the president's statement, backed by a meeting of top banking worthies, would be taken by the Germans, as well as everyone else, as a, quote, moral commitment to help the Germans, end quote, which would either lead to a disastrous blank check support for German finance, or would make matters worse when that support was repudiated. Meyer also insisted that only the Federal Reserve Board in Washington could legally commit the Fed to such action. By his last-minute intervention, Meyer was fortunately able to block the Morgan cabal from getting Hoover to make the public endorsement. The following week, Hoover, aided by veteran Morgan-oriented lawyer and Secretary of State Henry L. Stimson, agitated again for direct loans to Germany, but Meyer was able to confine Hoover to engineering a Meyer-approved big-power, quote, standstill agreement, by which banks throughout the major countries of the world would continue to hold German and other Central European short-term debts without trying to get out of German marks and other shaky currencies of that region. Generally, Meyer was able to overrule Harrison. Thus, when gold flowed out of U.S. banks after Britain's disastrous abandonment of the gold standard in late September, Meyer was able to force Harrison, wedded to cheap money, to raise the New York Fed's discount rate from 1.5% to 3.5% in October, thereby reversing the gold drain by raising market confidence in the dollar. By early September 1931, even before Britain's abandonment of the gold standard, President Hoover, Eugene Meyer, and the nation's financial establishment all agreed that America required a massive infusion of more money and credit under the direction of the federal government. There was one difference. Whereas Meyer and the bankers wanted a revival of the War Finance Corporation for government to pour in the new money directly, Hoover first wanted to try a dab of his characteristic government-business partnership to encourage private bankers to contribute the necessary hundreds of millions of dollars to a federal agency. Hoover set up his National Credit Corporation, or NCC, to attract $500 million from the banks in order to shore up shaky individual banks. But when the National Credit Corporation was only able to raise $150 million, Hoover quickly and cheerfully threw in the towel, and by the end of November, agreed to introduce a bill into Congress to revive the old WFC and expand it for peacetime uses into a new Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or RFC. The RFC bill, which sailed through Congress by late January 1932, provided for the Treasury to pour $500 million of capital into the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which was empowered to issue securities up to an additional $1.5 billion. The RFC could make loans to banks and financial institutions of all types. The theory was that, insured of freedom from failing, the timid banks would be emboldened to lend massively to business and industry, the money supply would dramatically rise, and prosperity would return. This was the doctrine trumpeted by President Hoover, Meyer, Mills, and Undersecretary of the Treasury Arthur A. Ballantine, a partner of the law firm headed by longtime Morgan attorney Elihu Root. Unsurprisingly, the representatives of groups expecting a massive infusion of federal money, commercial banks, savings banks, life insurance companies, 
and building and loan, in later years, savings and loan associations, testifying before Congress, quote, all praised the RFC bill in glowing terms, claiming that it was essential to the survival of the money market, end quote. In addition, the RFC was empowered to lend money to railroads in order to relieve their indebtedness and revivify the railroad bond market. The railroad representatives were also delighted with the bill. Hoover's original bill was even more sweeping, also allowing the RFC to make business loans to, quote, bona fide institutions. But the Senate Democrats, suspicious of excessive executive power over business, killed this proposal. The Senate Democrats also reportedly extracted a promise from Hoover to make the beloved Eugene Meyer chairman of the new RFC. Meyer, doing double duty as governor of the Federal Reserve Board and head of the RFC, was now the most powerful, single, economic, and financial force in the federal government. The RFC, at the Democrats' insistence, was to have a board of directors consisting of four Republicans and three Democrats. Three of the Republicans were the ex-officio heads of the Federal Reserve Board, Chairman Meyer, the Secretary of the Treasury, Ogden Mills, who had replaced Mellon in January, and of the Federal Farm Loan Board, Paul Bester, Meyer's protege and successor. The fourth Republican appointee was former Vice President Charles G. Dawes, a Chicago railroad man in the Morgan Ambit. The RFC was not only patterned after the old war finance corporation in philosophy, but also aped its organizational structure and took over many of the WFC's actual personnel. The general counsel and the three top examiners of the WFC happily took up their old posts, while the first secretary of the RFC was George Cooksey, a former director of the WFC who had been a member of that outfit's remarkably leisurely liquidation committee from 1929 until he assumed his new position in the RFC. Like the War Finance Corporation, the RFC established eight divisions as well as 33 local loan agencies. Each of these loan agencies established an advisory committee consisting of the leading local bankers to scrutinize and pass on loan applications. This arrangement placed tremendous political and financial power into the hands of local bankers armed with federal power. Moreover, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was not required to reveal the names of borrowers or the amounts of its loans to Congress or to the public. A tremendous political and economic power was thus placed in the RFC and bankers associated with it. Even progressive Senator George Norris of Nebraska lamented that he had never envisioned, quote, putting the government into business as far as this bill would put it, end quote. Hoover and his associates rationalized this power as being a temporary necessity to handle an emergency, supposedly much like World War I when the prototype of the RFC had been established. Thus, Hoover repeatedly spoke of fighting the Depression as the equivalent of fighting a war. Quote, We are engaged in a fight upon a hundred fronts, just as positive, just as definite, and requiring just as greatly the moral courage, the organized action, the unity of strength, and the sense of devotion in every community as in war. End quote. Eugene Meyer spoke repeatedly in military metaphors and Secretary Mills spoke of the, quote, great war against depression being fought on many fronts, end quote. 
especially the, quote, long battle to carry our financial structure through the worldwide collapse, end quote. And so, too, did business and financial leaders rationalize their hasty embrace of collectivism in the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. An illuminating article in the magazine of Wall Street summarizing the congressional debate over the RFC bill noted that big business, quote, always complaining of public intervention in economic matters, end quote, was now beating the drums for intervention, the RFC being supported by big bankers, industrialists, and railroad presidents. The article added, quote, The answer made by representatives of business to the charge of socialism is that in all great emergencies, war, for example, governments have always thrown themselves into the breach because only they can organize and mobilize the whole strength of the nation. In war, every country becomes practically a dictatorship and every man's resources are at its command. The country is now in an equally great emergency. End quote. The RFC certainly paid off for these favored business groups. The excuse for the secrecy was that public confidence would be weakened if the identity of the shaky business or bank receiving RFC loans became widely known. But of course, these institutions, precisely because they were in weak and unsound shape, deserve to lose public confidence, and the sooner the better, both for the public and for the health of the economy, which required the rapid liquidation of unsound investments and institutions. During the first five months of operation, from February to June 1932, the RFC made $1 billion of loans, of which 60% went to banks and 25% to railroads. The theory was that railroad bonds must be protected, since many of these securities were held by savings banks and insurance companies, alleged agents of the small investor. In practice, the bulk of these RFC railroad loans went to repaying debt. About a third of these loans went to repaying railroad debts to banks. Thus, one of the first RFC loans was $5.75 million to the Missouri Pacific Railroad to repay its debt to J.P. Morgan & Company, and an $8 million loan to the B&O Railroad to repay its debt to Kuhn Leben Company. One of the main enthusiasts for this policy was Eugene Meyer, who touted it as, quote, promoting recovery by, quote, putting more money into the banks. It certainly did the latter, at the expense of the taxpayers and of propping up inefficient banks and businesses. The loan to Missouri Pacific was a particularly egregious case, for as soon as Missouri Pacific performed its task of repaying its debt to Morgan, it was gently allowed to go into bankruptcy. Another consequence of RFC bailout loans to railroads was to accelerate the socialization of the railroad industry since the RFC, as a large-scale creditor, was able to place government directors on the board of the railroads reorganized after bankruptcy. While the Democrats in Congress had their way after August in forcing the RFC to report to Congress on its loans, President Hoover had his way in finally persuading Congress to transform the RFC into a bold, quote, positive agency empowered to make new loans, to engage in capital loans, to finance sales of agriculture at home and abroad, and to make loans to states and cities, instead of being merely an agency defending indebted banks and railroads. This amendment to the RFC Act, the Emergency Relief and Construction Act of 1932, passed Congress at the end of July 
and increased the RFC's authorized capital to $3.4 billion. Eugene Meyer, suffering from exhaustion, persuaded Hoover to include, in the amended bill, the separation of the ex-officio members from the RFC. But Meyer's double-duty work was greatly appreciated by Felix Frankfurter, soon to be one of the major gurus of the Roosevelt New Deal. Frankfurter telegraphed Meyer's wife that, quote, Gene has been the only brave and effective leader in the Hoover administration in dealing with depression, end quote. Free market financial writer John T. Flynn had a very different assessment of the year of the Hoover-Meyer Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Flynn pointed out that RFC loans only prolonged the depression by maintaining the level of debt. Income, quote, must be freed for purchasing by the extinguishment of excessive debts. Any attempt to save the weaker debtors necessarily prolongs the depression, end quote. Railroads should not be hampered from going into the, quote, inevitable curative process of bankruptcy. In the meantime, Eugene Meyer was promoting more inflationary damage as governor of the Federal Reserve. Meyer managed to persuade both Hoover and Virginia conservative Carter Glass, leading Democrat on the Senate Banking Committee, to push through the Glass-Steagall Act at the end of February which allowed the Fed to use U.S. government securities in addition to gold as collateral for Federal Reserve notes, which were, of course, still redeemable in gold. This act enabled the Federal Reserve to greatly expand credit and to lower interest rates. The Fed promptly went into an enormous binge of buying government securities, unprecedented at the time. The Fed purchased $1.1 billion of government securities from the end of February to the end of July raising its holdings to $1.8 billion. Part of the reason for these vast open market operations was to help finance the then-huge federal deficit of $3 billion during fiscal year 1932. Thus, we see the grave error of the familiar Milton Friedman monetarist myth that the Federal Reserve either deliberately contracted the money supply after 1931 or at least passively allowed such contraction. The Fed, under Meyer, did its mightiest to inflate the money supply, yet despite its efforts, total bank reserves only rose by $212 million, while the total money supply fell by $3 billion. How could this be? The answer to the mystery is that the inflationary policies of Hoover and Meyer proved to be counterproductive. American citizens lost confidence in the banks and demanded cash, Federal Reserve notes, for their deposits, currency in circulation rising by $122 million by the end of July, while foreigners lost confidence in the dollar and demanded gold, the gold stock in the United States falling by $380 million in this period. In addition, the banks, for the first time, did not fully lend out their new reserves and accumulated excess reserves, these excess reserves rising to 10% of total reserves by mid-year. A common explanation claims that business, during a depression, lowered its demand for loans so that pumping new reserves into banks was only, quote, pushing on a string. But this popular view overlooks the fact that banks can always use their excess reserves to buy existing securities. They don't have to wait for new loan requests. Why didn't they do so? Because the banks were whipsawed between two forces. On the one hand, Bank failures had increased dramatically during the Depression, 
Whereas during the 1920s, in a typical year, 700 banks failed, with deposits totaling $170 million. Since the Depression struck, 17,000 banks had been failing per year, with a total of $1.08 billion in deposits. This increase in bank failures could give any bank pause, especially since all the banks knew in their hearts that, as fractional reserve banks, none of them could withstand determined and massive runs upon them by their depositors. Second, just at a time when bank loans were becoming risky, the cheap money policy of the Fed had driven down interest returns from bank loans, thus weakening banks' incentive to bear risk. Hence, the piling up of excess reserves. The more that Hoover and the Fed tried to inflate, the more worried the market and the public became about the dollar, the more gold flowed out of the banks, and the more deposits were redeemed for cash. Professor Seymour Harris, writing at the time and years before he became one of America's leading Keynesians, concluded perceptively that the hard-money critics of the Hoover administration might have been right, and that it might be that the Fed's heavy open-market purchases of government securities from 1930 to 1932, quote, retarded the process of liquidation and reduction of costs, and therefore have accentuated the Depression, end quote. Herbert Hoover, of course, reacted quite differently to the abject failure of his inflationist program. Instead of blaming himself, he blamed the banks and the public. The banks were to blame by piling up excess reserves instead of making dangerous loans. By late May, Hoover was, quote, disturbed at the apparent lack of cooperation of the commercial banks of the country in the credit expansion drive, end quote. Eugene Meyer's successor at the RFC, former Ohio Democratic Senator Alti Pomerin, denounced the laggard banks bitterly, quote, I measure my words, the bank that is 75% liquid or more and refuses to make loans when proper security is offered, under present circumstances, is a parasite on the community, end quote. Hoover also went to the length of getting Treasury Secretary Ogden Mills to organize bankers and businessmen to lend or borrow the surplus credit piled up in the banks. Mills established a committee in New York City on May 19th, headed by Owen D. Young, chairman of the board of Morgan's General Electric Corporation, and the Young Committee tried to organize a cartel to support bond prices, but the committee despite its distinguished personnel, failed dismally to form a cartel that could defeat market forces. The idea died quickly. Not content with denouncing the banks, President Hoover also railed against the public for cashing in bank deposits for cash or gold. Stung by the public's redeeming $800 million of bank deposits for cash during 1931, Hoover organized a hue and cry against, quote, traitorous hoarding. On February 3, 1932, Hoover established a new Citizens Reconstruction Organization, or CRO, headed by Colonel Frank Knox of Chicago. The cry went up from the CRO that the hoarder is unpatriotic because he restricts and destroys credit. That is, by trying to redeem their own property and by trying to get banks to redeem their false and misleading promises— the hoarders were exposing the unsound nature of the bank credit system. On February 6th, top-level anti-hoarding patriots met to coordinate the drive. They included General Charles Dawes, Eugene Meyer, 
Secretary of Commerce Robert P. Lamont, and Treasury Secretary Ogden Mills. A month later, Hoover delivered a public address on the evils of hoarding. Quote, the battlefront today is against the hoarding of currency, end quote, which prevents money from going into active circulation and thereby lifting us out of the Depression. President Hoover later took credit for this propaganda drive putting a check on hoarding, and it is true that cash in circulation reached a peak of $5.44 billion in July 1932, not rising above that until the culminating bank crisis in February 1933. But if true, so much the worse, for that means that bank liquidation was postponed for a year until the final banking crisis of 1933. The New Deal. Going off gold. The international monetary system that the House of Morgan helped Great Britain cobble together in 1925 lay in ruins when Britain hastily abandoned the gold exchange standard in late September 1931. The Morgans tried desperately to keep Britain on gold in 1931, and afterward tried to get their bearings in the newly chaotic monetary arena. By the time of Roosevelt's accession to power in the spring of 1933, the Morgans had thrown in the towel on the American gold coin standard. Indeed, the Morgan-oriented leadership at the Treasury, Mills and Ballantine, had been agitating for going off gold considerably earlier. But the overriding Morgan concern was always their associates and colleagues in England, and they hoped for a rapid return to some kind of fixed exchange rate relation to Britain, and perhaps, by extension, to the other major European currencies as well. The Morgans wanted to reconstruct a regime of monetary internationalism as soon as possible. But for the first time since the turn of the century, the Morgans were no longer dominant over the monetary thinking of American financial and business elites. In the midst of the cauldron of depression, a new economic and monetary nationalism, a desire for domestic inflation untrammeled by international monetary responsibilities, began to take hold. Backed by proto-monetarist and proto-Keynesian economists eager to spur inflationist federal policies to cure the depression, the shift of business groups toward inflation centered in farm and agribusiness groups, which had been agitating for higher farm prices since the early 1920s, and in industrialists making products for the retail market who wanted government to pour new money into consumption spending. Thus, in January 1933, powerful business groups formed the Committee for the Nation, more formally the Committee for the Nation to Rebuild Prices and Purchasing Power, dedicated to getting the government to, quote, reflate prices back up to 1929 levels and to get off the gold standard so that the government could issue fiat paper money for that purpose. The co-defenders of the Committee for the Nation were Vincent Bendix, head of Bendix Aviation, and General Robert E. Wood, head of the mighty retail combine of Sears Roebuck. Others who soon joined them were Frank A. Vanderlip, former president of the National City Bank of New York, the flagship bank in the Rockefeller orbit, James H. Rand, Jr., president of Remington Rand Company, manufacturer of typewriters and other retail products, Lessing Rosenwald, major owner of Sears Roebuck, Samuel S. Fells, producer of Fells Napta, Philip K. Wrigley, head of William J. Wrigley Company, 
E.L. Cord of the Cord Automobile Company, William J. McAvinney, President of Hudson Motor Company, R.F. Wurlitzer, Producer of Wurlitzer Musical Instruments, Frederick H. Fraser, Chairman of the Board of the General Baking Company, and a galaxy of farm leaders, Fred H. Sixauer, President of the Dairyman's League Cooperative Association, Edward A. O'Neill, Head of the American Farm Bureau Federation, and Louis J. Taber, Head of the National Grange. It should also be noted that Rockefeller's petroleum products were, of course, goods largely sold at retail. Another emboldened inflationist group was the silver mining interests, centered in the mountain states, which seemingly had lost out permanently to the McKinley and Republican gold forces in the 1890s. Mountain state senators led the silver bloc in Congress, and Senator Burton K. Wheeler, Democrat from Montana, introduced a bimetallic bill to reinstitute the silver-gold standard at the old 19th-century ratio of 16 to 1. Leading theoretician and lobbyist for the silver bloc was New York banker René Leon, who got himself appointed as advisor to the House Ways and Means Committee in unsuccessfully pressing for an international conference to raise silver prices. More generally, the Rockefeller and Harriman forces had been allied against the Morgan since the turn of the century, and now they and other rising financial groups banded together avidly to overthrow and dethrone the financial and political dominance achieved by the House of Morgan during the Republican decade of the 1920s. Again, influential in the new democratic regime was the veteran speculator and political manipulator Bernard Baruch, who had been czar of the collectivized economy as head of the War Industries Board in World War I, and who yearned to reestablish a similar, collectivist, cartelized regime in peacetime, using the Depression as the means for achieving this goal. Baruch, since childhood, had been a protege of the powerful Guggenheim family, who controlled the American copper industry, but who liked to keep a low political profile and operate through Baruch and his network of operatives. Newer Jewish Wall Street investment banking houses, more anti-Morgan than Kuhn-Leb, were also rising to help challenge Morgan, notably Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers. The Lehman family contributing New Deal governor of New York, Herbert H. Lehman, to the American political scene. Furthermore, Jewish retail interests, led by the Boston Feline Brothers, were in favor of more inflation and consumer spending, and longtime Feline and retailer attorney Louis D. Brandeis had become powerful in the Democratic Party and was helping run the New Deal surreptitiously from his seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Brandeis was a longtime enemy of the Morgans, as attorney for opposing corporate interests and a dedicated supporter of retail cartels supported by the government. Moreover, all these financial and industrial groups were swinging notably leftward, not simply in monetary matters, but also in advocating far more government intervention, including promotion of labor unions, than the Morgans were willing to accept. Thus, these anti-Morgan groups, now gathered in the Democratic Party, were happy to form a coalition with left-wing intellectuals, technocrats, economists, and social workers who wished to staff the planning agencies, all to advance their common New Deal and ultra-statist agenda. Particularly powerful in the New Deal and in the Democratic Party was the underrated W. Avril Harriman, scion of the great Harriman interests and longtime enemy of the Morgans. 
Harriman dominated a highly influential new agency set up in the New Deal, the Business Advisory Council, or BAC, of the Department of Commerce, which transmitted the influence of the pro-New Deal wing of industry and finance. Also dominant in the BAC was Sidney J. Weinberg of Goldman Sachs. The Franklin Roosevelt, High Park, Democrat wing of the Roosevelt family had always been close to their Hudson Valley neighbors, the Astors and the Harrimans, whereas the Oyster Bay, Theodore Roosevelt, Republican wing of the family had always been close to the Morgans. To return to monetary policy, Eugene Meyer, who, after all, had three years to go in a 10-year term as governor of the Federal Reserve Board, refused President Hoover's request to resign immediately upon the inauguration of President Roosevelt. But Meyer found out quickly that he could not agree to going off the gold standard and an inflationary higher gold price, and he tendered his resignation as Fed chief in early May 1933. President Roosevelt's early monetary appointments set an important signal of his new orientation and policies. To succeed Meyer, Roosevelt appointed his friend, the young Georgia banker Eugene R. Black, who had been governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Black's orientation may be gauged by the fact that, when he left the Fed a year later, he was to spend 16 years climbing up the executive ladder at the powerful Chase National Bank, which by this time had shifted firmly from the Morgan to the Rockefeller camp. Indeed, for the rest of his working life, Eugene Black was to serve at Chase as protege of none other than the eminent Winthrop W. Aldrich, chairman of the board at Chase and a close kinsman of the Rockefeller family. Roosevelt's first secretary of the treasury was William H. Wooden, who received the appointment after it was turned down by Melvin Trailer, president of the First National Bank of Chicago, one of the main commercial banks in the Rockefeller orbit. Wooden had spent most of his career as a high official of the American Car and Foundry Company in New York, and was now chairman of the board of the American Locomotive Company. Wooden was also a director of such important enterprises as the Harriman-controlled American Ship and Commerce Corporation, as well as the Rockefeller-dominated Remington Arms Company. He had also been a founding director of the County Trust Company of New York, along with the influential Vincent Astor and Herbert H. Lehman. Wooden's financial associations in New York were therefore in the Harriman, Astor, Lehman, Rockefeller ambit, rather than in the Morgan network. Ill health forced Wooden to resign in December 1933, however, and his place was taken by Henry Morgenthau, Jr., who was to be an important and controversial Treasury Secretary for the remainder of Roosevelt's reign in office. Morgenthau, who rose from undersecretary, was a longtime friend and neighbor of Roosevelt's, and a gentleman farmer interested in agriculture. He was backed by his wealthy father, who had been ambassador to Turkey under Wilson, but more important was Henry Jr.'s close links to the powerful investment banking family of Lehman Brothers. Indeed, Henry Jr. was married to a Lehman. Her mother was a sister of Herbert H. and Arthur Lehman, and Henry's nephew, Jules Erich, had married a sister of Philip Lehman. Moreover, Henry Sr. had long been a major stockholder of the Underwood Typewriter Company, and several of his fellow board members were Philip Lehman, Philip's cousin Arthur Lehman, Morris Wertheim, who had married Henry Jr.'s sister, Alma, and Waddle Catchings, a top official of Goldman Sachs. 
Two fateful monetary steps were taken in 1933 by the incoming Roosevelt administration. The first and most revolutionary deed, accomplished in April, was to go off the gold standard, to confiscate almost all the gold of American citizens and place it under the ownership of the Federal Reserve, to embargo the export of gold and to devalue the dollar to $35 a gold ounce. This swift policy carried out almost completely the program of the Committee for the Nation. But in March and April, even the Morgans had been convinced by the banking crisis to go off gold. Democratic Morgan partner Russell Leffingwell was influential in urging Roosevelt to go off gold and devalue the dollar. And Jack Morgan himself applauded Roosevelt's decision to inflate and go off gold. The major theoretician of the inflationists who had liquidated the assets of his own prior Stable Money Association into the Committee for the Nation, was Yale professor Irving Fisher, the intellectual forerunner of Milton Friedman, who has hailed Fisher as, quote, the greatest economist of the 20th century, and who mechanistically had believed that since the price level was not rising in the 1920s, there was no inflation to worry about and no coming crash. Fisher strongly urged the inflationist devaluation and fiat standard upon Roosevelt, who had asked him for advice. When Roosevelt cast the die against gold, Fisher exalted to his wife, quote, Now I am sure, as far as we ever can be sure of anything, that we are going to snap out of this depression fast. I am now one of the happiest men in the world. End quote. Fisher had a personal, as well as an ideological, stake in rapid inflation. Sure of a permanent prosperity and stock boom in the late 1920s, he had invested all of his wife's and most of his sister-in-law's substantial hazard family fortune in the stock market, and he was desperately anxious for Roosevelt to reflate and drive up stock prices. As Fisher added in the same letter to his wife, quote, I mean that if FDR had followed Glass, who had urged him to stay on gold, we would have been pretty surely ruined, end quote. As it happened, the fiat money policy did not restore the stock market, and Fisher's and his wife's and sister-in-law's fortune was ruined by his unwise speculations, a mute testimony to the unsoundness of Fisher and monetarism in explaining or counteracting business cycles. On the other side of the gold standard decision were the bulk of the nation's economists, who signed a mass petition urging immediate return to gold. They were led by two doughty, hard-money men, Dr. H. Parker Willis, who had staunchly opposed the strong Morgan inflationism of the 1920s and urged rapid liquidation of unsound assets to promote recovery, and Dr. Benjamin M. Anderson, longtime hard-money economist of Chase National Bank, who had influenced Chase President Albert Wiggin in favor of hard money and laissez-faire policies. In the executive branch, the major opponent of the new fiat regime was Louis W. Douglas, Arizona scion of the Phelps Dodge copper mining interests, and Roosevelt's head of the Bureau of Budget. The fiscally conservative Douglas had, in early 1933, persuaded Roosevelt to make severe cuts in the proposed appropriations of the executive agencies. Even though monetary nationalism had triumphed, the Morgan interests and the other monetary internationalists were anxious to reestablish fixed exchange rates with Britain 
and to rebuild the special relationship with Morgan allies in Britain and Western Europe. The ultra-inflationists, led by the Committee for the Nation, were strongly opposed to fixed exchange rates with Britain and wanted to press ahead with monetary or dollar nationalism, higher gold prices, and continued inflation. Tensions within the administration and within the industrial and financial communities centered around the World Economic Conference set for London in June 1933, which had been prepared for a year by the British-dominated League of Nations in a desperate attempt to restore some sort of fixed exchange rate, stabilized international monetary system. The World Economic Conference, with delegates from 64 nations, met on June 12th. The gold bloc at the conference, led by the French, urged an immediate restoration of the full, classical gold standard. The British wanted fixed exchange rates, tied to gold or not, but emphasizing that the pound must be cheaper at $4 so as not to lose the export advantage Britain had built up in the past two years. The United States, on the other hand, wanted to place prime emphasis on continued domestic inflation, currency stabilization, which should not put the pound below $4.25, could wait until some future date after domestic prices had risen. From the beginning, however, there was great tension between the bulk of the American delegation to London and the Roosevelt administration in Washington. Chief economic advisor to the American delegation was James P. Warburg of Kuhn Leb, who took the Morgan line of favoring a new international gold standard at new and more realistic exchange rates. Morgan oriented George L. Harrison of the New York Fed and Professor O. M. W. Sprague were sent by FDR to work on an agreement for temporary stabilization of exchange rates for the duration of the conference. When, however, Sprague and Harrison concluded an agreement on June 16th with the British and French for temporary stabilization of the three currencies, setting the dollar sterling rate at $4 a pound and pledging the United States not to inflate the currency in the meanwhile, Roosevelt angrily rejected the agreement. Roosevelt gave two reasons to the chagrin Sprague and Harrison. The pound must be no cheaper than $4.25, and Roosevelt could accept no restraint on his freedom to inflate to raise domestic prices. Harrison quit in disgust and returned home, a harbinger of the fate of the Morgans in the years to come. The World Economic Conference proceeded with lengthy discussions, both the Americans and British talking about an eventual, quote, gold standard, which would enjoy no domestic gold coin or bullion circulation, with gold to be used only as a medium for settling international balances of payments, a foretaste of the eventual Bretton Woods system after World War II. The stubbornness of the United States finally forced the assembled delegates to agree on an innocuous final declaration at the end of June that committed the United States to very little more than its own resolution for eventual return to a sadly denatured gold standard coupled with a vague agreement to cooperate in limiting exchange rate speculation. This declaration, weak as it was, seemed to offer hope of eventual stabilization, and so it was strongly supported by Sprague, Warburg, and by Chief Brain Truster Raymond Moley, Assistant Secretary of State, who was head of the American delegation to London. Within the administration, the agreement was strongly supported by Douglas, Baruch, and by Undersecretary of the Treasury, Dean G. Acheson. 
Atchison was a disciple of Morgan-oriented lawyer Henry L. Stimson, and one of his Washington law partners, J. Harry Covington, was a director of the Guggenheim-controlled Kennecott Copper Corporation. Sending the proposed declaration to Roosevelt on June 30th, Moley pointed out that dollar depreciation during June had brought the pound-dollar rate up to $4.40, well above the $4.25 that Roosevelt had insisted on. On July 1st, however, FDR stunned Moley, the delegates, and the American supporters of the agreement by flatly rejecting the declaration, stating that the United States should be allowed the time, quote, to permit a demonstration of the value of price-lifting efforts, which we have well in hand, end quote. But, adding insult to injury, Roosevelt followed up this rejection on July 3rd with an arrogant and contemptuous message to the London Conference, which became known as his famous, quote, bombshell message. Here, Roosevelt denounced any idea of currency stabilization as a, quote, specious fallacy. In particular, he thundered, quote, old fetishes of so-called international bankers are being replaced by efforts to plan national currencies, end quote, in order to obtain a fixed price level. In short, Roosevelt now totally and publicly committed to the entire nationalist Fisher Committee for the Nation program for fiat paper money, currency inflation, and a very steep, quote, reflation of prices. The idea of stable exchange rates or an international monetary order would fade away for the remainder of the 1930s, and monetary nationalism, currency blocks, and economic warfare would be the order of the day for the remainder of the decade. The chagrined supporters of the aborted London Monetary Agreement soon found it necessary to leave the Roosevelt administration. This included Atchison, Warburg, who had been offered the job of Undersecretary of the Treasury before Atchison, and who was close to his ancient Kuhn-Leb allies, the Harriman interests, Louis W. Douglas, who was soon to write a bitter book attacking the New Deal, and Moley, who returned to the Academy and who helped run Today and Newsweek with his friends the Astors and the Harrimans. The Committee for the Nation has long been known as the prime mover behind the fiat money and inflationist policy of the early New Deal. What has not been known until recently was the powerful, behind-the-scenes role in the committee played by the Rockefeller Empire, in conjunction with their longtime international rival, the British Royal Dutch Shell Oil, financed by the Rothschild interests. Thus, a top financier of the Committee for the Nation was James A. Moffat, a longtime director and high official of the Rockefeller flagship company, the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey. Moffat, friend and early supporter of Roosevelt, coordinated his behind-the-scenes agitation for inflation and against the London Economic Conference with New York banker and leading silver block agitator René Leon who functioned as an agent for the powerful Sir Henry Dieterding, head of Royal Dutch Shell, who was heading the international agitation for a worldwide, cartelized increase in the price of silver. Dieterding pressured Roosevelt for inflation, not so much in his capacity as an oil leader as in a financier of silver production. It turns out that Moffat and Leon, working in tandem, were most influential in successfully pressuring Roosevelt to torpedo the London Economic Conference. 
Here was a startlingly clear case of Rockefeller and Royal Dutch Shell against Morgan. Banking and Financial Legislation, 1933 to 1935. The Rockefellers and other financiers' war with the Morgans in 1933 had been building for several years. By the late 1920s, the Rockefellers, along with newly rising financial groups, increasingly resented the Morgan grip over both the Federal Reserve, especially the New York Fed, as well as the administration. Bankers enraged at Benjamin Strong and the New York Fed's low interest policy on behalf of Britain in the 1920s were led by Melvin A. Trailer, head of the Rockefeller-controlled First National Bank of Chicago. The Rockefellers had never been England-oriented. Trailer led the Chicago bankers in going to the Democratic Convention in 1928 and supporting Al Smith, the Democratic nominee. Averill Harriman of Brown Brothers Harriman solidified his support of the Democratic Party during the same year and for similar reasons. Also, brash new ethnic groups rose to challenge the Morgan hegemony and were fiercely fought by the Morgans and their controlled New York Fed. These included the Bank of America, a huge new Italian-American-run commercial bank chain in the West and the rising Irish-American buccaneer Joseph P. Kennedy of Boston, both of whom were Democrats and emphatically outside the WASP-Morgan-Republican structure. The crucial event occurred within the Morgan's showcase New York institution, the Chase National Bank, a commercial bank with an investment banking arm, Chase Securities. As a result of the 1929 crash, the Rockefeller-controlled Equitable Trust Company was in vulnerable shape, and its new head, Winthrop W. Aldrich, engineered a merger into Chase in March 1930, making Chase the world's largest bank. Aldrich was brother-in-law of John D. Rockefeller and was destined to be for decades the key Rockefeller man in banking as well as in the manipulation of politicians. A titanic three-year struggle immediately ensued for control of Chase between the Rockefeller and the Morgan forces, who had previously been in charge. The CEO of Chase had been Morgan man Albert H. Wigan, with Wigan ally Charles McCain as chairman of the board. The Rockefeller forces quickly mobilized to make Winthrop Aldrich president of the bank, a move fought desperately but unsuccessfully by Morgan partner Thomas W. Lamont. Aldrich was now president and subordinate to Wigan and McCain, but the nose of the camel was now in the tent, as Aldrich strove to oust Wigan and McCain and take over the bank. Supporting Aldrich in this struggle were board members Thomas M. Debevoy, fraternity brother and top counsel to John D. Rockefeller Jr., Vincent Astor of the famed Astor family and friend and cousin of Franklin Roosevelt, and Gordon Auchincloss close friend of Winthrop Aldrich. As the conflict came to a climax in late 1932, Lamont found to his horror that several high-chase officials in the Aldrich camp were supporting Roosevelt. Cementing the closeness of Rockefeller and Chase National to Franklin D. Roosevelt was the crucial role of the shadowy, dominant advisor to President Woodrow Wilson, quote, Colonel Edward Mandel House. House, a Democratic politician from Texas, had inherited railroads and other properties in Texas and, during Wilson's day, 
was very close to the Morgans. Now, however, House, a key behind-the-scenes advisor to Roosevelt, had shifted to the Rockefeller orbit, impelled by the fact that his daughter was married to Gordon Auchincloss. At the end of 1932, Aldrich managed to oust Wigan as chairman of the board of Chase, and he immediately began to use his perch as president to launch a multi-pronged and savage attack on the Morgan Empire. In the first place, he collaborated fully and enthusiastically with the bitter and ruckus PCORA U.S. Senate Banking and Currency Committee assaults on Wall Street, and particularly on the Morgan Empire. Aldrich happily fed the PCORA Committee data, blackening the Wigan-McCain regime at Chase, and PCORA was able to use such material to vilify demagogically the Morgan and other bankers for activities that were legal and legitimate. Thereby, PCORA could appeal both to the ignorance and to the envy of the bedazzled public. Thus, PCORA was able to hector the Morgan bankers for not paying income taxes during the Depression, the public not being willing to understand the legitimacy of deducting severe losses from one's income. The Morgans were also pilloried for having a, quote, preferred list of financiers and politicians for purchasing new stock issues in advance of public sale. The list made juicy reading as a clear attempt to curry favor, and it was in vain that the Morgans remonstrated that this opportunity can only be profitable in a rising stock market. Similarly, Pecora was able to put Wigan in the dock for profitably short-selling Chase stock on a loan from Chase. He badgered and ridiculed J.P. Morgan himself and drove McCain into resigning from the bank. Aldrich used this crisis to become the dominant force at Chase and to assume the post of chairman of the board in January 1934. Ferdinand Pecora has received little but adulation from the media and historians. Ironically, his harassment and persecution of Wall Street originated with Herbert Hoover. As early as 1919, Hoover had called for government regulation of the stock market to eliminate, quote, vicious speculation. In 1928 and 1929, Hoover had pioneered in the view that the problem of bank credit was that too much of it was going to the stock market rather than that there was too much bank credit, period. After the crash, President Hoover naturally segued into charging that the collapse of stock prices was caused by the vicious action of short sellers, forgetting that for every short seller, there must be a buyer. Under threat of regulation, Hoover forced Morgan man Richard Whitney, head of the New York Stock Exchange, to agree, quote, voluntarily, to withhold loans of stock for purposes of short selling. After forcing the stock exchange to restrict short-selling in the crisis of late 1931, and yet again in February 1932, but being dissatisfied with continuing declines in stock prices, President Hoover finally carried out his threat and pressured the U.S. Senate to investigate the New York Stock Exchange, even though he admitted that the federal government had no constitutional jurisdiction over the exchange, which was a New York institution. Hoover continually and hysterically denounced what he termed, quote, sinister and, quote, systematic bear raids on stocks, as well as, quote, vicious pools pounding down security prices, quote, deliberately making a profit from the losses of other people, end quote, which, of course, is what bulls and bears always do from each other. 
angrily replying to the protest of New York bankers. Hoover used some crystal ball of his own to assert that current prices of securities did not represent, quote, true values. Instead, he declared, the vicious, quote, propaganda that values should be based on earnings at the bottom of a depression is an injury to the country and to the investing public, end quote. Mr. Hoover's preferred alternative criterion? The absurd one of the public being, quote, willing to invest on the basis of the future of the United States, end quote. Hoover, lacking any knowledge of the market, was foolishly convinced that all powerful Democratic speculators, headed by John J. Raskob of DuPont and Bernard Baruch, were conducting bear raids to drive down the prices of stocks. It was in vain that Whitney and the Morgans tried to poo-poo these fantasies. Hoover kept pressing the Senate Banking and Currency Committee to conduct hearings on, quote, short-selling in the stock exchange, beginning his pressure in late February 1932. Sensing disaster from these bull-in-a-china-shop tactics, Thomas Lamont vainly pleaded with Hoover to suspend his campaign. Finally, the hearings got underway in April 1932. The first witness, Richard Whitney, terming Hoover's charges, quote, purely ridiculous. When, in private, Hoover told Lamont that short-selling by bears was responsible for all economic ills, including business stagnation and falling prices, and that, quote, real values were being destroyed by bear raids, Lamont tartly replied, quote, but what can be called real value if a security has no earnings and pays no dividends? End quote. In late April, a new subcommittee broadened the Senate inquiry from the fruitless attempt to discover a Democratic bear conspiracy to include pools and stock market manipulations in general. The short-selling emphasis seemed ridiculous when the Morgans stepped in to try to revive a crash in the bond market, a market where short-selling had been prohibited. The Senate subcommittee hearings were suspended in late June, but they took on a very different, and fateful aspect when they reopened in January 1933, with Ferdinand Pecora of New York as chief counsel. The aggressive Pecora, a former chief assistant district attorney in New York, proceeded to launch a savage and demagogic assault on Wall Street in general and on the Morgan interests in particular. Pecora had been born in Sicily and emigrated as a child to New York. At first, intending to enter the Episcopal ministry, Pecora instead became a lawyer and, at the age of 30, became a district leader of the Progressive Party in 1912, and soon became vice president of the New York State Party. Joining the Wilson Democratic Party a few years later, Pecora rose in the district attorney's office during the 1920s. Politically ambitious, Pecora ran, unsuccessfully, for district attorney on the Democratic ticket in 1930, and repeated his effort and failure while basking in the public limelight during the Pecora Stock Market Practices hearings in 1933. Pecora cultivated a media image of feisty integrity, but more astute observers noted that his angry and glaring searchlight pilloried Republican bankers but managed to overlook such leading Democratic and pro-New Deal investment bankers on Wall Street as Brown Brothers Harriman and Lehman Brothers. We know now, too, that President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, 
in his inaugural address, had ranted against, quote, unscrupulous money changers, and in his first fireside chat to the radio public had oddly blamed investment bankers for the commercial banking crisis, met secretly with Pecora and with Senate Banking Committee Chairman Duncan Fletcher to urge them to go after J.P. Morgan and company. Ferdinand Pecora was only too happy to oblige. It was the hysterical atmosphere deliberately generated by the Pecora hearings particularly Pecora's assaults on Albert Wiggins' Chase National Bank and on the Morgans, that created the atmosphere that permitted the coalition of New Deal reformers and Winthrop W. Aldrich's Rockefeller forces to drive through fateful banking and financial legislation during the, quote, first 100 days of 1933. Legislation that overturned and destroyed the economic power of the Morgan Empire. In particular, the Roosevelt administration managed to pass the Banking Act, or Glass-Steagall Act, of 1933, and the Securities Act of 1933. In a thorough and illuminating analysis of the Bacora hearings, Professor George Benston has demonstrated both the legitimacy and the economic soundness of the maligned practices of the investment bankers, as well as their complete irrelevance to the major anti-Morgan thrust of the Banking Act of 1933, the compulsory separation of investments and commercial banking. Benston shows that the charges were generally trumped up, and the vaunted Pecora, quote, findings were usually only ad hoc speculation by individual senators. The Banking Act of 1933 had three major provisions. One, the compulsory separation of commercial and investment banking. Two, the provision of federal, quote, insurance to guarantee all bank deposits. And three, prohibiting commercial banks from paying interest on their demand deposits. The compulsory separation clauses, A, severely restricted commercial banks from buying securities, except, cleverly, that government securities were exempt from this restriction. B, prohibited commercial banks from issuing, underwriting, selling, or distributing any securities. Again, government securities were exempt. And C, prohibited any investment bank, that is, a bank that does not underwrite corporate securities, from ever accepting any deposits. Provision B, the divestment by commercial banks of underwriting, was a slap by Aldrich and the reformers against the security affiliates that large commercial banks had developed for investment banking functions, in particular the two largest, Chase's Chase Securities Corporation and National City Bank's National City Company. These securities affiliates had been particularly active in the late 1920s, and it was therefore all too easy to blame them for the stock market crash. Aldrich had been happy to repudiate the Wigan-Morgan regime's Chase Securities Corporation, which was doing badly during the Depression anyway, but his main thrust was Provision C, a direct death blow to J.P. Morgan & Company, a private investment bank which also accepted bank deposits. The Rockefeller commercial banks, not tied in much with investment banking anyway and content to use their allied investment banks, could happily strike at Morgan and its characteristic fusion of the two forms of banking. Indeed, not only did Winthrop Aldrich agitate for this latter clause, he actually drafted Section 21 of the Senate Bill in Glass's behalf. 
The Morgans fought back bitterly. William Potter of the Morgan-dominated Guarantee Trust, calling Aldrich's proposal, quote, quite the most disastrous ever heard from a member of the financial community, end quote. The opposition was to no avail, however, with President Roosevelt personally urging Senator Glass to retain Section 21. As Chernow writes, quote, This was the coup de grace for the House of Morgan, end quote. J.P. Morgan and company delayed their final divestment decision, hoping for the passage of Carter Glass's amendment to the Banking Act of 1935, allowing some securities powers to deposit banks. But Roosevelt delivered the final blow to the Morgans by personally interceding in the House-Senate Conference Committee to kill the amendment. Upon this defeat, J.P. Morgan and company made the fateful decision to keep its deposit business and to divest itself of its power center, the investment banking business. The Morgans set up a new Morgan Stanley and Company to engage in investment banking. It is a tragic irony that Carter Glass and his theoretician H. Parker Willis were lured into this alliance with the Rockefellers and the New Dealers to clobber the Morgans by coercively divorcing commercial and investment banking. Willis, as noted above, was a trenchant critic of the strong Morgan credit inflation of the 1920s. Unfortunately, Willis's, quote, real bills approach, which led him to oppose the bank credit expansion, also led him to oppose it for the wrong reason. Contrary to Willis, the problem was not that banks were buying corporate securities or lending money to the stock market. The problem was that the banks were inflating credit, period. But Willis and Glass, starting with the wrong reasoning, came to the wrong solution to compel the commercial banks to stop purchasing or issuing securities as a partial means of reaching the ultimate goal, forcing the banks and the Fed to return to the original concept of confining their credit to short-term, self-liquidating, quote, real bills. Hence, the luring of the reluctant Glass and Willis into uncongenial schemes of socializing and cartelizing Wall Street and helping the Rockefellers destroy the Morgans. Professor Benston points out that all the provisions of the Banking Act of 1933 helped develop a coherent structure for government cartelization of the banking industry. In the first place, the separation sections, which we have been discussing, helped the commercial bankers get rid of unprofitable securities and to eliminate the powerful competition of investment bankers for customers' deposits. As for investment bankers, one-third of them, including J.P. Morgan and Company, hived off that business to stick to deposit banking, leaving the remainder free of their competition. In particular, as we have seen, the Rockefellers rid the commercial banks of unwelcome investment banking competition. Other Banking Act provisions reinforced the cartelization. Thus, federal deposit insurance guaranteed all bank deposits, thereby cartelizing the industry and supposedly guaranteeing every bank's success. The prohibition of bank payment of interest on demand deposits was a particularly cartelizing device since it, quote, forced the banks collectively to keep payment of interest to their depositors at zero, policing any competing bank that would have liked to break the cartel by bidding for depositors' accounts. 
In addition to all this, the Banking Act of 1933 began the crucial process of stripping away the dominant power of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and hence the Morgans, over the operations of the Federal Reserve System, and of transferring that power to political appointees in Washington. Previously, for example, each Federal Reserve Bank, and therefore the private bankers in that district, had total power over its own open market operations, and therefore over the movement of bank reserves. In practice, this meant the New York Fed, since open market operations were in U.S. government securities, and the bond market is located in New York. The Banking Act of 1933 began a transfer of power by creating a statutory Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC. The FOMC, however, continued to be in private banker hands, since it consisted of one member from each Federal Reserve District, selected by the Board of Directors of each Federal Reserve Bank. In practice, these were the governors of each Federal Reserve Bank. The new law required that every Federal Reserve Bank's open market operation conform to Federal Reserve Board regulations. But each Federal Reserve Bank retained the right to refuse to participate in the FOMC's recommended open market policies. The result of this hybrid system was that the Federal Reserve Board was ultimately responsible for Fed policy, but it could not initiate open market operations. The Federal Reserve Board could ratify or veto FOMC policies, but those policies had to be initiated by the FOMC. The Federal Open Market Committee, for its part, could initiate open market policies, but it could not execute them. Execution remained in the hands of the New York Fed and the Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Banks, for their part, could not initiate open market policies, but could obstruct them by failing to execute them. All in all, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, while losing much of its power over open market operations in the 1933 Act, was able to live with the new arrangement. It was more annoyed over a neglected provision of the Act that forbade the New York Fed, or any other Federal Reserve Bank, from conducting negotiations with foreign banks a direct slap at the crucial New York Fed Morgan role during the 1920s in making arrangements with the Bank of England and other European banks. The demagogic eruption of the Pecora hearings also led to another New Deal 100 Days measure that both revolutionized and cartelized the securities industry and delivered another body blow to the House of Morgan. This was the Securities Act of 1933, passed in May followed the next year by its more powerful successor, the Securities Exchange Act of June 1934. The first act imposed rigorous and expensive laws and procedures for any new securities issues, allegedly to protect the investing public. Its actual effect was to cartelize the sources of new capital, channeling the supply of savings into firms big enough to bear the substantial costs and freezing out smaller and more risky new capital ventures. Even more directly, the Securities Act cartelized the investment banking industry, keeping out any newer and smaller investment banks that might challenge the established giants. While many investment bankers were unhappy with specific provisions and urged amendments, they were on the whole delighted with the basic thrust of the regulation. Thus, testifying on the bill before the House Commerce Committee, George W. Balvenizer, partner in Kuhn, Lebb & Company, 
and a venerable Morgan enemy, declared that his firm was, quote, wholeheartedly in favor of the type of legislation suggested by the president. We have stood by now for the past 12 years or more and have looked on with apprehension as the good name of investment banker has been put into jeopardy by the actions of some people who should never have been in the business. I believe that every honest banker today will look with great favor upon the principle of this legislation as the dawn of a new era. End quote. The enforcement of the Securities Act was put into the hands of the Federal Trade Commission since the accession of Roosevelt in left-wing hands, but a new Securities and Exchange Commission created for this purpose was to take over the enforcement powers in July 1934. By that time, however, Congress had passed the Securities Exchange Act of June 1934, greatly expanding the powers of the Securities and Exchange Commission from compulsory registration of new issues to control over the practices of the exchange, as well as to compulsory disclosure for existing securities. The securities legislation constituted a body blow to the Morgan Empire because the Morgans dominated the New York Stock Exchange, especially through the exchange's president, Richard Whitney. Whitney, a scion of the prominent Morgan-oriented financial family, was the head of Richard Whitney & Company, the major bondbroker for J.P. Morgan & Company. In addition, Richard's brother George was a senior partner at the House of Morgan and was Morgan's man on such important boards as that of General Motors and of the giant Morgan-controlled public utility holding company, the United Corporation. Since Richard Whitney was the leader of fierce opposition to any government regulation of securities and in behalf of laissez-faire, his defeat by the New Dealers, and in particular his later disgrace, tended to discredit his free market views. It had always been assumed that since the stock exchange was a New York institution, it could only be constitutionally regulated by the state of New York, rather than by the federal government. The New Dealers, however, considered states' rights an absurd obstacle in the path of centralizing the economy, and they treated it accordingly. Moreover, by imposing federal regulation and enforcement, they could, at one and the same time, dominate and cartelize the securities and investment banking industries, while delivering another body blow to the House of Morgan. The two Securities Acts were written by New Dealers, many of them young and all eager to radicalize and transform American finance. Substantial roles were played by Federal Trade Commission Chairman Houston Thompson, a Washington State populist, and by the venerable New York trial lawyer Samuel Unermeyer, scourge of the House of Morgan as chief counsel of the U.S. Senate's Peugeot Committee in 1912, which had then helped to drive J.P. Morgan Sr. to his grave. But the most important role in drafting and pushing through the Securities Acts was played by powerful left-liberal theorist, agitator, and shadowy manipulator Felix Frankfurter, a professor at Harvard Law School. An old friend and advisor to Franklin Roosevelt, Frankfurter specialized in seeding his former students and assistants, his, quote, happy hot dogs, into powerful positions in the federal government. In particular, Frankfurter folded into the New Deal and into drafting the Securities Acts his disciples James M. Landis, Benjamin Cohen, and Thomas, quote, Tommy the Cork, Corcoran. And standing behind Frankfurter, 
pulling the strings from his Supreme Court bench, was the even more shadowy master manipulator, Louis D. Brandeis, Frankfurter's mentor from Harvard Law School. Brandeis was able to violate judicial ethics systematically while on the court by putting Frankfurter on permanent retainer on his secret payroll and using Frankfurter as his agents in the political realm. Brandeis, who had been powerful in the Wilson administration, had been fiercely anti-Morgan for decades and was a longtime legal representative for retail users of Morgan Railroads and utilities, particularly for the Feline interests of Boston. While the New Deal left originally wanted security regulation in the hands of the left-dominated Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, they were perfectly happy to, quote, compromise by setting up a Specialized Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. Indeed, Roosevelt cunningly threw a stop to conservatives and moderates by naming his old friend, the Irish-American stock speculator and buccaneer Joseph P. Kennedy, to be chairman of the five-man SEC, while the other commissioners were leftist ideologues from the FTC, including the leading New Dealer writing the legislation, James Macaulay Landis. Rounding out the SEC was none other than that scourge of the Morgans and the Wall Street Republicans, Ferdinand Pecora. Landis was to succeed Kennedy when the latter left the SEC chairmanship in 1935. While Joseph Kennedy was a bit more conservative than his colleagues, especially on the New Deal assault on public utility holding companies, his life as a speculator successfully bamboozled many moderates who did not realize the extent of Kennedy's collectivist views. Thus, Kennedy not only enthusiastically endorsed the New Deal, he went beyond it to advocate a general federal incorporation law, as well as the abolition of private investment banking. In addition, during his buccaneering period in the 1920s, he had repeatedly clashed with the Morgan interests. The extent of Kennedy's collectivism is seen by his assertion, similar to all collectivist planners. Quote, An organized, functioning economy requires a planned economy. The more complex the society, the greater the demand for planning. Otherwise, there results a haphazard and inefficient method of social control. And in the absence of planning, the law of the jungle prevails. End quote. Though Kennedy was a buccaneer, he was scarcely the Lone Ranger. In the late 1920s and the 1930s, Kennedy worked closely with various Hollywood film corporations, particularly those such as Paramount Pictures, dominated by Lehman Brothers. As for Landis, on the other hand, Businessmen expecting a socialistic, anti-business force at the helm of the SEC were pleasantly surprised to find Landis a conscious and deliberate creator of governmental cartelization, of a government-business partnership in behalf of, quote, industrial self-government under the benign aegis of federal regulation. Landis charmed the financial groups by overcoming his personal dislike of bankers, brokers, and accountants in order to include them in his well of supports and regulation. Thus, as early as 1934, Landis wrote in the yearbook of the Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, In all its efforts, the Securities and Exchange Commission has sought and obtained the cooperation not only of exchanges, but also of brokerage houses, investment bankers, and corporation executives, 
who in turn recognize that their efforts to improve financial practices are now buttressed by the strong arm of the government. End quote. Landis also shrewdly won over the accounting profession, which had been fearful of New Deal attempts to dictate to and penalize the nation's accountants. Instead, Landis explicitly offered that profession, previously resentful of domination by corporate clients, the opportunity to cartelize and rule the securities roost under the benevolent aegis of the SEC. As historian Thomas McGraw puts it, quote, It struck him, Landis, as far preferable to use their, the accountants, existing expertise and to make their professional institutions the vehicle of change, rather than attempting to force results with direct government action, end quote. As a result, the accounting profession took to Landis and the SEC with alacrity. The American Institute of Accountants quickly formed a special committee on cooperation with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and this group functioned as a permanent liaison with the SEC. A leading scholar of accountancy soon noted that, with the establishment of the SEC policy, quote, The control function of accounts takes on a new and quite different form. Instead of being merely a tool of control by business enterprise, they become a tool for the control of business enterprise itself. End quote. In other words, the scholar, D.R. Scott, was noting the wondrous fact that whereas until the SEC, accountants were forced to subordinate themselves to their private business clients on the market, the SEC was enabling accountancy to enter a new era where accountants could turn the tables by serving the central government to control and dominate their clients. In particular, Landis set up a special accounting subdivision headed by a chief accountant, who quickly became the most important auditing regulator in the United States. The chief accountant happily accepted the charge of driving toward more rigorous audits, cracking down against violators, and setting up compulsory, uniform accounting standards. In 1937, the chief accountant began the practice of issuing much-vaunted accounting series releases, laying down a network of standardized accounting practices for the profession. Much of the SEC's power to enforce guidelines was deliberately delegated to the professional associations of accountants, thus further enlisting the organized profession as surrogate cartelists and enforcers. One charm the SEC regulations had for the accountants is that the SEC acts required a large number of new financial statements by, quote, an independent public or certified accountant, end quote, provisions that created a welcome substantial increase in the demand for accountants. As a result, while the number of lawyers and physicians in the nation increased by about 71% between 1930 and 1970, the number of accountants swelled by no less than 271%. Finally, Landis's shrewd strategy induced the New York and other regional stock exchanges to collaborate and run their own regulation under the wing, of course, of the federal government. In a series of addresses to the New York Stock Exchange Institute during 1935, Landis called for, quote, self-government as the crucial principle. Indeed, Landis carefully worked out the SEC rules in a series of negotiations with the exchanges. In early 1937, Landis outlined his strategy candidly in a major address. Regulation, Landis noted, quote, 
welded together existing self-regulation and direct control by government. In so doing, it followed lines of institutional development, buttressing existing powers by the force of government, rather than absorbing all authority and power to itself. In so doing, it made the loyalty of the institution to the broad objectives of government a condition of its continued existence, thus building from within as well as imposing from without. End quote. James M. Landis left the SEC in alleged triumph in 1938 to attain the coveted post of Dean of Harvard Law School. He was succeeded as SEC chairman by Commission member William O. Douglas, an old friend of Roosevelt's who had developed his own network at Yale Law School. Douglas, even more left-wing and anti-Morgan than Landis, felt that Landis had been lax in hounding Morgan's Richard Whitney out of his post as head of the New York Stock Exchange. Douglas proceeded to pursue this goal with vigor. But even Douglas was no simple anti-business socialist, preferring to continue cartelization by working with dissident anti-Morgan groups within the stock exchange, led by the Rockefeller-oriented E.A. Pierce. Douglas was particularly able to work with the retail commission brokers, led by young St. Louis stockbroker William McChesney Martin, Jr., who resented the elite floor traders led by Whitney and the Morgans. It was these dissidents who ousted Whitney and took over the stock exchange, and whose tough new disclosure rules unexpectedly turned up the financial irregularities of Richard Whitney that were to send him to the penitentiary for embezzlement in 1938. As Douglas exclaimed at this stroke of good fortune, quote, the stock exchange was delivered into my hands, end quote. Douglas cunningly used the Whitney crisis, coming on top of widespread denunciations of short sellers allegedly causing a stock collapse during the 1938 recession, to complete the anti-Morgan and cartelizing coup at the New York Stock Exchange. William McChesney Martin was named head of the exchange in a new, full-time salaried post as president and Douglas Ann Martin proceeded to conduct what Professor McGraw correctly terms a, quote, carefully orchestrated series of negotiations to hammer out a new cooperative SEC stock exchange structure. Both men used time-honored tactics, Douglas employing severe pressure to force his desired changes, Martin pretending to oppose those changes, but, quote, raising the specter of direct SEC intervention to persuade his recalcitrant colleagues to accept the new system, end quote. In the end, both men effected a cartelizing revolution, achieving their common goals. As McGraw concludes, quote, Again, the SEC had used the circumstances of an evanescent crisis to work permanent change, insisting all the while that the exchange itself propose and adopt the new rules as its own, end quote. The New Dealers completed their financial revolution as well as their successful multi-pronged assault against the Morgans with their most implacably radical piece of legislation, the Public Utility Holding Act of August 1935. Urged on by Roosevelt himself, the administration insisted on driving through the drastic, quote, death sentence clause, abolishing all holding company systems in the public utility industry. By 1932, the public utility industry, formerly mired in separate locations, 
had been producing almost 50% of its output in three efficient nationwide holding companies. One was Samuel Insull's independent Chicago-based utility empire, which collapsed with Insull fleeing to Europe in mid-1932. The other two were Morgan-oriented combines, J.P. Morgan's directly controlled United Corporation and General Electric's bond and share company, General Electric being from its inception in the Morgan ambit. For seven years until 1935, the Federal Trade Commission engaged in massive assaults on the utility holding companies, and Pecora did his snarling best with a retrospective series of blasts against Insul. Finally, Roosevelt set up a National Power Policy Committee in the summer of 1934 to draft legislation abolishing utility holding companies. Arch New Dealer, Interior Secretary Harold Ikes, was chairman of this committee, and general counsel was Benjamin V. Cohen, who drafted the fateful Public Utility Holding Act, or PUHA, a measure so radical that Joseph Kennedy felt he had to resign as chairman of the SEC. The public utility holding companies, led by the Morgans, waged a long, ferocious, political, and constitutional battle against the PUHA. It was led by the Edison Electric Institute, the lobbying organization for the public utilities, and by its general counsel, longtime Morgan attorney, and personal friend of Morgan's, John W. Davis. Also assisting the opposition effort was Wendell L. Wilkie, head of the Commonwealth and Southern Corporation, a subsidiary of Morgan's United Corporation. Davis thundered that the act was, quote, vicious, the last word in federal tyranny, the gravest threat to the liberties of the American citizen that has emanated from the halls of Congress in my lifetime, end quote. But all to no avail, as in 1938 the Supreme Court, tamed and denatured by the New Deal, upheld the constitutionality of the Public Utilities Holding Company. Mariner S. Eccles and the Banking Act of 1935 The saga of Mariner Stoddard Eccles has been told many times, not only by his adoring biographer, but also by numerous historians of the New Deal. How Mariner Eccles, young, multimillionaire head of a Western banking and construction empire, had been led by the Depression and by his reading of Foster and Catchings to rethink his previous laissez-faire views and to arrive, virtually on his own and therefore almost miraculously, at proto-Keynesian conclusions. How he came to impress the New Dealers and was called first to the Treasury and then soon became the radical New Deal head of the Federal Reserve Board and of the entire Federal Reserve System, to remain chairman of the board until after World War II. In truth, rediscovering ancient economic fallacies hardly qualifies as a notable achievement. Eccles read Foster and Catchings in early 1931 and adopted wholesale their view of underconsumption as cause of the Depression and government deficit spending and stimulation of consumption as the way to recovery. Any intellectual acumen on Eccles's part would, on the contrary, have led him to realize that Foster and Catchings were writing during the boom of the 1920s, and would have led him to wonder what accounted for the sudden change from boom to depression, 
a change that can scarcely be explained by an alleged state of permanent underconsumption. Under the influence and assistance of proto-monetarist and radical New Dealer Lachlan Curry, Eckley soon added governmental monetary inflation to his armamentarium to make him a comprehensive inflationist and macro-New Dealer. Given such influences, it was easy to become a, quote, Keynesian slightly before Keynes's time. Moreover, it was doubtful that Mariner Eccles's conversion to statism was purely intellectual. Mariner was the son of David Eccles, who, as a penniless lad and Mormon convert, had emigrated from Glasgow to Utah, there to build up one of the largest fortunes in the West. Most of David's fortune was in banking and sugar manufacturing. When David died in 1912, Mariner, at age 22, managed to elbow aside competing Morgan families of David's and assume control of his father's empire. By the early 1930s, Mariner had expanded the business empire greatly, a business empire centered in a network of bank-holding companies throughout the West, and also including milk production and construction as well as sugar. Mariner Eccles's empire was centered in his bank-holding company, the First Security Corporation, and indeed, Mariner had pioneered in forming such holding companies and banking. Eccles's conversion away from free markets was, indeed, micro as well as macro. As head of the important amalgamated sugar company, Eccles led a vigorous effort to cartelize the sugar industry and to unite all sugar producers, foreign and domestic, in an allotment plan to form rigorous maximum production quotas for each firm. Furthermore, as a large banker in a shaky banking environment, Eccles was understandably eager to push for federal guarantees of bank deposits, legislation that redounded to his direct benefit. From the failure of the voluntary sugar cartel, it was an easy step for Eccles to advocate a compulsory cartel plan for all of agriculture, essentially the Agricultural Adjustment Administration's domestic allotment plan for the federal government to compel restriction of agricultural production in order to raise farm prices. It was also an easy step for Eccles to weave together his banking and sugar interests to advocate the federal government's subsidy of farm mortgages, mortgages which of course had been and would continue to be purchased by Eccles's savings banks. There was another personal economic reason for Eccles to suddenly look benignly on massive federal public works spending. In 1930, President Hoover decided to build the Mammoth Boulder Dam, which became one of the major public works projects of the early Depression years. One of the major construction companies in the consortium that built the dam was Utah Construction, with Eccles putting up much of the capital and personally present at the San Francisco meeting where the consortium was formed. By the time of his appearance at the Senate Finance Committee hearings at the end of February 1933, in testimony that would win him great notoriety, Eccles had worked out a complete collectivist program, not only for macro deficits, public works, and unemployment relief, not only for guaranteed bank deposits, and not only for taxing the rich and subsidizing the poor, but also a plea for agricultural cartels, for federal agencies which would have to approve all new capital issues and all, quote, means of transportation and all means of communication to ensure their operation in the public interest, end quote, and, as a topper, quote, 
a national planning board to coordinate public and private economic activities. End quote. What was unusual about Eccles was not that he was a big businessman who had opted for collectivism. He was only one of many in this era, but that he was willing and eager to move to Washington to carry out these programs personally. Eccles had another personal economic and intellectual interest in serving in Washington in money and banking. Like the Bank of America's A.P. Giannini, Eccles was a Western outsider to the Morgan-dominated Federal Reserve System of the 1920s, and he had conceived a bitter hatred of the Morgan Empire, as well as a crusading desire to transform American banking by shifting power in the Fed, once and for all, from the Morgan and Wall Street-dominated New York Federal Reserve Board to a non-Morgan, politically appointed Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Two channels have been charted for the way that Eccles' views became known to the New Dealers. Robert Hinckley, an old friend of Eccles and nephew of Senator William King, Democrat from Utah, and another young man, Dean Brimall, a brother-in-law of Eccles, had formed a bi-monthly discussion club in Utah called the Frydenkers. On hearing of Eccles' new views, the Frydenkers became Eccles' disciples, and Hinckley used Senator King's influence to get Eccles a hearing at the Senate Finance Committee. Also, Mariner was a regent of the University of Utah, and when radical New Dealer Stuart Chase spoke at the Chautauqua Lecture Series at the university, he was impressed with Eccles' views. Another overlooked influence on the New Dealers is the fact that George Dern, Roosevelt's Secretary of War and former Governor of Utah, was a financial subaltern of Eccles's being a director of two Salt Lake City banks, both part of Eccles' first security corporation holding company. After a year, in February 1934, Eccles came to Washington as special assistant on monetary and credit matters to Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau. Eccles found himself frustrated at Treasury, however, since Morgenthau had old-fashioned, pro-balanced budget views. Morgenthau was heavily under the influence of Lewis W. Douglas, still in the administration as head of the Bureau of Budget, then in the Treasury Department, and of Undersecretary of the Treasury T. Jefferson Coolidge, of the Morgan-allied financial family in Boston, who had been placed in his spot on the urging of George Harrison. But Eccles did not waste his months at the Treasury, finding support and enthusiastic agreement in two young aides, former Fed economist Winfield W. Riefler, and Lachlan Curry, a young Ph.D. from Harvard. Curry, whose important monetarist work was in the process of being published by Harvard University Press, converted Eccles to the goal of total political control over the money supply and of the alleged necessity for recovery to concentrate on open market operations for rapid inflation of the money supply. In early September 1934, Eccles was asked by administration aides to accept an appointment as governor of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, Eugene Black having resigned to return to Georgia and later to move to the Chase National Bank. Eccles boldly replied that he would only accept the post if at the same time there was a fundamental structural change at the Fed and power was shifted from the New York Fed to the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Following up on this determined stance, Eccles submitted a memorandum to the White House on November 4th, written in collaboration with Eccles' aide and theoretician, Lachlan Curry. 
The memo stressed that the Federal Reserve Board must take full power from the New York Fed, that it must obtain, quote, complete control over the timing, character, and volume of open market purchases and sales of bills and securities by the reserve banks, end quote. Until this point, wrote Eccles and Curry, private banker, quote, interest, as represented by individual reserve bank governors, has prevailed over the public interest, as represented at the Federal Reserve Board, end quote. From now on, the, quote, public interest must prevail. In particular, the Federal Reserve Board must gain complete control over the Open Market Committee, now composed of the 12 governors of the private Federal Reserve Banks. Such changes were necessary, the memo concluded, in order for the Fed to become a genuine, quote, central bank. Although, secure in such new powers, there would be no need to arouse intense political opposition by calling such a step a, quote, central bank. On November 10th, FDR, impressed by the memo and emboldened by his smashing victory over the Republicans in the November 1934 congressional elections, announced the appointment of Mariner Eccles as governor of the Federal Reserve Board, and he was sworn in a week later. At the same time as his appointment was announced and submitted for confirmation to the Senate, the Radical Banking Act of 1935, embodying the Eccles-Curry program, was scheduled to be submitted to Congress. Lined up against Eccles and the new Banking Act were powerful Senator Carter Glass, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and of the crucial subcommittee of the Senate Banking and Currency Committee, as well as Glass's theoretician Professor H. Parker Willis who denounced the Banking Act as the, quote, worst and most dangerous measure that has made its appearance for a long time, end quote. In this particular battle, the opposition was a coalition of former enemies, the Willis-Glass hard-money qualitativists, and the Morgan Empire, spearheaded by George L. Harrison, whose New York Fed stood to lose its dominating power over the banking system. In contrast, Founding monetarist and veteran inflationist Irving Fisher of Yale, spiritual mentor to Milton Friedman, claimed that the banking bill, quote, will represent a great step forward, probably the greatest in the president's administration, end quote. With the fight now underway, Eccles moved quickly to establish his own total control over dissident institutions within the Federal Reserve. He met with the Federal Advisory Council, or FAC, a powerful voice of private bankers within the Federal Reserve. The FAC consisted of one private banker from each of the 12 Federal Reserve districts. Almost always, they were representatives from large metropolitan banks in each district. The occasional publications of the FAC were often presented to the public as if they were the official views of the Federal Reserve Board. Thus, in September, strategically timed for the election, the FAC had publicly called for a balanced federal budget, incensing Eccles and the New Dealers. Eccles now cracked down, ordering the FAC to confine itself to an advisory role and to issue no public statements without first submitting the recommendations to the Federal Reserve Board and notifying it in advance of any public pronouncement. The Federal Advisory Council promptly knuckled under. Eccles then moved to completely control any legislative recommendations to emerge from the Federal Reserve System. He abolished the Fed's Committee on Legislative Programs, which had been headed by Harrison, 
and had consisted of only private or regional Fed bankers, with the exception of one representative from the Federal Reserve Board. Eccles then created a new legislative committee, consisting solely of his own appointed professional staff. In addition to Eccles himself, members were Chester Morrill, Federal Reserve Board Secretary, Walter Wyatt, the Board's General Counsel, Emmanuel Goldenweiser, Director of the Fed's Division of Research and Statistics, and Lachlan Curry, the division's new assistant director. The committee was charged with drafting a new banking act. The committee draft would then go to a subcommittee on banking legislation of the administration's Interdepartmental Loan Committee, chaired by Secretary Morgenthau and consisting of the heads of Federal Advisory Council and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, and the Comptroller of the Currency, as well as several representatives of the Treasury. To gain support from the Treasury and other administration figures, as well as from Congress and the nation's bankers, FDR devised a cunning strategy. He would present Eccles' radical reform as Title II of the new Banking Act, sandwiched in between two reforms the bankers desperately wanted. Title I, liberalizing assessment on banks for deposit insurance, a pet reform of FDIC head Leo T. Crowley, and Title III, which granted bankers a grace period beyond the statutory July 1, 1935, imposed by the Banking Act of 1933, before they had to repay loans granted to them by their own banks. Title III was a favorite project of Comptroller of the Currency J.R.T. O'Connor. It was no accident that both Crowley and O'Connor were members of the decisive Interdepartmental Loan Subcommittee. While both Crowley and O'Connor fought to present their own bills separately from Eccles's, Morgenthau went along with Roosevelt's strategy and with Eccles's reforms, the Banking Act being hammered through the committee quickly and submitted to Congress on February 5th. In Congress, Eccles's nomination sailed through, with struggles concentrated on the Banking Act. In the hearings, particularly interesting in opposition was James P. Warburg of Kuhn Leb and chairman of the board of Kuhn Leb Run Bank of Manhattan. Warburg, who as an old line banker had been allied with the Morgans at the London Economic Conference, denounced the banking bill as, quote, curried canes. In the course of the controversy, the highly influential New York Times and the Washington Post, owned and directed by Eugene Meyer, changed their initial opposition to support for the bill. Essentially, Eccles won almost all of his points. The shift of banking control from Morgan's New York Fed to the non-Morgan Washington politicians had been completed. In the Senate, Eccles only had to make one important concession to Glass. Instead of the Federal Open Market Committee, consisting solely of the governors of the Federal Reserve Board, it would be instead comprised of the seven members of the Federal Reserve Board, plus five rotating representatives of the Federal Reserve Banks. In practice, their presidents, and hence of private bankers. But despite this compromise, the decisive act had taken place. Open market policy would be initiated in, dominated by, and enforced by the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Actual open market operations would be carried out, most conveniently, in New York, but strictly under the orders of the Federal Reserve Board-dominated FOMC. Individual Federal Reserve Banks in practice, the New York Fed, were prohibited from buying or selling government securities for their own account, 
except under the direction or with the explicit permission of the FOMC. To further reduce the power of the Federal Reserve Banks, it was explicitly provided that the bank-elected members of the FOMC were not to serve in any way as agents of the banks that elected them. Indeed, the banks were not to know what was going to happen, but only to have a chance to be heard through an advisory committee. Indeed, the bank presidents serving on the FOMC were not even allowed to divulge actions taken at FOMC meetings to their own board of directors. Harrison fought unsuccessfully against this provision, and in a last-ditch and finally failing battle in 1937, Harrison tried to get the FOMC to allow reserve banks to conduct open market operations on their own in case of individual bank emergencies. In addition, the Federal Reserve Board was given veto power over the election of the president and first vice president of each district Federal Reserve Bank. And, in a symbolic gesture, all district-fed, quote, governors, the hoary name for heads of central banks, were demoted to, quote, presidents, whereas the old, quote, members of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington were upgraded to governors, while the previous governor of the Federal Reserve Board now became the board's august, quote, chairman of the Board of Governors. Furthermore, cementing Chairman Eccles's power within Washington, the Treasury Secretary and the Comptroller of the Currency were both removed as ex officio members of the Federal Reserve Board. Finally, the last shred of qualitativist restraint upon the Fed's expansion of credit was removed, as bank assets deemed eligible for Fed rediscounting were broadened totally to include any paper whatever deemed, quote, satisfactory by the Fed. That is, any assets the Fed wished to declare eligible. The Banking Act of 1935 was important for being the final settled piece of New Deal banking legislation that consolidated all the revolutionary changes from the beginning of the Roosevelt administration. The Morgans tried desperately, for example, to alter the 1933 Glass-Steagall provision, compelling the separation of commercial and investment banking, but this reversion was successfully blocked by Winthrop Aldrich. Specifically, Senator Glass's amendment to the Banking Act of 1935, restoring limited securities power to deposit banks, was able to reach the Congressional Conference Committee. For a while, it looked like this Morgan maneuver would succeed, but, presumably at the behest of Aldrich, however, FDR personally interceded with the committee to kill the Glass Amendment. For his part, Aldrich, as a Wall Street banker himself, was not very happy about the permanent shift of power from Wall Street to Washington, but he was content to go along with the overall result as part of the anti-Morgan coalition with Western banking. The centralization of power over the banking system in Washington was now complete. It is no wonder that the irrepressible H. Parker Willis, writing the following year, lamented the centralized monetary and banking tyranny that the Federal Reserve had become. Willis wisely perceived that the course of inflationary centralization, to have begun in the 1920s, as Morgan control in the hands of the New York Fed, and now, with the New Deal, was immeasurably accelerated and shifted to Washington. Quote, the Eccles Group, which advocated the Act of 1935, sought to obtain for themselves those powers which the more ambitious of the banking clique in New York and elsewhere 
had already arrogated to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and to the small group by which the institution was practically directed, the House of Morgan. There was no change in the conception or notion of centralization, but only in the agency or personnel through which such centralization should be put into effect. End quote. The New Deal, Willis went on, had passed various allegedly temporary and emergency measures in its first three years, which were now permanently consolidated into the Banking Act of 1935, and thus, quote, was built up perhaps the most highly centralized and irresponsible financial and banking machine of which the modern world holds record, end quote. The result, Willis pointed out, was that the years of, quote, tremendous deficit from 1931 on were marked by a process of, quote, gradually diverting the funds and savings of the community to the support of governmentally directed enterprises, end quote. It was, quote, an extraordinary development, an extreme application of central banking, which brought the system of the United States to a condition of even higher concentration, end quote, than in other countries. Willis ominously and prophetically concluded, quote, Today, the United States thus stands out as a nation of despotically controlled central banking, one in which, as all now admit, moreover, business paper of every kind is gradually taking the form of government paper, which is then financed through a governmentally controlled central banking organization. End quote. Epilogue Return of the Morgans It is well not to cry for the Morgans. Though permanently dethroned by the New Deal, they were able to make a comeback by the late 1930s. The great thrust for economic nationalism had subsided, and the Morgans were able to begin to work again for stabilization of exchange rates. In the fall of 1936, the United States entered into a tripartite agreement with Great Britain and France, the three countries agreeing, not exactly on fixed exchange rates, but on maneuvering to support each other's exchanges at least within any given 24-hour period. Soon, the agreement, which was to last until World War II, was expanded to include Belgium, Holland, and Switzerland. As the nations moved toward World War II, the Morgans, who had long been closely connected with Britain and France, rose in importance in American foreign policy, while the Rockefellers, who had little connection with Britain and France and had patent agreements with I.G. Farben in Germany, fell in relative strength. Secretary of State Cordell Hall, a close, longtime friend of FDR's roving ambassador and Morgan man Norman H. Davis, took the lead in exerting pressure against Germany for its bilateral rather than multilateral trade agreements and for its exchange controls, all put in place to defend a chronically overvalued mark. As the United States prepared to enter World War II, it made its economic war aims brutally simple, the ending of the economic and monetary nationalism of the 1930s, and their replacement by a new international economic order based upon the dollar instead of the pound. In the trade area, this meant vigorous U.S. promotion of exports and the reduction of tariffs and quotas against American products, the so-called, quote, open door for American commerce and investments. And in the monetary sphere, 
It meant the breakup of national currency blocks and the restoration of multilateral exchanges with fixed parities based upon the dollar. Even as the United States prepared to enter the war to save Britain, its continuing conflict with the British proclivity for exchange controls and an imperial preference block remained unsolved. The resolution of the problem came after lengthy negotiations throughout World War II, culminating in the Bretton Woods Agreement in July 1944. Basically, the agreement was a compromise in which the United States won the main point, a new, multilateral world of fixed exchange rates of currencies based on the dollar, while the Americans accepted the British Keynesian insistence on jointly promoting permanent inflationary policies to ensure, quote, full employment. The United States had achieved the objective expressed by Secretary Morgenthau, quote, to move the financial center of the world from London to the United States Treasury, end quote. It is no wonder that, in January 1945, Lamar Fleming Jr., president of Anderson, Clayton & Company, the world's largest cotton export brokers, could write to his longtime colleague and boss, William L. Clayton, that the, quote, British empire and British international influence is a myth already, end quote. The United States would soon become the protector of Britain against the emerging Russian landmass, prophesies Fleming, and this would mean, quote, the absorption into the American empire of the parts of the British empire which we will be willing to accept, end quote. The dominant role in the critical wartime negotiations leading up to Bretton Woods was played not by the State Department, but secretly by the Council of Foreign Relations, or CFR, a highly influential organization of businessmen and experts set up by the Morgans after World War I to promote an internationalist foreign political and economic policy. Private study groups set up by the CFR intermeshed and virtually dictated to parallel study groups established by the sometimes reluctant Department of State. President of the CFR from 1936 until 1944 and director of this effort was none other than Norman Davis, longtime Morgan affiliate and disciple of Morgan partner Henry P. Davison. The Morgans, indeed, were back. During the war, Many Morgan-oriented men who had strongly opposed the economic nationalism of the early New Deal happily came back to help run the World War II and post-war version of the new era. Louis W. Douglas, Dean Acheson, who had left the New Deal because of its radical monetary measures, was back as Assistant Secretary of State for Monetary Affairs. Acheson's mentor, Henry L. Stimson, was Secretary of War, and Stimson's other disciple, John J. McCloy, in effect ran the war effort as his deputy secretary. And when the Aileen Cordell Hull retired in late 1944, he was replaced as Secretary of State by Edward Statinius, son of a Morgan partner and himself former president of Morgan-dominated United States Steel. After World War II, the Morgans were content to slide into a new role as junior partner to the Rockefellers. The new prominence of oil made the Rockefellers the dominant force in the political and financial Eastern establishment. The Rockefellers assumed control of the Council of Foreign Relations, the entire shift being neatly symbolized by the new, post-war role of John J. McCloy, 
who was to serve as chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations, of the Rockefeller Foundation, and of the Rockefeller flagship bank, the Chase National Bank. The old verities and financial group conflicts of the pre-World War II era had disappeared and had been transformed into a new world. Part 4. The Gold Exchange Standard in the Interwar Years Great Britain emerged victorious from its travail in World War I, but its economy, and particularly its currency, lay in shambles. All the warring countries had financed their massive four-year war effort by monetizing their deficits, most of them doubling, tripling, or quadrupling their money supply, with equivalent impacts upon their prices. The massive influx of government paper money forced these warring governments to go rapidly off the gold standard. The currencies depreciated in terms of gold, but the depreciation was masked by a network of exchange controls that marked the collectivized economies during World War I. Only the United States, which entered the war two and a half years after the other countries and hence inflated its currency less, managed to remain de jure on its pre-war gold standard. De facto, however, the U.S. barred export of gold during the war, and so was effectively off gold during that period. In March 1919, when foreign exchange markets became free once more, the bad news became evident. While the dollar, again de facto as well as de jure on gold, remained at its pre-war par, approximately one-twentieth of a gold ounce. European fiat paper currencies were sadly depreciated. The once mighty pound sterling, traditionally at approximately $4.86, now sold at approximately $3.50, and at one point, in February 1920, was down to $3.20. Here was a 30 to 35% depreciation from its pre-war par. Thus, wartime and post-war Europe was thrown into a cauldron of inflation, depreciation, exchange rate volatility, and the menace of warring currency blocks. For the first time since the Napoleonic Wars, the world lacked an international money, a medium of exchange that could be used throughout the world, and lacked the international harmony, the monetary stability and calculability that a world money could generate. Europe and the world were plunged into the chaos of an international, moneyless, or barter system. All the countries, therefore, looked back with understandable nostalgia at the relative Eden that had existed before the Great War. The Classical Gold Standard The 19th century monetary system has been referred to as the, quote, classical gold standard. It has become fashionable among economists to denigrate that system as only existent in the last decades of the 19th century and as simply a form of pound-sterling standard since London was the great financial center during this period. This disparagement of gold, however, is faulty and misleading. It is true that London was the major financial center in that period, but the world was scarcely on a pound standard. Active competition from other financial centers, Berlin, Paris, Amsterdam, Brussels, New York, ensured that gold was truly the only standard money throughout the world. Furthermore, to stress only the few decades before 1914 as the age of the gold standard 
ignores the fact that gold and silver have been the world's two monetary metals from time immemorial. Countries shifted to and from freely fluctuating parallel gold and silver standards in attempts, self-defeating in the long run, to fix the rate of exchange between the two metals. Quote, bimetallism. The fact that countries stampeded from silver and toward gold monometallism in the late 19th century should not obscure the fact that gold and silver, for centuries, were the world's monies, and that previous paper money experiments, the longest during the Napoleonic Wars, were considered to be both ephemeral and disastrously inflationary. Species standards, whether gold or silver, have been virtually coextensive with the history of civilization. Apart from a few calamitous experiments, such as John Law's Mississippi Bubble and the South Sea Bubble in the 1710s, and apart from the generation-long experience in Britain during the Napoleonic War, until the 20th century, specie, rather than paper, had always been the standard money. In the classical gold standard, every nation's currency was defined as a unit of weight of gold, and therefore the paper currency was redeemable by its issuer, the government or its central bank, in the defined weight of gold coin, while gold bullion, in the form of large bars, was used for international payments, gold coin was used in everyday transactions by the general public. For obvious reasons, it is the inherent tendency of every money issuer to create as much money as it can get away with, but governments or central banks were, on the gold standard, restricted in their issue of paper or bank deposits by the iron necessity of immediate redemption in gold, and particularly in gold coin, on demand. As in the familiar Hume-Cantillon International Price Specie Flow Mechanism, an increase of banknotes or deposits in a country beyond its gold stock increases the supply of money, say francs in France. The increase of the supply of francs and incomes in francs leads to a. an increase in both domestic and foreign spending, hence raising imports, and b. a rise in domestic French prices, in turn making domestic goods less competitive abroad and lowering exports, and making foreign goods more attractive and raising imports. The result is an inexorable deficit in the balance of payments, putting pressure upon French banks to supply gold to English, American, or Dutch exporters. In short, since in fractional reserve banking, paper and bank notes pyramid as a multiple of gold reserves, this expansion of the already engorged top of the inverted pyramid must inexorably be followed by a loss in the bottom, supporting the swollen liabilities. In addition, Clients who are holders of French banknotes or deposits are apt to become increasingly concerned, lose confidence in the viability of the French banks, and hence call on those banks to redeem in gold, putting those banks at risk for a devastating bank run. The result will be an often panicky and sudden contraction of banknotes, generating a recession to replace the previous inflationary boom and leading to a contraction in notes and deposits, a drop in the French money supply, and a consequent fall in domestic French prices. The balance of payments deficit is reversed, and gold flows back into French coffers. In short, 
The classical gold standard put a severe limit upon the inherent tendency of monopoly money issuers to issue money without check. As Ludwig von Mises pointed out, this international specie flow mechanism also described a correct, if primitive, model of the business cycle. While central banking and fractional reserve banking allowed play for a boom-bust cycle, the inflationary boom and its compensating bust was kept in strict bounds. While scarcely perfect or lacking problems, the classical gold standard worked well enough for the world, after World War I, to look back upon it with understandable nostalgia. Britain Faces the Post-War World At the end of World War I, only the United States dollar remained on the old gold coin standard, at the one-twentieth of an ounce par. The other powers suffered from national fiat currencies. Suddenly, their currencies were no longer units of weight of gold, but independent names, such as the pound, franc, mark, etc., their rates depreciating in relation to gold and volatile with respect to one another. Except for mavericks such as Cambridge's John Maynard Keynes, it was generally agreed that this system was intolerable, and that a way must be found to reconstruct a world monetary order, including restoration of world money and medium of exchange. At the heart of the European monetary crisis was Great Britain, which would take the lead in trying to solve the problem. In the first place, London had been the major pre-war financial center, and second, Britain dominated the post-war League of Nations, and in particular, its powerful economic and financial committee. Furthermore, though inflated and depreciated, the British pound was still in far better shape than the other major currencies of Europe. Thus, while the pound sterling in February 1920 was depreciated by 35% compared to its 1914 gold par, the French franc was depreciated by 64%, the Belgian franc by 62%, the Italian lira by 71%, and the German mark in terrible shape by 96%. It was clear that Britain was in a position to guide the world to a new post-war monetary order and it eagerly took up what turned out to be the last remnants of its old imperial task. The British understandably decided that the fluctuating fiat money system inherited from the war was intolerable, and that it was vital to return to a sound international money, the gold standard. However, at the same time, they also decided that they would have to return to gold at the old pre-war par of $4.86. Apparently, few, if any, economists or statesmen at the time argued for cutting British losses, starting with the real world as it existed in the early 1920s, facing reality, and going back to gold at the realistic, depreciated $3.20 or $3.50 per pound sterling. In view of the enormous difficulties the decision to go back to gold at $4.86 entailed, it is difficult in hindsight to understand why there was so little support for going back at a realistic par or why there was so much drive to go back at the old one. For going back to a pound 30 to 35 percent above the market rate meant that English exports, upon which the country depended to finance its imports, 
were now priced far above their competitive price in world markets. Coal, cotton textiles, iron and steel, and shipbuilding in particular, the bulk of the export industries that had generated pre-war prosperity, became permanently depressed in the 1920s, with accompanying heavy unemployment in those industries. In order to avoid export depression, Britain would have to have been willing to undergo a substantial monetary and price deflation to make its goods once more competitive in foreign markets. But, in contrast to pre-World War I days, British wage rates had been made rigid downward by powerful trade unionism, and particularly by a massive and extravagant system of national unemployment insurance. Rather than accept a rigorous deflationary policy, therefore, to accompany its return to gold, Britain insisted on just the opposite, a continuation of monetary inflation and a policy of low interest rates and cheap money. Thus, Great Britain, in the post-World War I world, committed itself to a monetary policy based on three rigidly firm but mutually self-contradictory axioms. One, a return to gold. Two, returning at a sharply overvalued pound of $4.86. And three, continuing a policy of inflation and cheap money. Given a program based on such grave inner self-contradiction, the British maneuvered on the world monetary scene with brilliant tactical shrewdness, but it was a policy that was doomed to end in disaster. Why did the British insist on returning to gold at the old, overvalued par? Partly, it was a vain desire to recapture old glories, to bring back the days when London was the world's financial center. The British did not seem to realize fully that the United States had emerged from the war as the great creditor nation, and financially the strongest one, so that financial predominance was inexorably moving to New York or Washington. To recapture their financial predominance, the British believed that they would have to bring back the old, traditional $4.86. Undoubtedly, the British also remembered that after two decades of war against the French Revolution and Napoleon, the pound had quickly recovered from its depreciated state, and the British had been able to restore the pound at its pre-fiat money par. This restoration was made possible by the fact that the post-Napoleonic War pound returned quickly to its pre-war par because of a sharp monetary and price deflation that occurred in the inevitable post-war recession. The British, after World War I, apparently did not realize that a. the restoration of the pre-Napoleonic War par had required a substantial deflation, and b. their newly rigidified war structure could not easily afford or adapt to a deflationary policy. Instead, the British would insist on having their cake and eating it too, on enjoying the benefits of gold at a highly overvalued pound while still continuing to inflate and luxuriate in cheap money. Another reason for returning at $4.86 was a desire by the powerful city of London, the financiers who held much of the public debt swollen during the war, to be repaid in pounds that would be worth their old pre-war value in terms of gold and purchasing power. Since the British were now attempting to support more than twice as much money on top of approximately the same gold base as before the war, 
and the other European countries were suffering from even more inflated currencies. The British and other Europeans complained all during the 1920s of a gold, quote, shortage, or shortage of, quote, liquidity. These complaints reflected a failure to realize that, on the market, a, quote, shortage can only be the consequence of an artificially low price of a good. The, quote, gold shortage of the 20s reflected the artificially low, quote, price of gold. That is, the artificially overvalued rate at which pounds, and many other European currencies, returned to gold in the 1920s, and therefore the arbitrarily low rate at which gold was pegged in terms of those currencies. More particularly, since the pound was pegged at an overvalued rate compared to gold, Britain would tend to suffer in the 1920s from gold flowing out of the country. Or, put another way, the swollen and inflated pounds would, in the classic price-specie-flow mechanism, tend to drive gold out of Britain to pay for a deficit in the balance of payments, an outflow that could put severe contractionary pressure upon the English banking system. But how could Britain, in the post-war world, cleave to these contradictory axioms and yet avoid a disastrous outflow of gold, followed by a banking collapse and monetary contraction. Return to gold at $4.86. The Cunliffe Committee and After Britain's post-war course had already been set during the war. In January 1918, the British Treasury and the Ministry of Reconstruction established the Cunliffe Committee, the Committee on Currency and Foreign Exchanges after the war, headed by the Venerable Walter Lord Cunliffe, retiring governor of the Bank of England. As early as its first interim reports in the summer of 1918, and confirmed by its final report the following year, the Cunliffe Committee called in no uncertain terms for return to the gold standard at the pre-war par. No alternatives were considered. This course was confirmed by the Vosser-Smith Committee on Financial Facilities in 1918, which was composed largely of representatives of industry and commerce, and which endorsed the Cunliffe recommendations. A minority of bankers, including Sir Brian Cockine and incoming Bank of England Governor Montague Norman, argued for an immediate return to gold at the old par, but they were overruled by the majority, led by their economic adviser, the distinguished Cambridge economist and chosen successor to Alfred Marshall's professorial chair, Arthur Cecil Pigou. Pigou argued for postponement of the return, hoping to ease the transition by loans from abroad and, particularly, by inflation in the United States. The hope for U.S. inflation became a continuing theme during the 1920s, since inflated and depreciated Britain was in danger of losing gold to the United States, a loss which could be staved off and the new 1920 system sustained by inflation in the United States. After exchange controls and most other wartime controls were lifted at the end of 1919, Britain, not knowing precisely when to return to gold, passed the Gold and Silver Export Embargo Act in 1920 for a five-year period, in effect continuing a fiat paper standard until the end of 1925, with an announced intention of returning to gold at that time. 
Britain was committed to doing something about gold in 1925. The United States and Great Britain both experienced a traditional immediate post-war boom, continuing the wartime inflation in 1919 and 1920, followed by a severe corrective recession and deflation in 1921. The English deflation did not suffice to correct the overvaluation of the pound, since the United States, now the strongest country on gold, had deflated as well. The fact that sterling began to appreciate to the old par during 1924 misled the British into thinking that the pound would not be overvalued at $4.86. Actually, the appreciation was the result of speculators betting on a nearly sure thing, the return to gold during 1925 of the pound at the old $4.86 par. A crucial point. While prices and wage rates rose together in England during the wartime and post-war inflationary boom, they scarcely fell together. When commodity prices fell sharply in England in 1920 and 1921, wages fell much less, remaining high above pre-war levels. This rise in real wage rates, bringing about high and chronic unemployment, reflected the severe downward wage rigidity in Britain after the war, caused by the spread of trade unionism and particularly by the massive new unemployment insurance program. The condition of the English economy, in particular the high rate of unemployment and depression of the export industries during the 1922-1924 recovery from the post-war recession, should have given the British pause. From 1851 to 1914, the unemployment rate in Great Britain had hovered consistently around 3%. During the boom of 1919 to 1920%, it was 2.4%. Yet, during the post-war, quote, recovery, British unemployment ranged between 9 and 15%. It should have been clear that something was very wrong. It is no accident that the high unemployment was concentrated in the British export industries. Compared to the pre-war year of 1913, most of the domestic economy in Britain was in fairly good shape in 1924. Setting 1913 as equal to 100, real gross domestic product was 92 in 1924, consumer expenditure was 100, construction was 114, and gross fixed investment was a robust 132. But while real imports were 100 in 1924, real exports were in sickly shape at only 72. Or, in monetary terms, British imports were 111 in 1924, whereas British exports were only 80. In contrast, world exports were 107 as compared to 1913. The sickness of British exports may be seen in the fate of the traditional major export industries during the 1920s. Compared to 1913, Iron and steel exports in 1924 were 77.5, cotton textile exports were 65, coal exports were 80, and shipbuilding exports a disastrous 35. Consequently, Britain was now in debt to such strong countries as the United States, while a creditor to such financially weak countries as France, Russia, and Italy. It should be clear that the export industries suffered particularly from depression because of the impact of the overvalued pound. 
and that, furthermore, the depression took the form of permanently high unemployment, even in the midst of a general recovery, because wage rates were kept rigidly downward by trade unions, and especially by the massive system of unemployment insurance. There were several anomalies and paradoxes in the conflicts and discussions over the Cunliffe Committee recommendations from 1918 until the actual return to gold in 1925. The critics of the committee were generally discredited for being ardent inflationists as well as opponents of the old par. These forces included J.M. Keynes, the Federation of British Industries, the Powerful Trade Association, and Sir Reginald McKenna, a wartime chancellor of the Exchequer, and after the war, head of the huge Midland Bank. And yet, most of these inflationists and anti-deflationists, with the exception of Keynes and of W. Peter Rylands, Federation of British Industries president in 1921, were willing to go along with return at the pre-war par. This put the critics of deflation and proponents of cheap money in the curiously anomalous position of being willing to accept return to an overvalued pound, while combating the logic of that pound, namely deflation, in order to attain English exports competitive in world markets. Thus, McKenna, who positively desired a policy of domestic inflation and cheap money, and cared little for exchange rate stability or gold, was willing to go along with the return to gold at $4.86. The Federation of British Industries, which recognized the increasing rigidity of wage costs, was fearful of deflation, and its 1921 president, Peter Rylands, argued forcefully that stability of exchange, quote, is of far greater importance than the reestablishment of any pre-war ratio, end quote and went so far as to advocate a return at the far more sensible rates of $4 to the pound. Quote, We have got accustomed to a relationship of about $4 to the pound, and I feel that the interests of the manufacturers would be best served if it could, by some means, be fixed at $4 to the pound and remain there for all time. End quote. But apart from Rylands, the other anti-deflationists were willing to go along with the pre-war par. Why? The influential journal, The Roundtable, one of their number, noted the anomaly. Quote, While there is a very large body of opinion which wants to see the pound sterling again at par with gold, there are very few, so far as we know, who publicly advocates in order to secure such a result an actively deflationary policy at this particular moment, leading to a further fall in prices. End quote. There are several solutions to this puzzle, all centering around the view that deflationary adjustments from a return to the pre-war par would be insignificant. In the first place, there was a confident expectation, echoing the original view of Pigou, that price inflation in the United States would set things right and validate the $4.86 a pound. This was the argument used on behalf of $4.86 by the Round Table, by McKenna, and by his fellow dissident banker, F.C. Goodenough, chairman of Barclays Bank. A second reason we have already alluded to, 
The inevitable rise in sterling to par as the return date approached misled many people into believing that the market action was justifying the choice of rate. But a third reason for optimism particularly needs exploring, that the British were subtly but crucially changing the rules of the game and returning to a very different and far weaker, quote, gold standard than had existed before the war. When the British government made its final decision to return to gold at $4.86 in the spring of 1925, Colonel F.V. Willey, head of the Federation of British Industries, was one of the few to register a perceptive warning note. Quote, The announcement made today will rapidly bring the pound to parity with the dollar and will increase the present difficulties of our export trade which is already suffering from a greater rise in the value of the pound than is justified by the relative level of sterling in gold prices. End quote. The way was paved for the final decision to return to gold by the Committee on Currency and Bank of England note issues, appointed by Chancellor of the Exchequer Philip Snowden on May 5, 1924, at the suggestion of influential British Treasury official Sir Otto Niemeyer. The committee, known as the Chamberlain-Bradbury Committee, was co-chaired by former Chancellor Sir Austin Chamberlain and by Sir John Bradbury, a former member of the old Cunliffe Committee. Also on the new committee were Niemeyer and Professor Pigou of the Cunliffe Group. We have a full account of the testimony before the Chamberlain-Bradbury Committee and of the arguments used to induce Chancellor of the Exchequer Churchill to go back to gold the following year. It is clear from those accounts that the dominant theme was that deflation and export depression could be avoided because of expected rising prices in the United States, which would restore the British export position and avoid an outflow of gold from Britain to the United States. Thus, Sir Charles Addis, a member of the old Cunliffe Committee, a director of the Bank of England, and the director upon whom Bank Governor Montague Norman relied most for advice, called for a return to gold during 1925. Addis welcomed any deflation as a necessary sacrifice in order to restore London as the world's financial center, but he expected a rise in prices in the United States. After listening to a great deal of testimony, the committee leaned toward recommending not a return to gold, but waiting until 1925 so as to allow American prices to rise. Bradbury wrote to Gaspard Ferrer, a director of Barclays and a member of the Cunliffe Committee, that waiting a bit would be preferred. Quote, Odds are that within the comparatively near future, America will allow gold to depreciate to the value of sterling. End quote. In early September 1924, Begu stepped in again, reworking an early draft by the committee secretary to make his economists' report. Begu once more asserted that an increase in U.S. prices was likely, thereby easing the path toward restoration of gold at $4.86 with little needed deflation. Acting on Pigou's recommendation, the Chamberlain-Bradbury Committee, in its draft report in October, urged a return to $4.86 at the end of 1925. 
expecting that the alleged gap of 10 to 12 percent in American and British price levels would be made up in the interim by a rise in American prices. Even influential Treasury official Ralph Hawtrey, a friend and fellow Cambridge apostle of Keynes, an equally ardent inflationist and critic of gold, and chief architect of the European Gold Exchange Standard of the 1920s, favored a return to gold at $4.86 in 1925. He differed in this conclusion from Keynes because he confidently expected a rise in American prices to bear the brunt of the adjustment. The British Labour government fell in early October 1924, and the general election in late October swept a conservative government into power. After carefully listening to Keynes, McKenna, and other critics, and after holding a now-famous dinner party of the major advocates on March 17th, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Winston Churchill, made the final decision to go back to gold on March 20th, announcing and passing a Gold Standard Act, returning to gold at $4.86 on April 28th, and putting the new gold standard into effect immediately. It cannot be stressed too strongly that the British decision to return to gold at $4.86 was not made in ignorance of deflationary problems or export depression, but rather in the strong and confident expectation of imminent American inflation. This dominant expectation was clear from the assurances of Sir John Bradbury to Churchill, from the anticipation of even such cautious men as Sir Otto Niemeyer and Montague Norman, from the optimism of Ralph Hawtrey, and above all in the official Treasury Memorandum attached to the Gold Standard Act of 1925. American Support for the Return to Gold at $4.86 The Morgan Connection Why were the British so confident that American prices would rise sufficiently to support their return to gold at the overinflated $4.86? Because of the power of the new United States Central Bank, the Federal Reserve System, installed in 1914, and because of the close and friendly relationship between the British government, its Bank of England, and the Federal Reserve. The Fed, they were sure, would do what was necessary to help Britain reconstruct the world monetary order. To understand these expectations, we must explore the Federal Reserve-Bank of England connection, and particularly the crucial tie that bound them together, their mutual relationship with the House of Morgan. The powerful J.P. Morgan and company took the lead in planning, drafting the legislation, and mobilizing the agitation for the Federal Reserve System that brought the dubious benefits of central banking to the United States in 1914. The purpose of the Federal Reserve was to cartelize the nation's banking system and to enable the banks to inflate together, centralizing and economizing reserves with the Federal Reserve as, quote, lender of last resort. The Federal Reserve's new monopoly of note issue took the de facto place of gold as the nation's currency. Not only were the majority of Federal Reserve Board directors in the Morgan orbit, but the man who was able to become the virtually absolute ruler of the Fed from its inception to his death in 1928, Benjamin Strong, was a man who had spent his entire working life as a leading Morgan banker. 
Benjamin Strong was a protege of the most powerful of the partners of the House of Morgan, after Morgan himself, Henry, quote, Harry Pomeroy Davison. Strong was also a neighbor and close friend of Davison and of two other top Morgan partners in the then-wealthy New York suburb of Englewood, New Jersey, Dwight Morrow and Thomas W. Lamont. In 1904, Davison offered Strong the post of secretary of the new Morgan-created Bankers Trust Company, designed to compete in the burgeoning trust business. So close were Davison and Strong that, when Strong's wife committed suicide after childbirth, Davison took the three surviving Strong children into his home. Strong later married the daughter of the president of Bankers Trust and rose quickly to the posts of vice president and finally president. So highly trusted was Strong in the Morgan circle that he was brought in to be J. Pierpont Morgan's personal auditor during the Panic of 1907. When Strong was offered the crucial post of governor of the New York Fed in the new Federal Reserve System, Strong, at first reluctant, was convinced by Davison that he could run the Fed as, quote, a real central bank run from New York, end quote. The House of Morgan had always enjoyed strong connections with England. The original Morgan banker, J. Pierpont Morgan's father, Junius, had been a banker in England, and the Morgan's London branch, Morgan, Grenfell & Company, was headed by the powerful Edward C. Quote, Teddy Grenfell, later Lord St. Just. Grenfell's father and grandfather had both been directors of the Bank of England, as well as members of Parliament, and Grenfell himself had become a director of the Bank of England in 1904. Assisting Grenfell as leading partner at Morgan Grenfell was Teddy's cousin, Vivian Hugh Smith, later Lord Bychester, a personal friend of J.P. Morgan Jr.'s. Not only was Smith's father a governor of the Bank of England, but he came from the so-called, quote, City Smiths, the most prolific banking family in English history. The Establishment of the New Gold Standard of the 1920s Bullion, Not Coin One of the reasons the British were optimistic that they could succeed in their basic maneuver in the 1920s is that they were not really going back to the gold standard at all. They were attempting to clothe themselves in the prestige of gold, while trying to avoid its anti-inflationary discipline. They went back, not to the classical gold standard, but to a bodlerized and essentially sham version of that venerable standard. In the first place, under the gold standard, the nominal currency, whether issued by governments or bank, was redeemable in gold coin at the defined weight. The fact that people were able to redeem in and use gold for their daily transactions kept a strict check on the overissue of paper. But in the new gold standard, British pounds would not be redeemable in gold coin at all, only in, quote, bullion in the form of bars worth many thousands of pounds. Such a gold standard meant that gold could not be redeemed domestically at all. Bars could hardly circulate for daily transactions so they could only be used by wealthy international traders. The decision of the British cabinet on March 20, 1925, to go back to gold, was explicitly predicated on three conditions. First was the attainment of a $300 million credit line from the United States. Second was that the bank rate would not increase upon announcement of the decision, 
so that there would be no contractionary or anti-inflationary pressure exercised by the Bank of England. And third, and perhaps most important, was that the new standard would be gold bullion and not gold coin. The Chancellor of the Exchequer would persuade the large, quote, clearing banks to, quote, use every effort to discourage the use of gold for internal circulation in this country, end quote. The bankers were warned that if they could not provide satisfactory assurances that they would not redeem in gold coin, quote, it would be necessary to introduce legislation on this point, end quote. The Treasury, in short, wanted to avoid, quote, psychologically unfortunate and controversial legislation, end quote, barring gold redemption within the country, but at the same time wanted to guard against the risk of, quote, internal drain, that is, redemption in the property to which they were entitled from foreign agents, the irresponsible public, or, quote, sound currency fanatics. The bankers, headed by Reginald McKenna, were of course delighted not to have to redeem in gold, but wanted legislation to formalize this desired condition. Finally, the governments and the bankers agreed happily on the following. The bankers would not hold gold, or acquire gold coins or bullion for themselves, or for any customers residing in the United Kingdom. The Treasury, for its part, redrafted its banking report to allow for legislation to prevent any internal redemption if necessary, and, quote, enforce such a ban on the all-too-willing bankers. Under the Gold Standard Act of 1925, then, pounds were convertible into gold, not in coin, but in bars of no less than 400 gold ounces, that is, $1,947. The new gold standard was not even a full gold bullion standard, since there was to be no redemption at all in gold to British residents. Gold bullion was only due to pound holders outside Great Britain. Britain was now only on a, quote, international gold bullion standard. The purpose of redemption in gold bullion only, and only to foreigners, was to take control of the money supply away from the public and place it in the hands of the governments and central bankers, permitting them to pyramid monetary inflation upon gold centralized in their hands. Thus, Norman, when asked by the governor of the Bank of Norway for his advice about returning to gold, urged Norway to return only in gold bars and only for international payments. Norman's reasoning is revealing, quote, in Norway, the convenience of paper currency is appreciated, and confidence in the value of money does not depend upon the existence of gold coin. Demand is rendered more inelastic wherever the principle of gold circulation, for currency or for hoarding, is accepted, and any inelasticity may be dangerous. I do not believe that gold in circulation can safely be regarded as a reserve that can be made available in case of need, and I think that even in times of abundance, hoarding is bad, because it weakens the command of the central bank over the monetary circulation and hence over the purchasing power of the monetary unit. For these reasons, I suggest that your best course would be to establish convertibility of notes into gold bars only and in amounts which will ensure that the use of monetary gold can be limited, in case of need, to the settlements of international balances. End quote. Norway, and indeed all the countries returning to gold, heeded Norman's advice. 
The way was paved for this development by the fact that, during World War I, the European countries had systematically taken gold coins out of circulation and replaced them with paper notes and deposits. During the 1920s, virtually the only country still on the classical gold coin standard was the United States. Despite this tradition, it was still necessary for Monty Norman and the Bank of England to exert considerable pressure to force many European nations to return to gold bullion rather than gold coin. Thus, Dr. William Adams Brown Jr. writes, quote, In some countries, the reluctance to adopt the gold bullion standard was so great that some outside pressure was needed to overcome it. That is, strong representations on the part of the Bank of England that such action would be a contribution to the general success of the stabilization efforts as a whole. Without the informal pressure, several efforts to return in one step to the full gold standard would undoubtedly have been made. End quote. The Gold Exchange Standard, Not Gold the major twist, the major deformation of a genuine gold standard perpetrated by the British in the 1920s, was not the gold bullion standard, unfortunate though that was. The major inflationary camouflage was to return, not to a gold standard at all, but to a, quote, gold exchange standard. In a gold exchange standard, only one country, in this case Great Britain, is on a gold standard in the sense that its currency is actually redeemable in gold, albeit only gold bullion for foreigners. All other European countries, even though nominally on a gold standard, were actually on a pound sterling standard. In short, a typical European country, say Ruritania, would hold as reserves for its currency, not gold, but British pound sterling, in practice, bills or deposits payable in sterling at London. Anyone who demanded redemption for Ruritanian Rurs, then, would receive British pounds rather than gold. The gold exchange standard, then, cunningly broke the classical gold standard's stringent limits on monetary and credit expansion, not only for the other European countries, but also for the base or key currency country, Great Britain itself. Under the genuine gold standard, Inflating the number of pounds in circulation would cause pounds to flow into the hands of other countries, which would demand gold in redemption. Thereby, gold would move out of British bank and currency reserves, and pressure would be put on Britain to end its inflation and to contract credit. But, under the gold exchange standard, the process was very different. If Britain inflated the number of pounds in circulation, the result, again, was a deficit in the balance of trade and sterling balances piling up in the accounts of other nations. But now that these nations have been induced to use pounds as their reserves rather than gold, these nations, instead of redeeming the pounds in gold, would inflate and pyramid a multiple of their currency on top of their increased stock of pounds. Thus, instead of checking inflation, a gold exchange standard encourages all countries to inflate on top of their increased supply of pounds. Britain, too, is now able to, quote, export her inflation to other nations without paying a price. Thus, in the name of sound money and a check against inflation, a pseudo-gold standard was instituted, designed to induce a double inverted pyramid of inflation, all on top of British pounds, 
the whole process supported by a gold stock that does not dwindle. Since all other countries were sucked into the inflationary gold exchange trap, it seemed that the only nation Britain had to worry about was the United States, the only country to continue on a genuine gold standard. That was the reason it became so vitally important for Britain to get the United States, through the Morgan Connection, to go along with this system and to inflate so that Britain would not lose gold to the United States. For the other nations of Europe, it became an object of British pressure and maneuvering to induce these countries themselves to return to a gold standard, with several vital provisions. A. That their currencies too be overvalued, so that British exports would not suffer, and British imports would not be overstimulated. In other words, so that they join Britain in overvaluing their currencies. B. That each of these countries adopt their own central bank, with the help of Britain, which would inflate their currencies in collaboration with the Bank of England. And C. That they return, not to a genuine gold standard, but to a gold exchange standard, keeping their balances in London and refraining from exercising their legal rights to redeem those sterling balances in gold. In this way, for a few years, Britain could have its cake and eat it too. It could enjoy the prestige of going back to gold, going back at a highly overvalued pound, and yet continue to pursue an inflationary, cheap money policy instead of the opposite. It could inflate pounds and see other countries keep their sterling balances and inflate on top of them. It could induce other countries to go back to gold at overvalued currencies and to inflate their money supplies. And it could also try to prop up its flagging exports by using cheap credit to lend money to European nations so that they could purchase British goods. Not that every country was supposed to return to gold at the overvalued pre-war par. The rule of thumb imposed in the 1920s was that a. Currencies, such as that of Britain herself, that had depreciated up to 60% from pre-war, for example, the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries, would return at the pre-war par. b. Currencies that had depreciated from 60 to 90% were to return to gold within that zone, but at a rate substantially above their lowest rates, for example, Belgium, Italy, Czechoslovakia, and France. The French franc, which had depreciated to 240 to the pound due to massive inflation, returned to gold at the doubled rate of 124 to the pound. And C. Only those currencies that had been wiped out by devastating hyperinflation, like Austria, Bulgaria, and especially Germany, were allowed to return to gold at a realistic rate, and even they were stabilized at a little bit above their lowest point. As a result, virtually every European currency suffered from the requirement to raise the value of its currency artificially above its depreciated level. The gold exchange standard was not created de novo by Great Britain in the interwar period. It is true that a number of European central banks before 1914 had held foreign exchange reserves in addition to gold, but these were strictly limited, and they were held as earning assets. These, after all, were privately owned central banks in need of earnings, not as instruments of monetary manipulation. But in a few cases, particularly where the pyramiding countries were from the Third World, they did function as a gold exchange standard. 
That is, the third world currency pyramided its currency on top of a key country's reserves, pounds or dollars, instead of on gold. This system began in India, after the late 1870s, as a historical accident. The plan of the British Imperial Center was to shift India, which, like many third world countries, had been on a silver standard, onto a seemingly sounder gold, following the imperial nations. India's reserves and pound sterling balances in London were supposed to be only a temporary transition to gold. But, as in so many cases of seeming transition, the Indian gold exchange standard lingered on and received great praise for its modern inflationary potential from John Maynard Keynes, then in his first economic post at the India office. It was Keynes, after leaving the India office and going to Cambridge, who trumpeted the new form of monetary system as a, quote, limping or imperfect gold standard, but as a, quote, more scientific and economic system, end quote, which he dubbed the gold exchange standard. As Keynes wrote in February 1910, quote, It is cheaper to maintain a credit at one of the great financial centers of the world, which can be converted with great readiness to gold when it is required, end quote. In a paper delivered the following year to the Royal Economic Society, Keynes proclaimed that out of this new system would evolve, quote, the ideal currency of the future, end quote. Elaborating his views into his first book, Indian Currency and Finance, London, 1913, Keynes emphasized that the gold exchange standard was a notable advance because it, quote, economized on gold internally and internationally, thus allowing greater, quote, elasticity of money, a longtime code word for ability to inflate credit, in response to business needs. Looking beyond India, Keynes prophetically foresaw the traditional gold standard as giving way to a more, quote, scientific system based on one or two key reserve centers. Quote, a preference for a tangible reserve currency, end quote, Keynes declared blithely, quote, is a relic of a time when governments were less trustworthy in these matters than they are now, end quote. He also believed that Britain was the natural center of the new reformed monetary order. While his book was still in proofs, Keynes was appointed a member of the Royal Commission on Indian Finance and Currency to study and make recommendations for the basic institutions of the Indian monetary system. Keynes dominated the commission proceedings, and while he got his way on maintaining the gold exchange standard, he was not able to convince the commission to adopt a central bank. However, he managed to bully it into including his annex favoring the state bank in its report, completed in early 1914. In addition, in his work on the commission, Keynes managed to enchant his doting mentor, Alfred Marshall, the unquestioned ruler of academic economists in Britain. While Montague Norman was the field marshal of the gold exchange standard of the 1920s, its major theoretician was longtime Treasury official Ralph Hawtrey. When Hawtrey rose to the position of Director of Financial Enquiries at the Treasury in 1919, he delivered a speech before the British Association on, quote, the gold standard. The speech presaged the gold exchange standard of the 1920s. Autry sought not only a system of stable exchange rates as before the war, but also a monetary system that would stabilize the world purchasing power of gold 
or world price levels. Autry recommended international cooperation to stabilize price levels and urged the use of an indexed number of world prices, a proposal reminiscent of Yale professor Irving Fisher's suggestion for a, quote, tabular gold exchange standard made in 1911. In practice, such calls for price level stabilization, which were pursued by Benjamin Strong in the 1920s, were really calls for price inflation to combat the dominant secular trend in a progressing free market economy of falling prices. In the post-World War I world, this attempt at dual stabilization meant that the governments would have to salvage the high post-war price levels from the threat of deflation, and in particular to alleviate the, quote, shortage of gold compared to the swollen totals of paper currencies existing in Europe. As Professor Eric Davis writes, quote, There had been concern in official circles that a return to the gold standard would be inhibited by a shortage of gold. Prices were much higher than before the war, and thus, if there was a general return to the old parodies, there might be insufficient gold. Autry picked up on the idea that the gold exchange standard could be widely introduced to economize on the use of gold for monetary purposes. Since countries would hold foreign exchange, much presumably in sterling balances as a substitute for gold, there was a special advantage for Britain. The demand for the pound would be increased at the same time the demand for gold lessened. End quote. The central instrument for imposing the new gold exchange standard on Europe was the International Financial Conference called by the League of Nations at Genoa in the spring of 1922. At a previous international financial conference at Brussels in September 1920, the League had established a powerful financial and economic committee, which from the very beginning was dominated by Montague Norman through his allies on the committee. Head of the committee was British Treasury official Sir Basil Blackett, and also dominant on the committee were two of Norman's closest associates, Sir Otto Niemeyer and Sir Henry Strachisch. All of these men were ardent price-level stabilizationists. Moreover, Norman's chief advisor in international monetary affairs, Sir Charles S. Addis, was also a dedicated stabilizationist. Prodded by Norman, British Prime Minister Lloyd George successfully urged the British cabinet in mid-December 1921 to call for a broad economic conference on the post-war reconstruction of Europe to include discussions of German reparations, Soviet-Russian reconstruction, the public debt, and the monetary system. At a meeting of the Allied Supreme Council at Cannes in early January 1922, Lloyd George got the delegates to propose an all-European economic and financial conference for the reconstruction of Central and Eastern Europe. Promptly, the British set up an interdepartmental committee on economics and finance to prepare for the conference. Head of the committee was the permanent secretary of the Board of Trade, Sir Sidney Chapman. The aim of the Chapman committee was to return to a gold standard, restore international credits, and establish cooperation between the various central banks. On March 7, 1922, the Chapman committee issued its report for a draft agreement which included currency stabilization, central bank cooperation, and adoption of a gold exchange rather than a straight gold standard, with each country deciding on the rates at which it would return to gold. 
the European Economic Conference occurred at Genoa from April 10th to May 19th, 1922. The conference divided itself into several commissions, including economic and transportation commissions. The relevant commission for our concerns was the Financial Commission, headed by British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Robert Horn. The Financial Commission divided itself into three subcommissions on credits, exchanges, and currency. Credit resolutions dealt with intergovernmental loans, and exchanges was an attempt to eliminate exchange controls. Currency was the subcommission dealing with the international monetary system. The crucial committee, however, was a large committee of experts covering all three subcommissions and which actually drew up the resolutions finally passed by the conference. The committee of experts was appointed solely by Sir Robert Horn, and it met in London during the early stages of the Genoa Conference. This large committee, consisting of government officials and financial authorities, was headed by the ubiquitous Sir Basil Blackett. Ralph Hawtrey drew up the Treasury plans for international money after having, quote, extended discussions with Montague Norman and presented them to the Committee of Experts. After a temporary setback, the Hawtrey plan was reintroduced and substantially passed in the form of 12 currency resolutions by the Financial Commission and then ratified by the plenary of the Genoa Conference. Having gotten his plan approved by the nations of Europe, Hawtrey became the leading fugleman and interpreter of the Genoa Resolutions. The currency resolutions of the Genoa Conference, which formed the European monetary system of the 1920s, called for a stable currency value in each country and for the establishment of central banks everywhere. Quote, In countries where there is no central bank of issue, one should be established. End quote. These central banks, not only in Europe but elsewhere, particularly the United States, should practice, quote, continuous cooperation in order to bring about and maintain, quote, currency reform. The conference suggested an early formal meeting of central banks and an international convention to launch this coordination. The currencies of Europe should be on a common standard, which at present would have to be gold. After expressing a desire for balanced budgets in each nation, the conference declared that some countries would need foreign loans to attain stabilization. Fixing the value of the currency unit in gold was left, by the conference, to each country, and the resolutions were vague on the criteria to be used. Resolution 9 looked specifically to a new form of gold standard, which would, quote, centralize and coordinate the demand for gold, and so avoid those wide fluctuations in the purchasing power of gold which might otherwise result from the simultaneous and competitive efforts of a number of countries to secure metallic reserves. End quote. In other words, to fix and raise price levels above the free market, and in particular to try to avoid redemption in gold and subsequent contraction of overexpanded paper currencies. Resolution 9 then became specific. The point was to economize, quote, the use of gold by maintaining reserves in the form of foreign balances, such, for example, as the gold exchange standard or an international clearing system, end quote. Resolution 11 spelled out the gold exchange system in detail and also declares that credit will be regulated not only to keep the various currencies at par, quote, 
but also with a view of preventing undue fluctuations in the purchasing power of gold, end quote. That is, the stabilizationist program of fixing and raising prices higher than free market levels. In particular, in Resolution 11, quote, the maintenance of the currency at its gold value must be assured by the provision of an adequate reserve of approved assets, not necessarily gold, end quote. In more detail, quote, a participating country, in addition to any gold reserve held at home, may maintain in any other participating country reserves of approved assets in the form of bank balances, bills, short-term securities, or other suitable liquid resources, end quote. And, quote, the ordinary practice of a participating country will be to buy and sell exchange on other participating countries within a prescribed fraction of parity of exchange for its own currency on demand, end quote. The gold aspect of this scheme is covered in the clause, quote, when progress permits, certain of the participating countries, i.e. Great Britain and the U.S., if it participates, will establish a free market in gold and thus become gold centers, end quote. The upshot, the currency resolution concludes, is that, quote, the convention will thus be based on a gold exchange standard, end quote. Ralph Hawtrey's essay on behalf of the Genoa system is instructive in many ways. Most of it is devoted to defending the idea of coordinated central bank action, that is, essentially monetary expansion, to stabilize the price level. Hawtrey asks the crucial question, quote, It may be asked, why is any international agreement on the subject of the gold standard necessary at all? When we have once got a currency based on commodity like gold, why should we not rely on free market conditions as we did before the war? End quote. Why indeed? Why can't the new pseudo-gold standard be like the old? Hawtrey makes it clear that his reason is a phobia about deflation. The paper money stock had multiplied since 1914, and therefore there, quote, has been a great fall in the commodity value of gold, end quote. Even in late 1922, after the price fall of the 1921 recession, the value of the gold dollar was, quote, only two-thirds of what it was before the war, end quote. Hence, the, quote, danger of a scramble to secure gold and a contraction of money and prices. But what is so terrible about deflation? Here, Hawtrey avoids even mentioning the wage rigidity and the unemployment insurance program that had changed the economic face of Britain. He simply points to the, quote, notorious chronic state of depression which prevailed during the spread of the gold standard in the period 1873 to 1896, end quote. This is really his only horrible example. But, in the first place, Hawtrey is wrong in attributing falling prices during the late 19th century to a shift from silver to gold. The falling prices were due to the Industrial Revolution and the phenomenal advance of productivity, and hence a drop in price levels, during this period. But a more important error is that Hawtrey has made the all-too-common modern error of identifying falling prices with, quote, depression. In reality, production and living standards were progressing in Britain and the United States during this period. 
costs were falling, and therefore there was no squeeze on profits. The era of falling prices was not a, quote, depression at all, and was only experienced as such decades later by historians who fail to understand the social benefits of falling prices. Second, in his exegesis, Hawtrey lets the cat out of the bag. He virtually concedes that his ideal is to abandon gold altogether and remain with only managed fiat money. Thus, in discussing the key currency countries, Hawtrey states wistfully, quote, At the gold centers, some gold reserves must be maintained, end quote. But if the gold standard becomes worldwide, quote, If all the gold standard countries adhere to it, gold will nowhere be needed as a means of remittance, and gold will only be withdrawn from the reserves for use as a raw material of industry, end quote. In short, Hawtrey looked forward to dispensing with gold as a monetary metal altogether and to have the world solely on a fiat paper standard. Hawtrey concludes his essay by conceding that there was only one defect in the Genoa resolutions, that there was no mention of how long it would take to return to gold. Even the strongest countries, he emphasized, would have to wait until their currencies rose on the exchange market to equal their designated rates. To induce a rise in pound sterling to meet the high fixed rate, Britain would either have to deflate, or else foreign countries, especially the United States, would have to inflate to correct the international discrepancy. Quote, further deflation, declaimed Harvey, is out of the question, end quote. Therefore, the only hope was to, quote, stabilize our currency at its existing purchasing power, end quote and wait for the increased gold supply in the United States to lead to a substantial inflation in the United States. Like the other British leaders, Hawtrey was pinning his faith on Uncle Sam's inflating enough to, quote, help Britain. Many historians have written off the Genoa Conference as a, quote, failure, and dismissed its influence on the international money of the 20th century. It is true that the formal institutions of central bank cooperation called for at Genoa were not established, largely because of the reluctance of the United States. But the critical point is that Genoa triumphed anyway, since Benjamin Strong was willing to perform the same tasks in informal but highly effective central bank cooperation to establish and prop up Britain's pseudo-gold standard. Strong's reluctance stemmed from two sources— an understandable fear that isolationist and anti-bank sentiment would raise a firestorm against any formal collaboration with European central banks, especially in an America that had reacted against the formal foreign interventionism of the League of Nations. And second, Strong actually preferred the full gold standard and was queasy about the inflationary unsoundness of a gold exchange standard. But his reluctance did not prevent him from collaborating closely in support of his friend Montague Norman and of their common Morgan connection. Their collaboration constituted, in the words of Michael Hogan, a, quote, informal entente. Actually, what Strong preferred was close, quote, key currency collaboration between, say, the central banks of the United States, England, and France, rather than to be outvoted at formal international conventions. In fact, after international commodity prices began to decline in 1926, 
Norman became more frantic in pursuing formal meetings of central bankers and more insistent on continuing and intensifying the inflationary thrust of the gold exchange standard. Finally, with the establishment of the Bank for International Settlements at Geneva in 1930, Norman at least succeeded in having regular monthly meetings of central bankers. Far from Genoa being merely a flash in the pan, the 1922 conference placed its decisive stamp upon the post-war monetary world. In the words of Professor Davis, quote, The widespread adoption of the gold exchange standard can be seen as the legacy of Genoa. End quote. Following the Genoa model, Great Britain, as we have seen, set up the gold exchange system by returning to its new version of gold in 1925. The other European countries, as well as other nations, followed, each at its own pace. By early 1926, some form of gold standard was established, at least de facto, in 39 countries. By 1928, 43 nations were de jure on the gold standard. Of these, even the few allegedly on the gold bullion standard, such as France, kept most of their reserves in sterling balances in London, and the same is true of officially gold coin nations, such as the Netherlands. Apart from the United States, the only officially gold coin countries were minor nations on the world periphery, such as Mexico, Colombia, Cuba, and the Union of South Africa. It should be noted that Norway and Denmark, who insisted in following the Genoa path of struggling back to gold at a highly overvalued currency, suffered, like Britain, from an export depression throughout the 1920s whereas Finland, acting on better advice, went back at a realistically devalued rate and avoided chronic depression during this period. Throughout Europe, Great Britain, wielding its control of the Finance Committee of the League of Nations, engineered the stabilization of currencies on a gold exchange, that is, a sterling exchange standard, in Germany, Austria, Hungary, Estonia, Bulgaria, Greece, Belgium, Poland, and Latvia. New central banks were established in the nations of Eastern Europe, basing themselves on reserves in sterling, with British supervisors and directors installed in those banks. Emile Moreau, the shrewd governor of the Bank of France, recorded his analysis of this British monetary power play in his diary. Quote, England having been the first European country to re-establish a stable and secure money, has used that advantage to establish a basis for putting Europe under a veritable financial domination. The Financial Committee of the League of Nations at Geneva has been the instrument of that policy. The method consists of forcing every country in monetary difficulty to subject itself to the committee at Geneva, which the British control. The remedies prescribed always involve the installation in the central bank of a foreign supervisor who is British or designated by the Bank of England, and the deposit of a part of the reserve of the central bank at the Bank of England, which serves both to support the pound and to fortify British influence. To guarantee against possible failure, they are careful to secure the cooperation of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Moreover, they pass on to America the task of making some of the foreign loans, if they seem too heavy, always retaining the political advantages of these operations.
End quote. The Gold Exchange Standard in Operation, 1926 to 1929. By the end of 1925, Montague Norman and the British establishment were seemingly monarch of all they surveyed. Backed by Strong and the Morgans, the British had had everything their way. They had saddled the world with a new form of pseudo-gold standard, with other nations pyramiding money and credits on top of British sterling, while the United States, though still on a gold coin standard, was ready to help Britain avoid suffering the consequences of abandoning the discipline of the classical gold standard. But it took little time for things to go very wrong. The crucial British export industries, chronically whipsawed between an overvalued pound and rigidly high wage rates kept up by strong, militant unions and widespread unemployment insurance, kept slumping during an era when worldwide trade and exports were prospering. Unemployment remained chronically high. The unemployment rate had hovered around 3% from 1851 to 1914. From 1921 through 1926, it had averaged 12%, and unemployment did little better after the return to gold. In April 1925, when Britain returned to gold, the unemployment rate stood at 10.9%. After the return, it fluctuated sharply, but always at historically very high levels. Thus, in the year after return, unemployment climbed above 12%, fell back to 9%, and jumped to over 14% during most of 1926. Unemployment fell back to 9% by the summer of 1927, but hovered around 10 to 11% for the next two years. In other words, unemployment in Britain during the entire 1920s lingered around severe recession levels. The unemployment was concentrated in the older, previously dominant, and heavily unionized industries in the north of England. The pattern of the slump in British exports may be seen by some comparative data. If 1924 is set equal to 100, world exports had risen to 132 by 1929, while Western European exports had similarly risen to 134. United States exports had also risen to 130. Yet, amid this worldwide prosperity, Great Britain lagged far behind, exports rising only to 109. On the other hand, British imports rose to 113 in the same period. After the 1929 crash until 1931, all exports fell considerably. World exports to 113, Western European to 107, and the United States, which had taken the brunt of the 1929 crash, to 91. And yet, while British imports rose slightly from 1929 to 1931 to 114, its exports drastically fell to 68. In this way, the overvalued pounds combined with rigid, downward wage rates to work their dire effects in both boom and recession. Overall, whereas, in 1931, Western European and world exports were considerably higher than in 1924, British exports were very sharply lower. Within categories of British exports, there was a sharp and illuminating separation between two sets of industries, the old, unionized export staples in the north of England, and the newer, relatively non-union, lower-wage industries in the south. 
These newer industries were able to flourish and provide plentiful employment because they were permitted to hire workers at a lower hourly wage than the industries of the North. Some of these industries, such as public utilities, flourished because they were not dependent on exports. But even the exports from these new, relatively non-unionized industries did very well during this period. Thus, from 1924 to 1928-29, the volume of automobile exports rose by 95%, exports of chemical and machinery manufacturers rose by 24%, and of electrical goods by 23%. During the 1929-31 recession, exports of these new industries did relatively better than the old machinery and electrical exports falling to 28% and 22% respectively, below the 1924 level, while chemical exports fell only to 5% below, and automobile exports remained comfortably, in 1931, at fully 26% above 1924. On the other hand, the older, staple export industries, the traditional mainstays of British prosperity, fared very badly in both these periods of boom and recession. The non-ferrous metal industry rose only slightly by 14% by 1928-29, and then fell to 55% of 1924 in the next two years. In even worse shape were the once mighty cotton and woolen textile industries, the bellwethers of the Industrial Revolution in England. From 1924 to 1929, Cotton exports fell by 10% and woolens by 20%. And then, in the two years to 1931, they plummeted phenomenally. Cottons to 50% of 1924 and woolens to 46%. Remarkably, cotton and woolen exports were at this point their lowest in volume since the 1870s. Perhaps the worst problem was in the traditionally prominent export, coal. Coal exports had declined to 69% of 1924 volume in 1931, but perhaps more ominously, they had fallen to 88% in 1928-29, slumping, like textiles, in the midst of worldwide prosperity. So high were British price levels compared to other countries in both of these periods that Britain's imports, remarkably, rose in every category during boom and recession. Thus, imports of manufactured goods into Britain rose by 32.5% from 1924 to 1928-29, and then rose another 5% until 1931. So costly, too, was the once-proud British iron and steel industry that, after 1925, the British for the first time in their history, became net importers of iron and steel. The relative rigidity of wage costs in Britain may be seen by comparing their unit wage costs with the U.S., setting 1925 in each country equal to 100. In the United States, as prices fell about 10% in response to increased productivity and output, Wage rates also declined, falling to 93 in 1928 and to 90 in 1929. Swedish wages were even more flexible in those years, enabling Sweden to surmount without export depression and return to gold at the pre-war par. Swedish wage rates fell to 88 in 1928 
80 in 1929, and 70 in 1931. In Great Britain, on the other hand, wage rates remained stubbornly high in the face of falling prices, being 97 in 1928, 95 the following year, and down to only depression and the end of the gold-sterling exchange standard, 1929 to 1931. The depression, or what nowadays would be called the, quote, recession, that struck the world economy in 1929, could have been met in the same way the U.S., Britain, and other countries had faced the previous severe contraction of 1920-21, to 21, and the way in which all countries met recessions under the classical gold standard. In short, they could have recognized the folly of the preceding inflationary boom and accepted the recession mechanism needed to return to an efficient, free-market economy. In other words, they could have accepted the liquidation of unsound investments and the liquidation of egregiously unsound banks and have accepted the contractionary deflation of money, credits, and prices. If they had done so, they would, as in the previous cases, have encountered a recession adjustment period that would have been sharp, severe, but mercifully short. Recessions unhampered by government almost invariably work themselves into recovery within a year or 18 months. But the United States, Britain, and the rest of the world had been permanently seduced by the siren song of cheap money. If inflationary bank credit expansion had gotten the world into this mess, then more, more of the same would be the only way out. Pursuit of this inflationist, quote, proto-Keynesian folly, along with other massive government interventions to prevent price deflation, managed to convert what would have been a short, sharp recession into a chronic, permanent stagnation with an unprecedented high unemployment that only ended with World War II. Great Britain tried to inflate its way out of the recession, as did the United States, despite the monetarist myth that the Federal Reserve deliberately contracted the money supply from 1929 to 1933. The Fed inflated, partly to help Britain and partly for its own sake. During the week of the great stock market crash, the final week of October 1929, the Federal Reserve, specifically George Harrison, doubled its holdings of government securities and discounted $200 million for member banks. During that one week, the Fed added $300 million to bank reserves, the expansion being generated to prevent stock market liquidation and to permit the New York City banks to take over brokers' loans being liquidated by non-bank lenders. Over the objections of Roy Young of the Federal Reserve Board, Harrison told the New York Stock Exchange that, quote, I am ready to provide all the reserve funds that may be needed, end quote. By December, Secretary Mellon issued one of his traditionally optimistic pronouncements that there was, quote, plenty of credit available, and President Hoover, addressing a business conference on December 5th, hailed the nation's good fortune in possessing the splendid Federal Reserve System, which had succeeded in saving shaky banks, had restored confidence, and had made capital more abundant by reducing interest rates. In early 1930, the Fed launched a massive cheap money program, lowering rediscount rates during the year from 4.5% to 2%, with acceptance rates and call loan rates falling similarly. 
the Fed purchased $218 million in government securities, increasing total member bank reserves by over $100 million. The money supply, however, remained stable and did not increase due to the bank failures of late 1930. The inflationists were not satisfied, however. Business Week, then as now a voice for, quote, enlightened business opinion, thundering in late October that the, quote, deflationists were, quote, in the saddle. In contrast, H. Parker Willis, in an editorial in the New York Journal of Commerce, trenchantly pointed out that the easy money policy of the Fed was actually bringing about the bank failures because of the banks' quote, inability to liquidate. Willis noted that the country was suffering from frozen and wasteful malinvestments in plants, buildings, and other capital, and that the depression could only be cured when these unsound credit positions were allowed to liquidate. In 1930, Montague Norman got part of his wish to achieve a formal inter-central bank collaboration. Norman was able to push through a new, quote, central banker's bank, the Bank for International Settlements, or BIS, to meet regularly at Basel, to provide clearing facilities for German reparations payments, and to provide regular facilities for meeting and cooperation. While Congress forbade the Fed from formally joining the BIS, the New York Fed and the Morgan interests worked closely with the new bank. The BIS, indeed, treated the New York Fed as if it were the central bank of the United States. Gates W. McGarrah resigned his post as chairman of the board of the New York Fed in February 1930 to assume the position of president of the BIS, and Jackson E. Reynolds, a director of the New York Fed, was chairman of the BIS's first organizing committee. J.P. Morgan and Company unsurprisingly supplied much of the capital for the BIS. And even though there was no legislative sanction for U.S. participation in the bank, New York Fed Governor George Harrison made a, quote, regular business trip abroad in the fall to confer with the other central bankers, and the New York Fed extended loans to the BIS during 1931. During 1931, many of the European banks swollen by unsound credit expansion, met their comeuppance. In October 1929, the important Austrian bank, the Boden Credit Anstalt, was headed for liquidation. Instead of allowing the bank to fold and liquidate, international finance, headed by the Rothschilds and the Morgans, bailed the bank out. The Boden Bank was merged into the older and stronger Österreichische Credit Anstalt, now by far the largest commercial bank in Austria, capital being provided by an international financial syndicate, including J.P. Morgan and Rothschild of Vienna. Moreover, the Austrian government guaranteed some of the Boden Bank's assets. But the now huge Credit Anstalt was weakened by the merger, and, in May 1931, a run developed on the bank, led by French bankers angered by the announced customs union between Germany and Austria. Despite aid to the Credit Anstalt by the Bank of England, Rothschild of Vienna, and the BIS, aided by the New York Fed and other central banks, to a total of over $31 million, and the Austrian government's guarantee of Credit Anstalt liabilities up to $150 million, bank runs, once launched, are irresistible, 
and so Austria went off the gold standard, in effect, declaring national bankruptcy in June 1931. At that point, a fierce run began on the German banks, the Bank for International Settlements again trying to shore up Germany by arranging a $100 million loan to the Reichsbank, a credit joined in by the Bank of England, the Bank of France, the New York Fed, and several other central banks. But the run on the German banks, both from the German people as well as from foreign creditors, proved devastating. By mid-July, the German banking system collapsed from internal runs, and Germany went off the gold standard. Since the German public feared runaway inflation above all else, and identified the cause of the inflation as exchange rate devaluation, the German government felt it had to maintain the par value of the mark, now highly overvalued relative to gold. To do so, while at the same time resuming inflationary credit expansion, the German government had to, quote, protect the mark by severe and thoroughgoing exchange controls. With the successful runs on Austria and Germany, it was clear that England would be the next to suffer a worldwide lack of confidence in its currency, including runs on gold. Sure enough, in mid-July, sterling redemption in gold became severe, and the Bank of England lost $125 million in gold in nine days in late July. The remedy to such a situation under the classical gold standard was very clear. A sharp rise in bank rates to tighten English money and to attract gold and foreign capital to stay or flow back into England. In classical gold standard crises, the bank had raised its bank rates to 9 or 10 percent until the crises passed. And yet, so wedded was England to cheap money that it entered the crisis in mid-July at the absurdly low bank rate of 2.5%, and grudgingly raised the rate only to 4.5% by the end of July, keeping the rate at this low level until it finally threw in the towel and, on the Black Sunday of September 20th, went off the very gold exchange standard that it recently had foisted upon the rest of the world. Indeed, instead of tightening money, the Bank of England made the pound shakier still by inflating credit further. Thus, in the last two weeks of July, the Bank of England purchased nearly $115 million in government securities. England disgracefully threw in the towel, even as foreign central banks tried to prop the Bank of England up and save the gold exchange standard. Answering Norman's pleas, the Bank of France and the New York Fed each loaned the Bank of England $125 million on August 1st, and then, later in August, another $400 million provided by a consortium of French and American bankers. All this aid was allowed to go down the drain on the altar of inflationism and a 4.5% bank rate. As Dr. Anderson concluded, quote, England went off the gold standard with bank rate at 4.5%. To a British banker in 1913, this would have been an incredible thing. The collapse of the gold standard in England was absolutely unnecessary. It was the product of prolonged violation of gold standard rules, and, even at the end, it could have been averted by the return to orthodox gold standard methods. End quote. England betrayed not only the countries that aided the pound, but also the countries it had cajoled into adopting the gold exchange standard in the 1920s. 
It also specifically betrayed those banks it had persuaded to keep huge sterling balances in London, specifically the Netherlands Bank and the Bank of France. Indeed, on Friday, September 18th, Dr. G. Vissering, head of the Netherlands Bank, phoned Monty Norman and asked him about the crisis of sterling. Vissering, who was poised to withdraw massive sterling balances from London, was assured without qualification by his old friend Norman that England would, at all costs, remain on the gold standard. Two days later, England betrayed its word. The Netherlands Bank suffered severe losses. The Netherlands Bank was strongly criticized by the Dutch government for keeping its balances in sterling until it was too late. In its own defense, the bank quoted repeated assurances from the Bank of England about the safety of foreign funds in London. The bank made it clear that it was betrayed and deceived by the Bank of England. The Bank of France also suffered severely from the British betrayal, losing about $95 million. Despite its misgivings, it had loyally supported the English gold standard system by allowing sterling balances to pile up. The Bank of France sold no sterling until after England went off gold. By September 1931, it had amassed a sterling portfolio of $300 million, one-fifth of France's monetary reserves. In fact, during the period of 1928 to 31, the sterling portfolio of the Bank of France was at times equal to two-thirds of the entire gold reserve of the Bank of England. Despite Montague Norman, who began to blame the French government for his own egregious failure, it was not the French authorities who put pressure on sterling in 1931. On the contrary, it was the shrewd, private French investors and commercial banks who, correctly sensing the weakness of sterling and the British refusal to employ orthodox measures in its support, decided to make a run on the pound in exchange for gold. The run was aggravated by the glaring fact that Britain had a chronic import deficit and also was scarcely in a position to save the gold standard through tight money when the British government, at the end of July, projected a massive fiscal 1932-33 deficit of 120 million pounds, the largest since 1920. Attempts in September to cut the budget were overridden by union strikes and even by a short-lived sit-down strike by British naval personnel, which convinced foreigners that Britain would not take sufficient measures to defend the pound. In his memoirs, the economist Moritz J. Bonn neatly summed up the significance of England's action in September 1931. Quote, September 20th, 1931 was the end of an age. It was the last day of the age of economic liberalism, in which Great Britain had been the leader of the world. Now the whole edifice had crashed. The slogan, safe as the Bank of England, no longer had any meaning. The Bank of England had gone into default. For the first time in history, a great creditor country had devalued its currency, and by so doing had inflicted heavy losses on all those who had trusted it. End quote. As soon as England went off the gold standard, the pound fell by 30%. It is ironic that, after all the travail Britain had put the world through, the pound fell to a level, $3.40, that might have been viable if she had originally returned to gold at that rate. 
Twenty-five countries followed Britain off gold and onto floating and devaluating exchange rates. The era of the gold exchange standard was over. Epilogue: The world was now plunged into a monetary chaos of fiat money, competing devaluation, exchange controls, and warring monetary and trade blocks, accompanied by a network of protectionist restrictions. These warring blocks played an important, though neglected, part in paving the way for World War II. This trend toward monetary and other economic nationalism was accentuated when the United States, the last bastion of the gold coin standard, devalued the dollar and went off that standard in 1933. The Franklin Roosevelt branch of the family had always been close to its neighbors, the Astors and Harrimans. And American politics, since the turn of the 20th century, had been marked by an often bitter financial and political rivalry between the House of Morgan on the one hand and an alliance of the Harrimans, the Rockefellers, and Kuhn Leb on the other. Accordingly, the early years of the Roosevelt New Deal were marked by a comprehensive and successful assault on the House of Morgan, that is, in the Glass-Steagall Act. Outlawing Morgan-type integration of commercial and investment banking. In contrast to the Morgan dominance during the Republican era of the 1920s, the early New Deal was dominated by an alliance of the Harrimans, Rockefellers, and various retailers, farm groups, the Silver Bloc, and industries producing for retail sales. For example, automobiles and typewriters. All of whom were now backing an inflationist and economic nationalist program. When the British, backed by the Morgans, convened a World Economic Conference in London in June 1933 to try to restabilize exchange rates, the plan was scuttled at the last minute by President Roosevelt, under the influence of the inflationist economic nationalist bloc. The Morgans were taking a shellacking at home and abroad. It was only in 1936, by the good offices of leading Morgan banker Norman Davis, a longtime friend of Roosevelt's, and of Democrat Morgan partner Russell Leffingwell, that the Morgans would begin to recoup their political losses. The beginning of the return of the Morgans was symbolized by the September 1936 tripartite monetary agreement, partially stabilizing the exchange rates of the currencies of Britain. France and the U.S., a collaboration that was soon extended to Belgium, Holland, and Switzerland. These agreements, in addition to the dollar still remaining on an international but not domestic gold bullion standard at thirty-five dollars an ounce, set the stage for the Morgan Drive organized by Norman Davis, head of Morgan's Council of Foreign Relations, to bring a new world gold exchange standard out of the cauldron of World War II. The difference is that this inflationary quotes Bretton Woods system would be a dollar, not a sterling gold exchange standard. Moreover, this inflationary system, under the cloak of the prestige of gold, was destined to last a great deal longer than the British venture, finally collapsing at the end of the 1960s. Part five: The New Deal and the International Monetary System. The international monetary policies of the New Deal may be divided into two decisive and determining actions. One at the beginning of the New Deal, 
and the other at its end. The first was the decision, in early 1933, to opt for domestic inflation and monetary nationalism, a course that helped steer the entire world onto a similar path during the remainder of the decade. The second was the thrust, during World War II, to reconstitute an international monetary order, this time built on the dollar as the world's, quote, key and crucial currency. If we wish to use lurid terminology, we might call these a decision for dollar nationalism and dollar imperialism, respectively. The Background of the 1920s It is impossible to understand the first New Deal decision for dollar nationalism without setting that choice in the monetary world of the 1920s, from which the New Deal emerged. Similarly, it is impossible to understand the monetary system of the 1920s without reference to the pre-World War I monetary order and its breakup during the war. For the world of the 1920s was an attempt to reconstitute an international monetary order, seemingly one quite similar to the status quo ante, but actually based on very different principles and institutions. The pre-war monetary order was genuinely, quote, international. That is, world money rested not on paper tickets issued by one or more governments, but on a genuine economic commodity, gold, whose supply rested on market supply and demand principles. In short, the international gold standard was the monetary equivalent and corollary of international free trade and commodities. It was a method of separating money from the state, just as enterprise and foreign trade had been so separated. In short, the gold standard was the monetary counterpart of laissez-faire in other economic areas. The gold standard in the pre-war era was never, quote, pure, no more than was laissez-faire in general. Every major country, except the United States, had central banks which tried their best to inflate and manipulate the currency. But the system was such that this intervention could only operate within narrow limits. If one country inflated its currency, the inflation in that country would cause the banks to lose gold to other nations. And consequently, the banks, private and central, would before long be brought to heel. And while England was the world financial center during this period, its predominance was market rather than political, so it too had to abide by the monetary discipline of the gold standard. As H. Parker Willis described it, Quote, Prior to the World War, the distribution of the metallic money of gold standard countries had been directed and regulated by the central banks of the world, in accordance with the generally known and recognized principles of international distribution of the precious metals. Free movement of these metals and freedom on the part of the individual to acquire and hold them were general. Regulation of foreign exchange existed only sporadically and was so conducted as not to interfere in any important degree with the disposal of holding of specie by individuals or by banks. End quote. The advent of the World War disrupted and rended this economic idol, and it was never to return. 
In the first place, all of the major countries financed the massive war effort through an equally massive inflation, which meant that every country except the United States, even including Great Britain, was forced to go off the gold standard since they could no longer hope to redeem their currency obligations in gold. The international order not only was sundered by the war, but also split into numerous separate, competing, and warring currencies, whose inflation was no longer subject to the gold restraint. In addition, the various governments engaged in rigorous exchange control, fixing exchange rates and prohibiting outflows of gold. Monetary warfare paralleled the broader economic and military conflict. At the end of the war, the major powers sought to reconstitute some form of international monetary order out of the chaos and warring economic blocks of the war period. The crucial actor in this drama was Great Britain, which was faced with a series of dilemmas and difficulties. On the one hand, Britain not only aimed at re-establishing its former eminence, but it meant to use its victorious position and its domination of the League of Nations to work its will upon the other nations, many of them new and small, of post-Versailles Europe. This meant its monetary as well as its general political and economic dominance. Furthermore, it no longer felt itself bound by old-fashioned, laissez-faire restraints from exerting frankly political control. Nor did it any longer feel bound to observe the classical gold standard restraints against inflation. While Britain's appetite was large, its major dilemma was its weakness of resources. The racking inflation and the withdrawal from the gold standard had left the United States, not Great Britain, as the only, quote, hard gold standard country. If Great Britain were to dominate the post-war monetary picture, it would somehow have to take the United States into camp as its willing junior partner. From the classic pre-war pound-dollar par of $4.86 to the pound, the pound had fallen on the international money markets to $3.50, a substantial 30% drop a drop that reflected the greater degree of inflation in Great Britain than in the U.S. The British then decided to constitute a new form of international monetary system, the, quote, gold exchange standard, which it finally completed in 1925. In the classical pre-war gold standard, each country kept its reserves in gold and redeemed its paper and bank currencies in gold coin upon demand. The new gold exchange standard was a clever device to permit Britain and the other European countries to remain inflated and to continue inflating while enlisting the United States as the ultimate support for all currencies. Specifically, Great Britain would keep its reserves, not in gold, but in dollars, while the smaller countries of Europe would keep their reserves, not in gold, but in pounds sterling. In this way, Great Britain could pyramid inflated currency and credit on top of dollars, while Britain's client states could pyramid their currencies, in turn, on top of pounds. Clearly, this also meant that only the United States would remain on a gold coin standard, the other countries, quote, redeeming only in foreign exchange. The instability of this system, 
with pseudo-gold standard countries pyramiding on top of an increasingly shaky dollar-gold base, was to become evidence in the Great Depression. But the British task was not simply to induce the United States to be the willing guarantor of all the shaky and inflated currencies of war-torn Europe. For Great Britain might well have been able to return to the original form of gold standard at a new, realistic, depreciated parity of $3.50 to the pound. But it was not willing to do so. For the British dream was to restore, even more glowingly than before, British financial preeminence, and if it depreciated the pound by 30%, it would thereby acknowledge that the dollar, not the pound, was the world financial center. This it was fiercely unwilling to do. For restoration of dominance, for the saving of financial face, it would return at the good old $4.86, or bust in the attempt. And bust it almost did. For to insist on returning to gold at $4.86, even on the new, vitiated, gold exchange basis, was to mean that the pound would be absurdly expensive in relation to the dollar and other currencies, and would therefore mean that at current, inflated price levels, Britain's exports, its economic lifeline, would be severely crippled, and a general depression would ensue. And indeed, Britain suffered a severe depression in her export industries, particularly coal and textiles, throughout the 1920s. If she insisted on returning at the overvalued $4.86, there was only one hope for keeping her exports competitive in price, a massive domestic deflation to lower price and wage levels. While a severe deflation is difficult at best, Britain now found it impossible, for the new system of national unemployment insurance and the newfound strength of trade unions made wage-cutting politically unthinkable. But if Britain would not, or could not, make her exports competitive by returning to gold at a depreciated par, or by deflating at home, there was a third alternative which it could pursue and which indeed marked the key to the British international economic policies of the 1920s. It could induce or force other countries to inflate, or themselves to return to gold at overvalued pars. In short, if it could not clean up its own economic mess, it could contrive to impose messes upon everyone else. If it did not do so, it would see inflating Britain lose gold to the United States, France, and other, quote, hard-money countries, as indeed happened during the 1920s. Only by contriving for other countries, especially the U.S., to inflate also, could it check the loss of gold and therefore halt the collapse of the whole jerry-built international monetary structure. In the short run, the British scheme was brilliantly conceived. And it worked for a time. But the major problem went unheeded. If the United States, the base of the pyramid and the sole link of all these countries to gold and hard money, were to inflate unduly, the dollar too would become shaky. It would lose gold at home and abroad, and the dollar would itself eventually collapse, dragging the entire structure down with it. 
And this is essentially what happened in the Great Depression. In Europe, England was able to use its domination of the powerful financial committee of the League of Nations to cajole or bludgeon country after country to, one, establish central banks that would collaborate closely with the Bank of England, two, return to gold not in the classical gold coin standard, but in the new gold exchange standard, which would permit continued inflation by all the countries, and three, return to this new standard at overvalued pars so that European exports would be hobbled vis-a-vis -vis the exports of Great Britain. The Financial Committee of the League of Nations was largely dominated and run by Britain's major financial figure, Montague Norman, head of the Bank of England, working through such close Norman associates on the committee as Sir Otto Niemeyer and Sir Henry Strachush leaders in the concept of close central bank collaboration to, quote, stabilize, in practice to raise, price levels throughout the world. The distinguished British economist Sir Ralph Hawtrey, director of financial studies at the British Treasury, was one of the first to advocate this system, as well as to call for the general European adoption of a gold exchange standard. In the spring of 1922, Norman induced the League to call the Genoa Conference, which urged similar measures. But the British scarcely confined their pressure upon European countries to resolutions and conferences. Using the carrot of loans from England and the United States, and the stick of political pressure, Britain induced country after country to order its monetary affairs to suit the British that is, to return only to a gold exchange standard at overvalued pars that would hamper their own exports and stimulate imports from Great Britain. Furthermore, the British also used their inflated, cheap credit to lend widely to Europe in order to stimulate their own flagging export market. A trenchant critique of British policy was recorded in the diary of Emile Moreau, governor of the Bank of France, a country that clung to the gold standard and to a hard-money policy, and was thereby instrumental in bringing down the pound and British financial domination in 1931. Moreau wrote, quote, England, having been the first European country to re-establish a stable and secure money, has used that advantage to establish a basis for putting Europe under a veritable financial domination. The Financial Committee of the League of Nations at Geneva has been the instrument of that policy. The method consists of forcing every country in monetary difficulty to subject itself to the committee at Geneva, which the British control. The remedies prescribed always involve the installation in the central bank of a foreign supervisor who is British or designated by the Bank of England and the deposits of a part of the reserve of the central bank at the Bank of England, which serves both to support the pound and to fortify British influence. To guarantee against possible failure, they are careful to secure the corporation of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Moreover, they pass on to America the task of making some of the foreign loans if they seem too heavy, always retaining the political advantage of these operations. England is thus completely or partially entrenched in Austria, Hungary, Belgium, Norway, and Italy.
She is in the process of entrenching herself in Greece and Portugal. She seeks to get a foothold in Yugoslavia and fights as cunningly in Romania. The currencies will be divided into two classes. Those of the first class, the dollar and the pound sterling, based on gold, and those of the second class, based on the pound and the dollar, with a part of their gold reserves being held by the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The latter monies will have lost their independence. End quote. Inducing the United States to support and bolster the pound and the gold exchange system was vital to Britain's success, and this cooperation was ensured by the close ties that developed between Montague Norman and Benjamin Strong, governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, who had seized effective and nearly absolute control of Federal Reserve operations from his appointments at the inception of the Fed in 1914 until his death in 1928. This control over the Fed was achieved over the opposition of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, which generally opposed or grumbled at Strong's Anglophile policies. Strong and Norman made annual trips to visit each other, all of which were kept secret not only from the public but from the Federal Reserve Board itself. Strong and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York propped up England and the gold exchange standard in numerous ways. One was direct lines of credit, which the New York Bank extended in 1925 and after to Britain, Belgium, Poland, and Italy to subsidize their going to a gold exchange standard at overvalued pars. More directly significant was a massive monetary inflation and credit expansion which Strong generated in the United States in 1924 and again in 1927 for the purpose of propping up the pound. The idea was that gold flows from Britain to the United States would be checked and reversed by American credit expansion, which would prop up or raise prices of American goods, thereby stimulating imports from Great Britain and also lower interest rates in the U.S. as compared to Britain. The fall in interest rates would further stimulate flows of gold from the U.S. to Britain and thereby check the results of British inflation and overvaluation of the pound. Both times, the inflationary injection worked and prevented Britain from reaping the results of its own inflationary policies. But at the high price of inflation in the United States, a dangerous stock market and real estate boom, and an eventual depression. At the Secret Central Bank Conference of July 1927 in New York, called at the behest of Norman, Strong agreed to this inflationary credit expansion over the objections of Germany and France, and Strong gaily told the French representative that he was going to give, quote, a little coup de whiskey to the stock market. It was a coup for which America and the world would pay dearly. The Chicago business and financial community, not having Strong's ties with England, protested vigorously against the 1927 expansion, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago held out as long as it could against the expansion of cheap money and the lowering of interest rates. The Chicago Tribune went so far as to call for Strong's resignation and perceptively charged that discount rates were being lowered in the interest of Great Britain.
Strong, however, sold the policy to the Middle West with the rationale that its purpose was to help the American farmer by means of cheap credit. In contrast, the English financial community hailed the work of Norman in securing strong support, and the banker of London lauded Strong as, quote, one of the best friends England ever had. The banker praised the, quote, energy and skillfulness he, Strong, has given to the service of England, and exalted that, quote, his name should be associated with that of Mr. Walter Hines Page as a friend of England in her greatest need, end quote. A blatant example of Strong's intervention to help Norman and his policy occurred in the spring of 1926 when one of Norman's influential colleagues proposed a full gold coin standard in India. At Norman's request, Strong and a team of American economists rushed to England to ward off the plan, testifying that a gold drain to India would check inflation in other countries, and instead they successfully backed the Norman policy of a gold exchange standard and domestic, quote, economizing of gold to permit domestic expansion of credits. The intimate Norman-Strong collaboration for joint inflation and the gold exchange standard was not at all an accident of personality. It was firmly grounded on the close ties that both of them had with the House of Morgan and the Morgan interests. Strong himself was a product of the Morgan nexus. He had been the head of the Morgan-oriented Bankers Trust Company before becoming governor of the New York Fed, and his closest ties were with Morgan partners Henry P. Davidson and Dwight Morrow, who induced him to assume his post at the Federal Reserve. J.P. Morgan and Company, in turn, was an agent of the British governments and of the Bank of England, and its close financial ties with England its loans to England and tie-ins with the American export trade had been highly influential in inducing the United States to enter World War I on England's side. As for Montague Norman, his grandfather had been a partner in the London banking firm of Brown, Shipley & Company and of the affiliated New York firm of Brown Brothers & Company, a powerful investment banking firm long associated with the House of Morgan. Norman himself had been a partner of Brown Shipley and had worked for several years in the offices of Brown Brothers in the United States. Moreover, J.P. Morgan and Company played a direct, collaborative role with the New York Fed, lending $100 million of its own to Great Britain in 1925 to facilitate its return to gold and also collaborating in feudal loans to prop up the shaky European banking system during the financial crisis of 1931. It is no wonder that in his study of the Federal Reserve System during the pre-New Deal era, Dr. Clark concluded that, quote, the New York Reserve Bank, in collaboration with a private international banking house, J.P. Morgan & Company, determined the policy to be followed by the Federal Reserve System. End quote. The major theoretical rationale employed by Strong and Norman was the idea of governmental collaboration to, quote, stabilize the price level. The laissez-faire policy of the classical pre-war gold standard meant that prices would be allowed to find their own level in accordance with supply and demand and without interference by central bank manipulation. 
In practice, this meant a secularly falling price level as the supply of goods rose over time in accordance with the long-run rise in productivity. And in practice, price stabilization really meant price raising, either keeping prices up when they were falling or, quote, reflating prices by raising them through inflationary action by the central banks. Price stabilization, therefore, meant the replacement of the classical laissez-faire gold standard by, quote, managed money, by inflationary credit expansion stimulated by the central banks. In England, it was, as we have seen, no accident that the lead in advocating price stabilization was taken by Sir Ralph Hawtrey and various associates of Montague Norman, including Sir Josiah Stamp, chairman of Midland Railways, and a director of the Bank of England, and two other prominent directors, Sir Basil Blackett and Sir Charles Addis. It long has been a myth of American historiography that bankers and big businessmen are invariably believers in, quote, hard money as against cheap credits or inflation. This was certainly not the experience of the New Deal or the pre-New Deal era. While the most articulate leaders of the price stabilizationists were academic economists led by Professor Irving Fisher of Yale, Fisher was able to enlist in his Stable Money League, founded 1921, and its successor, the Stable Money Association, a host of men of wealth, bankers, and businessmen, as well as labor and farm leaders. Among those serving as officers of the League and Association were Henry Agard Wallace, editor of Wallace's Farmer and Secretary of Agriculture in the New Deal, the wealthy John G. Winant, later governor of New Hampshire, George Eastman of the Eastman Kodak family, Frederick H. Goff, head of the Cleveland Trust Company, John E. Ravensky, executive vice president of the Bank of America, Frederick Delano, uncle of Franklin D. Roosevelt, Samuel Gompers, John P. Frey, and William Green of the American Federation of Labor, Paul M. Warburg, partner of Kuhn Lab and Company, Otto H. Kahn, prominent investment banker, James H. Rand, Jr., head of Remington Rand Company, and Owen D. Young of General Electric. Furthermore, the heads of the following organizations agreed to serve as ex officio honorary vice presidents the American Association for Labor Legislation, the American Bar Association, the American Farm Bureau Federation, the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen, the National Association of Credit Men, the National Association of Owners of Railroad and Public Utility Securities, the National Retail Dry Goods Association, the United States Building and Loan League, the American Cotton Growers Exchange, the Chicago Association of Commerce, the Merchants Association of New York, and the heads of the Bankers Associations of 43 states and the District of Columbia. Irving Fisher was unsurprisingly exultant over the supposed achievements of Governor Strong in stabilizing the wholesale price level during the late 1920s, and he led American economists in trumpeting the, quote, new era of permanent prosperity which the new policy of managed money was assuring to America and the world. 
Fisher was particularly critical of the minority of skeptical economists who warned of overexpansion in the stock and real estate markets due to cheap money. And even after the stock market crash, Fisher continued to insist that prosperity, particularly in the stock market, was just around the corner. Fisher's partiality towards stock market inflation was perhaps not unrelated to his own personal role as a millionaire investor in the stock market, a role in which he was financially dependent on a cheap money policy. In the general enthusiasm for strong and the new era of monetary and stock market inflation, the minority of skeptics was led by the Chase National Bank, affiliated with the Rockefeller interests, particularly A. Barton Hepburn, economic historian and chairman of the board of the bank, and Chase National's chief economist, Dr. Benjamin M. Anderson, Jr. Another highly influential and indefatigable critic was Dr. H. Parker Willis, editor of the Journal of Commerce, formerly aide to Senator Carter Glass, Democrat from Virginia, and professor of banking at Columbia University, along with Willis's numerous students, who included Dr. Ralph W. Roby, later to become economist at the National Association of Manufacturers. Another critic was Dr. Rufus S. Tucker, economist at General Motors. On the Federal Reserve Board, the major critic was Dr. Adolph C. Miller, a close friend of Herbert Hoover, who joined in the criticisms of the strong policy. On the other hand, Treasury Secretary Andrew W. Mellon, of the powerful Mellon interests, enthusiastically backed the inflationist policy. This split in the nation's leading banking and business circles was to foreshadow the split over Franklin Roosevelt's monetary departures in 1933. The First New Deal Dollar Nationalism The international monetary framework of the 1920s collapsed in the storm of the Great Depression. Or rather, it collapsed of its own inner contradictions in a depression which it had helped to bring about. For one of the most calamitous features of the depression was the international wave of banking failures, and the banks failed from the inflation and overexpansion which were the fruits of the managed international gold exchange standard. Once the jerry-built pyramiding of bank credit had collapsed, it brought down the banking system of nation after nation, as inflation led to a piling up of currency claims abroad. The cashing in of the claims led to a well-founded suspicion of the solvency of other banks, and so the failures spread and intensified. The failures in the weak currency countries led to the accumulation of strains in other weak currency nations, and ultimately on the basis of the shaky pyramid. Britain, and the United States. The major banking crisis began with the near bankruptcy in 1929 of the Baden Credit Anstalt of Vienna, the major bank in Austria, which had never recovered from its dismemberment at Versailles. Desperate attempts by J.P. Morgan, the House of Rothschild, and later the New York Fed to shore up the bank, only succeeded in a temporary rescue which committed more financial resources to an unsound bank and thereby made its ultimate failure in May 1931 all the more catastrophic. Rather than permit the outright liquidation of their banking systems, Austria, 
followed by Germany and other European countries, went off the gold standard during 1931. But the key to the international monetary situation was Great Britain, the nub and the base for the world's gold exchange standard. British inflation and cheap money, and the standard that had made Britain the base of the world's money, put enormous pressure on the pound sterling, as foreign holders of sterling balances became increasingly panicky and called on the British to redeem their sterling in either gold or dollars. The heavy loans by British banks to Germany during the 1920s made the pressure after the German monetary collapse still more severe. But Britain could have saved the day by using the classical gold standard medicine in such crises, by raising bank interest rates sharply, thereby attracting funds to Britain from other countries. In such monetary crises, furthermore, such temporary tight money and checks to inflation give foreigners confidence that the pound will be sustained, and they then continue to hold sterling without calling on the country for redemption. In earlier crises, for example, Britain had raised its bank rate as high as 10% early in the proceedings and temporarily contracted the money supply to put a stringent check to inflation. But by 1931, deflation and hard money had become unthinkable in the British political climate. And so Britain stunned the financial world by keeping its bank rate very low, never raising it above 4.5% and in fact continuing to inflate sterling still further to offset gold losses abroad. As the run on sterling inevitably intensified, Great Britain cynically repudiated its own gold exchange standard, the very monetary standard that it had forced and cajoled Europe to adopt, by coolly going off the gold standard in September 1931. Its own international monetary system was sacrificed on the altar of continued domestic inflation. The European monetary system was thereby broken up into separate and even warring currency blocks, replete with fluctuating exchange rates, exchange control, and trade restrictions. The major countries followed Britain off the gold standard, with the exception of Belgium, Holland, France, Italy, Switzerland, and the United States. Currency blocks formed with the British Empire, forming a sterling block, with parities mutually fixed in relation to the pound. It is particularly ironic that one of the earliest effects of Britain's going off gold was that the overvalued pound, now free to fluctuate, fell to its genuine economic value, at or below $3.40 to the pound. And so, Britain's grand experiments in returning to a form of gold at an overvalued par had ended in disaster, for herself as well as for the rest of the world. In the last weeks of the Hoover administration, a desperate attempt was made by the U.S. to restore an international monetary system. This time, the offer was made to Britain to return to the gold standard at the current, eminently more sensible par, in exchange for substantial reduction of the British war debt. No longer would Britain be forced by overvaluation to be in a chronic state of depression of its export industries. But Britain now had the nationalist bit in its teeth. 
and it insisted on outright, quote, reflation of prices back up to the pre-Depression 1929 levels. It had become increasingly clear that the powerful, quote, price stabilizationists were interested not so much in stabilization as in high prices, and now they would only be satisfied with an inflationary return to boom prices. Britain's rejection of the American offer proved to be fatal for any hopes of international monetary stability. The world's monetary fate finally rested with the United States, the major gold standard country still remaining. Federal Reserve attempts to inflate the money supply and to lower interest rates during the Depression further weakened confidence in the dollar, and gold outflows combined with runs and failures of the banks to put increasing pressure on the American banking system. Finally, during the interregnum between the Hoover and Roosevelt administrations, the nation's banks began to collapse in earnest. The general bank collapse meant that the banking system always unsound and incapable of paying more than a fraction of its liabilities on demand, could only go in either of two opposite directions. A truly laissez-faire policy would have allowed the failing banks to collapse and thereby to engage in a swift, sharp, surgical operation that would have transformed the nation's monetary system from an unsound, inflationary one to a truly, quote, hard and stable currency. The other poll was for the government to declare massive, quote, bank holidays, that is, to relieve the banks of the obligation to pay their debts, and then move on to the repudiation of the gold standard and its replacement by inflated fiat paper issued by the government. It is important to realize that neither the Hoover nor the Roosevelt administrations had any intention of taking the first route. While there was a considerable split on whether or not to stay on the gold standard, no one endorsed the rigorous laissez-faire route. The new Roosevelt administration was now faced with the choice of retaining or going off the gold standard. While most everyone supported the temporary, quote, bank holidays, there was a severe split on the longer-run question of the monetary standard. While the bulk of the nation's academic economists stood staunchly behind the gold standard, the indefatigable Irving Fisher redoubled his agitation for inflation, spurred onward by his personal desire to reinflate stock prices. Since the Stable Money Association had been supposedly dedicated to price stabilization, and what Fisher and the inflationists wanted was a drastic raising of prices, the association liquidated its assets into the new and frankly inflationist Committee for the Nation to Rebuild Prices and Purchasing Power. The Committee for the Nation, founded in January 1933, stood squarely for the, quote, reflation of prices back to their pre-1929 levels. Stabilization of the price level was to proceed only after that point had been achieved. The Committee for the Nation, which was to prove crucially influential on Roosevelt's decision, was composed largely of prominent businessmen. The committee was originated by Vincent Bendix, president of Bendix Aviation, and General Robert E. Wood, head of Sears, Roebuck & Company. They were soon joined, in the fall of 1932, by Frank A. Vanderlip, long close to Fisher and former president of the National Citibank of New York, by James H. Rand, Jr. of Remington Rand, 
and by Magnus W. Alexander, head of the National Industrial Conference Board. Other members of the Committee for the Nation included Fred H. Sixauer, President of the Dairymen's League Cooperative Association, Frederick H. Fraser, Chairman of the Board of the General Baking Company, Automobile Magnet E.L. Cord, Lestig J. Rosenwald, Chairman Sears Roebuck, Samuel S. Fells of Fells & Company, Philip K. Wrigley, President of William Wrigley Company, John Henry Hammond, Chairman of the Board of Bangor and Aroostook Railroad, Edward A. O'Neill, Head of the American Farm Bureau Federation, L.J. Tauber, Head of the National Grange, F.R. Wurlitzer, Vice President of Rudolph Wurlitzer Manufacturing Company, William J. McAvini, President of Hudson Motor Company, Frank E. Gannett of Gannett Newspapers, and Indiana banker William A. Wirt. Interestingly enough, this same group of highly conservative industrialists was later to become the Committee for Constitutional Government, the major anti-New Deal propaganda group of the late 1930s and 1940s. Yet the committee was the major proponent of the inflationist policy of the early New Deal in reflating and abandoning the gold standard. Also associated with the Committee for the Nation was another great influence on Franklin Roosevelt's decision, agricultural economist George F. Warren of Cornell, who, along with his colleague Frank A. Pearson, was the inspiration for the reflationist Roosevelt program of continually raising the buying price of gold. The Committee for the Nation at first included several hundred industrial and agricultural leaders, and within a year its membership reached over 2,000. Its recommendations, beginning with going off gold and embargoing gold exports, and continuing through devaluing the dollar and raising the price of gold, were fairly closely followed by the Roosevelt administration. For his part, Irving Fisher, in response to a request for advice by President-elect Roosevelt, had strongly urged at the end of February a frankly inflationist policy of reflation, devaluation, and leaving the gold standard without delay. By April 19th, when Roosevelt had cast the die for this policy, Fisher exalted, quote, Now I am sure, as far as we can ever be sure of anything, that we are going to snap out of this depression fast. I am now one of the happiest men in the world. End quote. In the same letter to his wife, an heiress of the substantial Hazard family fortune, Fisher added, quote, My next big job is to raise money for ourselves. Probably we'll have to go to sister, his wife's sister Carolyn, again. I have defaulted payments the last few weeks, because I did not think it was fair to ask sister for money when there was a real chance that I could never pay it back. I mean that if FDR had followed glass, we would have been pretty surely ruined. So would a lied chemical, in which much of his wife's family fortune was invested, and the U.S. government. Now I can go to sister with a clean conscience. End quote. If Irving Fisher's interest was personal as well as ideological, Economic interests also underlay the concern of the Committee for the Nation. The farm groups wanted farm prices driven up, including farm export prices, which necessarily increase in terms of other currencies whenever a currency is devalued. 
As for the rest of the committee and other inflationists, Herbert Feiss notes, quote, By the spring of 1933, diverse organizations and groups were crying aloud for some kind of monetary inflation or devaluation, or both. Most effective, probably, was the Committee for the Nation. Among its members were prominent merchants, such as the head of Sears Roebuck, some journalists, some Wall Street operators, and some foreign exchange speculators. Their purpose was to get the United States off the gold standard and to bring about devaluation of the dollar, from which they would profit either as speculators in foreign exchange or as businessmen. Another group, more conservative, who stood to gain by devaluation were those who had already exported gold or otherwise acquired liquid deposits in foreign banks. They conceived that they were merely protecting the value of their capital. Then there were the exporters, especially of farm products, who had been at a disadvantage ever since Great Britain had gone off the gold standard and the value of sterling had fallen much below its previous parity with the dollar. End quote. Also advocating and endorsing the decision to inflate and leave the gold standard were such conservative bankers as James P. Warburg of Kuhn Leb and Company, one of Roosevelt's leading monetary advisors, Chicago banker and former Vice President Charles G. Dawes, Melvin A. Trailer, President of the First National Bank of Chicago, Frank Altschul of the International Banking House of Lazard Frere, and Russell C. Leffingwell, partner of J.P. Morgan and Company. Leffingwell told Roosevelt that his action, quote, was vitally necessary and the most important of all helpful things you have done, end quote. Morgan himself hailed Roosevelt's decision to leave the gold standard. Quote, I welcome the reported action of the President and the Secretary of the Treasury in placing an embargo on gold exports. It has become evident that the effort to maintain the exchange value of the dollar at a premium as against depreciated foreign currencies was having a deflationary effect upon already severely deflated prices and wages and employment. It seems to me clear that the way out of the depression is to combat and overcome the deflationary forces. Therefore, I regard the action now taken as being the best possible course under the circumstances. End quote. Other prominent advocates of going off gold were publishers J. David Stern and William Randolph Hearst, financier James H. R. Cromwell, and Dean Wallace Donham of the Harvard Business School. Conservative Republican senators such as David A. Reed of Pennsylvania and Minority Leader Charles L. McNary of Oregon also approved the decision, and Senator Arthur Vandenberg, Republican of Michigan, happily declared that Americans could now compete in the export trade, quote, for the first time in many, many months, end quote. Vandenberg concluded that, quote, abandonment of the dollar externally may prove to be a complete answer to our problem so far as the currency factor is concerned, end quote. Amidst this chorus of approval from leading financiers and industrialists, there was still determined opposition to going off gold. Aside from the bulk of the nation's economists, the lead in opposition was taken again by two economists with close ties to the banking community who had been major opponents of the strong Morgan policies during the 1920s. Dr. Benjamin M. Anderson of the Rockefeller-oriented Chase National Bank 
and Dr. H. Parker Willis, editor of the Journal of Commerce and chief advisor to Senator Carter Glass, Democrat of Virginia, who had been Secretary of the Treasury under Wilson. The Chamber of Commerce of the United States also vigorously attacked the abandonment of gold as well as price level stabilization, and the Chamber of Commerce of New York State called for prompt return to gold. From the financial community, leading opponents of Roosevelt's decision were Winthrop W. Aldrich, a Rockefeller kinsman and head of Chase National Bank, and Roosevelt's budget director, Louis W. Douglas, of the Arizona mining family, who was related to the J. Henry Schroeder International Bankers and was eventually to become head of Mutual Life Insurance Company and ambassador to England. Douglas fought valiantly, but in vain, within the administration against going off gold and against the remainder of the New Deal program. By the end of April 1933, the United States was clearly off the gold standard, and the dollar quickly began to depreciate relative to gold and the gold standard currencies. Britain, which a few weeks earlier had loftily rejected the idea of international stabilization, now became frightened. Currency blocks and a depreciating pound to aid British exports were one thing. Depreciation of the dollar to spur American exports and injure British exports was quite another. The British had the presumption to scold the United States for going off gold. They now rested their final hope for a restored international monetary system on the World Economic Conference scheduled for London in June 1933. Preparations for the conference had been underway for a year, under the guidance of the League of Nations, in a desperate attempt to aid the world economic and financial crisis by attempting the, quote, restoring of the currencies on a healthy basis, end quote. The Hoover administration was planning to urge the restoration of the international gold standard, but the abandonment of gold by the Roosevelt administration in March and April 1933 changed the American position radically. As the conference loomed ahead, it was clear that there were three fundamental positions. The gold bloc, the countries still on the gold standard, headed by France, which desired immediate return to a full, international gold standard with fixed exchange rates between the major currencies and gold. The United States, which now placed greatest stress on domestic inflation of the price level, and the British supported by their dominions, who wished some form of combination of the two. What was still unclear was whether a satisfactory compromise between these divergent views could be worked out. At the invitation of President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald of Great Britain and leading statesmen of the other major countries journeyed to Washington for individual talks with the president. All that emerged from these conversations were vague agreements of intent. But the most interesting aspect of the talks was an American proposal, originated by William C. Bullitt and rejected by the French, to establish a coordinated worldwide inflation and devaluation of currencies. Quote, there was serious discussions of a proposal, sponsored by the United States and vigorously opposed by the gold countries, that the whole world should embark upon a, quote, cheaper money policy not only through a vigorous and concerted program of credit expansion and the stimulation of business enterprise by means of public works, but also through a simultaneous devaluation by a fixed percentage 
of all currencies which were still at their pre-Depression parodies, end quote. The American delegation to London was a mixed bag, but the conservative gold standard forces could take heart from the fact that staff economic advisor was James P. Warburg, who had been working eagerly on a plan for international currency stabilization based on gold at new and realistic parities. Furthermore, conservative professor Oliver M. W. Sprague and George L. Harrison, governor of the New York Fed, were sent to discuss proposals for temporary stabilization of the major currencies. In contrast, the president paid no attention to the petition of 85 congressmen, including 10 senators, that he appoint as his economic advisor to the conference the radical inflationist and anti-gold priest, Father Charles E. Coughlin. The World Economic Conference, attended by delegates from 64 major nations, opened in London on June 12th. The first crisis occurred over the French suggestion for a temporary, quote, currency truce, a de facto stabilization of exchange rates between the franc, dollar, and pound for the duration of the conference. Surely eminently reasonable, the plan was also a clever device for an entering wedge toward a hopefully permanent stabilization of exchange rates on a full gold basis. The British were amenable, provided that the pound remained fairly cheap in relation to the dollar, so that their export advantage gained since 1931 would not be lost. On June 16th, Sprague and Harrison concluded an agreement with the British and French for temporary stabilization of the three currencies, setting the dollar sterling rate at about $4 per pound, and pledging the United States not to engage in massive inflation of the currency for the duration of the agreement. The American representatives urged Roosevelt to accept the agreement, with Sprague warning that, quote, a failure now would be most disastrous, end quote, and Warburg declaring that without stabilization, quote, it would be practically impossible to assume a leading role in attempting to bring about a lasting economic peace, end quote. But Roosevelt quickly rejected the agreement on June 17th, giving two reasons that the pound must be stabilized at no cheaper than $4.25, and that he could not accept any restraint on his freedom of action to inflate in order to raise domestic prices. Roosevelt ominously concluded that, quote, It is my personal view that far too much importance is being placed on existing and temporary fluctuations, end quote unless the American delegation take his reasoning as a stimulus to renegotiate the agreement, Roosevelt reminded Hull on June 20th, quote, Remember that far too much influence is attached to exchange stability by banker-influenced cabinets, end quote. Upon receiving the presidential veto, the British and French were indignant, and George Harrison quit and returned home in disgust but the American delegation went ahead and issued its official statement on temporary currency stabilization on June 22nd. It declared temporary stabilization impermissible, quote, because the American government feels that its efforts to raise prices are the most important contribution it can make, end quote. With temporary stabilization scuttled, the conference settled down to long-range discussions, the most important being centered in the Sub-Commission on, quote, immediate measures of financial reconstruction 
of the Monetary and Financial Commission of the Conference. The British delegation began by introducing a draft resolution, one, emphasizing the importance of, quote, cheap and plentiful credits in order to raise the world level of commodity prices, and two, stating that, quote, the central banks of the principal countries should undertake to cooperate with a view to securing these conditions and should announce their intention of pursuing vigorously a policy of cheap and plentiful money by open market operations, end quote. The British thus laid stress on coordinated inflation, but said nothing about the sticking point, exchange rate stabilization. The Dutch, the Czechoslovaks, the Japanese, and the Swiss criticized the British advocacy of inflation, and the Italian delegate warned that, quote, to put one's faith in immediate measures for augmenting the volume of money and credits might lead to a speculative boom followed by an even worse slump. A hasty and unregulated flood of credit would lead to destructive results, end quote. And the French delegate stressed that no genuine recovery could occur without a sense of economic and financial security. Quote, Who would be prepared to lend with the fear of being repaid in depreciated currency always before his eyes? Who would find the capital for financing vast programs of economic recovery and abolition of unemployment as long as there is a possibility that economic struggles would be transported to the monetary field? In a word, without stable currency, there can be no lasting confidence. While the hoarding of capital continues, there can be no solution. End quote. The American delegation then submitted its own draft proposal, which was similar to the British, ignored currency stability, and advocated close cooperation between all governments and central banks for, quote, the carrying out of a policy of making credit abundantly and readily available to sound enterprise, end quote, especially by open market operations that expanded the money supply. Also, government expenditures and deficits should be synchronized between the different nations. The difference of views between the nations on inflation and prices, however, precluded any agreement in this area at the conference. On the gold question, Great Britain submitted a policy declaration and the U.S. a draft resolution which looked forward to eventual restoration of the gold standard. But again, nothing was spelled out on exchange rates or on the crucial question of whether restoration of price inflation should come first. In both the American and British proposals, however, even the eventual gold standard would be considerably more inflationary than it had been in the 1920s. For all domestic gold circulation, whether coin or bullion, would be abolished, and gold used only as a medium for settling international balances of payments. And all gold reserves ratios to currency would be lowered. As could have been predicted before the conference, there were three sets of views on gold and currency stabilization. The United States, backed only by Sweden, favored cheap money in order to raise domestic prices, with currency stabilization to be deferred until a sufficient price rise had occurred. Whatever international cooperation was envisaged would stress joint inflationary action to raise price levels in some coordinated manner. The United States, moreover, 
went further even than Sweden in calling for reflating wholesale prices back to 1926 levels. The gold bloc attacked currency and price inflation, pointed to the early post-war experience of severe inflation and currency depreciation, and hence insisted on stabilization of exchanges and the avoidance of depreciation. In the confused middle were the British and the sterling bloc, who wanted price reflation and cheap credit, but also wanted eventual return to the gold standard and temporary stabilization of the key currencies. As the London Conference foundered on its severe disagreements, the gold bloc countries began to panic. For on the one hand, the dollar was failing in the exchange markets, thus making American goods and currency more competitive. And what is more, the general gloom at the conference gave international speculators the idea that in the near future, many of these countries would themselves be forced to go off gold. In consequence, money began to flow out of these countries during June, and Holland and Switzerland lost more than 10% of their gold reserves during that month alone. In consequence, the gold countries launched a final attempt to draft a compromise resolution. The proposed resolution was a surprisingly mild one. It committed the signatory countries to reestablishing the gold standard and stable exchange rates, but it deliberately emphasized that the parity and date for each country to return to gold was strictly up to each individual country. The existing gold standard countries were pledged to remain on gold, which was not difficult since that was their fervent hope. The non-gold countries were to reaffirm their ultimate objective to return to gold, to try their best to limit exchange speculation in the meanwhile, and to cooperate with other central banks in these two endeavors. The innocuousness of the proposed declaration comes from the fact that it committed the United States to vary little more than its own resolution of over a week earlier to return eventually to the gold standard, coupled with a vague agreement to cooperate in limiting exchange speculation in the major currencies. The joint declaration was agreed upon by Sprague and Warburg, by James M. Cox, head of the Monetary Commission of the conference, and by Raymond Moley, who had taken charge of the delegation as a freewheeling White House advisor. Moley was Assistant Secretary of State and had been a monetary nationalist. Moley, however, sent the declaration to Roosevelt on June 30th, urging the president to accept it, especially since Roosevelt had been willing, a few weeks earlier, to stabilize at a $4.25 pound, while the depreciation of the dollar during June had now brought the market rate up to $4.40. Across the Atlantic, Undersecretary of the Treasury Dean G. Acheson, influential Wall Street financier Bernard M. Baruch, and Louis W. Douglas also strongly endorsed the London Declaration. Not hearing immediately from the president, Moley frantically wired Roosevelt the next morning that, quote, success, even continuance, of the conference depends upon United States agreement, end quote. Roosevelt cabled his rejection on July 1st, declaring that, quote, a sufficient interval should be allowed the United States to permit a demonstration of the value of price-lifting efforts which we have well in hand, end quote. Roosevelt's rejection of the innocuous agreement was in itself startling enough, 
but he felt that he had to add insult to injury, to slash away at the London Conference so that no danger might exist of currency stabilization or of the reconstruction of an international monetary order. Hence, he sent on July 3rd an arrogant and contemptuous public message to the London Conference, the famous, quote, bombshell message, so named for its impact on the conference. Roosevelt began by lambasting the idea of temporary currency stabilization, which he termed a, quote, specious fallacy, a, quote, artificial and temporary diversion. Instead, Roosevelt declared that the emphasis must be placed on, quote, the sound internal economic system of a nation. In particular, quote, Old fetishes of so-called international bankers are being replaced by efforts to plan national currencies, with the objective of giving to those currencies a continuing purchasing power, which a generation hence will have the same purchasing and debt-paying power as the dollar value we hope to attain in the near future. That objective means more to the good of other nations than a fixed ratio for a month or two in terms of the pound or franc. End quote. In short, the president was now totally committed to the Nationalist Fisher Committee for the Nation program for paper currency, currency inflation, and a very steep reflation of prices, and then stabilization of the higher internal price level. The idea of stable exchange rates and an international monetary order could fade into limbo. The World Economic Conference limped along aimlessly for a few more weeks, but the Roosevelt bombshell message effectively killed the conference, and the hope for a restored international monetary order was dead for a fateful decade. From here on in the 1930s, monetary nationalism, currency blocks, and commercial and financial warfare would be the order of the day. The French were bitter and the English stricken at the Roosevelt message. The chagrined James P. Warburg promptly resigned as financial advisor to the delegation, and this was to be the beginning of the exit of this highly placed economic advisor from the Roosevelt administration. A similar fate was in store for Oliver Sprague and Dean Acheson. As for Raymond Moley, who had been repudiated by the president's action, he tried to restore himself in Roosevelt's graces by a fawning and obviously insincere telegram, only to be ousted from office shortly after his return to the States. Playing an ambivalent role in the entire affair, Bernard Baruch, who was privately in favor of the old gold standard, praised Roosevelt fulsomely for his message. Quote, until each nation puts its house in order by the same Herculean efforts that you are performing, Baruch wrote the president, quote, there can be no common denominators by which we can endeavor to solve the problems. There seems to be one common ground that all nations can take, and that is the one outlined by you, End quote. Expressions of enthusiastic support for the president's decision came, as might be expected, from Irving Fisher and George F. Warren, who urged Roosevelt to avoid any possible agreement that might limit, quote, our freedom to change the dollar any day, end quote. James A. Farley has recorded in his memoirs that Roosevelt was prompted to send his angry message by coming to suspect a plot to influence Moley in favor of stabilization by Thomas W. Lamont, 
partner of J.P. Morgan and Company, working through Moley's conference aide and White House advisor, Herbert Bayard Swope, who was close to the Morgans and also a longtime confidant of Baruch. This might well account for Roosevelt's bitter reference to the, quote, so-called international bankers. The situation is curious, however, since Swope was firmly on the anti-stabilizationist side, and Roosevelt's London message was greeted enthusiastically by Russell Leffingwell of Morgan's, who apparently took little notice of its attack on international bankers. Leffingwell wrote to the president, quote, You were very right not to enter into any temporary or permanent arrangements to peg the dollar in relation to sterling or any other currency. End quote. From the date of the torpedoing of the London Economic Conference, monetary nationalism prevailed for the remainder of the 1930s. The United States finally fixed the dollar at $35 an ounce in January 1934, amounting to a two-thirds increase in the gold price of the dollar from its original moorings less than a year before, and to a 40% devaluation of the dollar. The gold nations continued on gold for two more years, but the greatly devalued dollar now began to attract a flood of gold from the gold countries, and France was finally forced off gold in the fall of 1936, with the other major gold countries, Switzerland, Belgium, and Holland, following shortly thereafter. While the dollar was technically fixed in terms of gold, there was no further gold coin or bullion redemption within the U.S. Gold was used only as a method of clearing balances of payments, with only fitful redemption to foreign countries. The only significant act of international collaboration after 1934 came in the fall of 1936, at about the time France was forced to leave the gold standard. Partly to assist the French, the United States, Great Britain, and France entered into a tripartite agreement with France, beginning on September 25, 1936. The French agreed to throw in the exchange rate sponge and devalued the franc by between one-fourth and one-third. At this new par, the three governments agreed not to stabilize their currencies, but to iron out day-to-day -day fluctuations in them to engage in mutual stabilization of each other's currencies only within each 24-hour period. This was scarcely stabilization, but it did constitute a moderating of fluctuations, as well as politico-monetary collaboration, which began with the three Western countries and soon expanded to include other former gold nations, Belgium, Holland, and Switzerland. This collaboration continued until the outbreak of World War II. At least one incident marred the harmony of the tripartite agreement. In the fall of 1938, while the United States and Britain were hammering out a trade agreement, the British began pushing the pound below $4.80. At the threat of this cheapening of the pound, U.S. Treasury officials warned Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr. that if, quote, sterling drops substantially below $4.80, our foreign and domestic business will be adversely affected, end quote. In consequence, Morgenthau successfully insisted that the trade agreement with Britain must include a clause that the agreement would terminate if Britain should allow the pound to fall below $4.80. 
Here, we may only touch on a fascinating historical problem, which has been discussed by revisionist historians of the 1930s. To what extent was the American drive for war against Germany the result of anger and conflict over the fact that, in the 1930s as a world of economic and monetary nationalism, the Germans, under the guidance of Dr. Holmar Schacht, went their way successfully on their own, totally outside of Anglo-American control or of the confinements of what remained of the cherished American open door? A brief treatment of this question will serve as a prelude to examining the aim of the war-born, quote, Second New Deal, of reconstructing a new international monetary order, an order that in many ways resembled the lost world of the 1920s. German economic nationalism in the 1930s was, first of all, conditioned by the horrifying experience that Germany had with runaway inflation and currency depreciation during the early 1920s, culminating in the monetary collapse of 1923. Though caught with an overvalued par as each European country went off the gold standard, no German government could have politically succeeded in engaging once again in the dreaded act of devaluation. No longer on gold, and unable to devalue the mark, Germany was obliged to engage in strict exchange control. In this economic climate, Dr. Schacht was particularly successful in making bilateral trade agreements with individual countries, agreements which amounted to direct, quote, barter arrangements that angered the United States and other Western countries in totally bypassing gold and other international banking or financial arrangements. In the anti-German propaganda of the 1930s, the German barter deals were agreements in which Germany somehow invariably emerged as coercive victor and exploiter of the other country involved, even though they were mutually agreed upon and therefore presumably mutually beneficial exchanges. Actually, there was nothing either diabolic or unilaterally exploitive about the barter deals. Part of the essence of the barter arrangements has been neglected by historians. The deliberate overvaluation of the exchange rates of both currencies involved in the deals. The German mark, as we have seen, was deliberately overvalued as the alternative to the specter of currency depreciation. The situation of the other currencies was a bit more complex. Thus, in the barter agreements between Germany and the various Balkan countries, especially Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia, in which the Balkans exchanged agricultural products for German-manufactured goods, the Balkan currencies were also fixed at an artificially overvalued rate vis-à-vis -vis gold and the currencies of Britain and the other Western countries. This meant that Germany agreed to pay higher than world market rates for Balkan agricultural products, while the latter paid higher rates for German manufactured products. For the Balkan countries, the point of all this was to force Balkan consumers of manufactured goods to subsidize their own peasants and agriculturalists. The external consequence was that Germany was able to freeze out Britain and other Western countries from buying Balkan food and raw materials. And since the British could not compete in paying for Balkan produce, the Balkan countries, in the bilateral world of the 1930s, did not have sufficient pounds or dollars to buy manufactured goods from the West. 
Thus, Britain and the West were deprived of raw materials and markets for their manufactures by the astute policies of Holmar Schacht and the mutually agreeable barter agreements between Germany and the Balkan and other, including Latin American, countries. May not Western anger at successful German competition through bilateral agreements and Western desire to liquidate such competition have been important factors in the Western drive for war against Germany? Lloyd Gardner has demonstrated the early hostility of the United States toward German economic controls and barter arrangements, its attempts to pressure Germany to shift to a multilateral, quote, open-door system for American products, and the repeated American rebuffs to German proposals for bilateral exchanges between the two countries. As early as June 26, 1933, the influential American Consul General at Berlin, George Messersmith, was warning that such continued policies would make, quote, Germany a danger to world peace for years to come, end quote. In pursuing this aggressive policy, President Roosevelt overrode Agricultural Adjustment Administration Chief George Peake, who favored accepting bilateral deals with Germany and, perhaps not coincidentally, was to be an ardent, quote, isolationist in the late 1930s. Instead, Roosevelt followed the policy of the leading interventionist and spokesman for a, quote, open door to American products, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, as well as his assistant secretary, Francis B. Sayre, son-in-law of Woodrow Wilson. By 1935, American officials were calling Germany a, quote, aggressor because of its successful bilateral trade competition, and Japan was similarly castigated for much the same reasons. By late 1938, J. Pierpont Moffat, head of the Western European Division of the State Department, was complaining that German control of Central and Eastern Europe would mean, quote, a still further extension of the area under a closed economy, end quote. And, more specifically, in May 1940, Assistant Secretary of State Breckinridge Long warned that a German-dominated Europe would mean that, quote, every commercial order will be routed to Berlin and filled under its orders somewhere in Europe rather than in the United States, end quote. And shortly before American entry into the war, John J. McCloy, later to be U.S. High Commissioner of Occupied Germany, was to write in a draft for a speech by Secretary of War Henry Stimson, quote, With German control of the buyers of Europe and her practice of governmental control of all trade, it would be well within her power, as well as the pattern she has thus far displayed, to shut off our trade with Europe, with South America, and with the Far East. End quote. Not only were Hull and the United States ardent in pressing an anti-German policy against its bilateral trade system, but sometimes Secretary Hull had to whip even Britain into line. Thus, in early 1936, Cordell Hall warned the British ambassador that the, quote, clearing arrangements reached by Britain with Argentina, Germany, Italy, and other countries were handicapping the efforts of this government to carry forward its broad program with the favored nation policy underlying it, end quote. The tendency of these British arrangements was to, quote, drive straight toward bilateral trading, end quote, 
and they were therefore milestones on the road to war. One of the United States government's biggest economic worries was the growing competition of Germany and its bilateral trade in Latin America. As early as 1935, Cordell Hull had concluded that Germany was, quote, straining every tendon to undermine United States trading relations with Latin America, end quote. A great deal of political pressure was used to combat German competition. Thus, in the mid-1930s, the American Chamber of Commerce in Brazil repeatedly pressed the State Department to scuttle the Germany-Brazil barter deal, which the Chamber termed the, quote, greatest single obstacle to free trade in South America. Brazil was finally induced to cancel its agreement with Germany in exchange for a $60 million loan from the U.S. America's exporters, grouped in the National Foreign Trade Council, issued resolutions against German trade methods and pressured the government for stronger action. And in late 1938, President Roosevelt asked Professor James Harvey Rogers, an economist and disciple of Irving Fisher, to make a currency study of all of South America in order to minimize, quote, German and Italian influence on this side of the Atlantic, end quote. It is no wonder that German diplomats in Brazil, Chile, and Uruguay reported home that the United States was, quote, exerting very strong pressure against Germany commercially, end quote, which included economic, commercial, and political opposition designed to drive Germany out of the Brazilian and other South American markets. In the spring of 1935, the German ambassador to Washington, desperately anxious to bring an end to American political and economic warfare, asked the United States what Germany could do to end American hostilities. The American answer, which amounted to a demand for unconditional economic surrender, was that Germany abandon its economic policy in favor of America. The American reply, quote, really meant, noted Pierpont Moffat, quote, a fundamental acceptance by Germany of our trade philosophy and a thoroughgoing partnership with us along the road of equality of treatments and the reduction of trade barriers, end quote. The United States further indicated that it was interested that Germany accept not so much the principle of the most favored national clause in all international trade, but specifically for American exports. When war broke out in September 1939, Bernard Baruch's reaction was to tell President Roosevelt that, quote, If we keep our prices down, there is no reason why we shouldn't get the customers of the belligerent nations that they have had to drop because of the war. And in that event, Baruch exalted, quote, Germany's barter system will be destroyed, end quote. But particularly significant is the retrospective comment made by Secretary Hull. Quote, War did not break out between the United States and any country with which we had been able to negotiate a trade agreement. It is also a fact that, with very few exceptions, the countries with which we signed trade agreements joined together in resisting the Axis. The political lineup follows the economic lineup. End quote. Considering that Secretary Hull was a leading maker of American foreign policy throughout the 1930s and through World War II, it is certainly a possibility that his remarks should be taken, 
not as a quaint testimony to Hull's idée fixe on reciprocal trade, but as a positive, causal statement of the thrust of American foreign policy. Read in that light, Hull's remark becomes a significant admission rather than a flight of speculative fancy. Reinforcing this interpretation would be a similar reading of the testimony before the House of Representatives in 1945 of top Treasury aide Harry Dexter White defending the Bretton Woods Agreement. White declared, quote, I think it, a Bretton Woods system, would very definitely have made a considerable contribution to checking the war and possibly might have prevented it. A great many of the devices which Germany and Japan utilized would have been illegal in the international sphere had these countries been participating members. End quote. Is White saying that the Allies deliberately made war upon the Axis because of these bilateral, exchange control, and other competitive devices, which a Bretton Woods, or for that matter a 1920s, system would have precluded? We may take as our final testimony to the possible economic causes of World War II the assertion by the influential Times of London well after the start of the war. Quote, One of the fundamental causes of this war has been the unrelaxing efforts of Germany since 1918 to secure wide enough foreign markets to straighten her finances at the very time when all her competitors were forced by their own debts to adopt exactly the same course. Continuous friction was inevitable. End quote. The Second New Deal The Dollar Triumphant Whether and to what extent German economic nationalism was a cause for the American drive toward war, one point is certain, that... Even before official American entry into the war, one of America's principal war aims was to reconstruct an international monetary order. A corollary aim was to replace economic nationalism and bilateralism by the Hullian kind of multilateral trading and, quote, open door for American goods. But the most insistent drive, and the particularly successful one, was to reconstruct an international monetary system. The system in view was to resemble the gold exchange system of the 1920s quite closely. Once again, all the major world's currencies were to abandon fluctuating and nationally determined exchange rates on behalf of fixed parities with other currencies, and of all of them with gold. Once again, there was to be no full-fledged or internal gold standard for any of these nations, while in theory all currencies were to be fixed in terms of one key currency, which would form a gold exchange standard on which other nations could pyramid their own supply of domestic money. But there were two crucial differences from the 1920s. One was that, while the key currency was to be the only currency redeemable in gold, there was to be no further embarrassing possibility of internal redemption in gold. Gold was only to be a method of international payments between central banks, and never again an actual money held by the public. In this way, the key currency, and the rest of the world in response, could expand and inflate much further than in the 1920s, freed as they were from the check of domestic redemption. But the second difference was more politically far-reaching, for, instead of two joint partner key currencies, 
the pound and the dollar, with the dollar as workhorse junior subaltern. The only key currency now was to be the dollar, which was to be fixed at $35 to the gold ounce. The pound had had it, and just as the United States was to use World War II to replace British imperialism with its own far-flung empire, so in the monetary sphere, the United States was now to move in and take over, with the pound no less subordinate than all the other major currencies. It was truly a triumphant, quote, dollar imperialism, to parallel the imperial American thrust in the political sphere. As Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr. was later to express it, the critical and eminently successful objective was, quote, to move the financial center of the world, end quote, from London to the United States Treasury. And all this eminently was in keeping with the prophetic vision of Cordell Hull, the man who, in the words of Gabriel Colco, had, quote, the basic responsibility for American political and economic planning for the peace, end quote. For Hull had urged upon Congress as far back as 1932 that America, quote, gird itself, yield to the law of manifest destiny, and go forward as the supreme world factor economically and morally. End quote. World War II was the occasion for a new coalition to form behind the New Deal, a coalition which reintegrated many conservative, quotes, internationalists, financial interests, who had been thrown into opposition by the domestic statism or economic nationalism of the earlier New Deal. This reintegration of the entire conservative financial community was particularly true in the field of international economic and monetary policy. Here, Dr. Leo Pasvalsky, a conservative economist who had broken with the New Deal upon the scuttling of the London Economic Conference, returned to a crucial role as Secretary Hull's special advisor on post-war planning. Dean Acheson, also disaffected by the radical monetary measures of 1933 to 1934, was now back as Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs. And when the ailing Cordell Hall retired in late 1944, he was replaced by Edward Statinius, the son of a Morgan partner and himself former president of Morgan-oriented U.S. Steel. Statinius chose as his Assistant Secretary for Economic Affairs the man who quickly became the key official for post-war international economic planning, William L. Clayton, a former leader of the Anti-New Deal Liberty League and chairman and major partner of Anderson, Clayton & Company, the world's largest cotton export firm. Clayton's major focus in post-war planning was to promote and encourage American exports, with cotton, not unnaturally, never out of the forefront of his concerns. Even before American entry into the war, U.S. economic war aims were well-defined and rather brutally simple. They hinged on a determined assault upon the 1930 system of economic and monetary nationalism, so as to promote American exports, investments, and financial dealings overseas. In short, the quote, open door for American commerce. In the sphere of commercial policy, this took the form of pressure for reduction of tariffs on American products and the elimination of quantitative import restrictions on those products. 
in the Allied sphere of monetary policy, it meant the breakup of powerful nationalistic currency blocks and the restoration of an international monetary order based on the dollar in which currencies would be convertible into each other at predictable and fixed parities, and there would be a minimum of national exchange controls over the purchase and use of foreign currencies. And even as the United States prepared to enter the war to save its ally, Great Britain, it was preparing to bludgeon the British at a time of great peril to abandon their sterling bloc, which they had organized effectively after the Ottawa Agreements of 1932. World War II would presumably deal effectively with the German bilateral trade and currency menace. But what about the problem of Great Britain? John Maynard Lord Keynes long had led those British economists who had urged a policy of all-out economic and monetary nationalism on behalf of inflation and full employment. He had gone so far as to hail Roosevelt's torpedoing of the London Economic Conference because the path was then cleared for economic nationalism. Keynes's visit to Washington on behalf of the British government in the summer of 1941 now spread gloom about the British determination to continue their bilateral economic policies after the war. High State Department official J. Pierpont Moffat despaired that, quote, the future is clouding up rapidly, and that despite the war, the Hitlerian commercial policy will probably be adopted by Great Britain. End quote. The United States responded by putting the pressure on Great Britain at the Atlantic Conference in August 1941. Under Secretary of State Sumner Wells insisted that the British agree to remove discrimination against American exports and abolish their policies of autarky, exchange controls, and imperial preference blocks. Prime Minister Churchill tartly refused, but the United States was scarcely prepared to abandon its crucial aim of breaking down the sterling bloc. As President Roosevelt privately told his son Elliot at the Atlantic Conference, quote, It's something that's not generally known, but the British bankers and German bankers have had world trade pretty well sewn up in their pockets for a long time. Well now, that's not so good for American trade, is it? If in the past German and British economic interests have operated to exclude us from world trade, kept our merchant shipping closed down, closed us out of this or that market, and now Germany and Britain are at war, what should we do? End quote. The signing of Lend-Lease Agreements was the ideal time for wringing concessions from the British, but Britain consented to sign the agreement's Article 7, which merely involved a vague commitment to the elimination of discriminatory treatments in international trade, only after intense pressure by the United States. The agreement was signed at the end of February 1942, and in return, the State Department pledged to the British that the U.S. would pursue a policy of economic expansion and full employments after the war. Even after these conditions, however, Britain soon maintained that the Lend-Lease Agreement committed it to virtually nothing. To Cordell Hull, however, the agreement on Article 7 was decisive and constituted, quote, a long step toward the fulfillment, after the war, of the economic principles for which I had been fighting for half a century, end quote. 
The United States also insisted that other nations receiving Lend-Lease sign a virtually identical commitment to multilateralism after the war. In his first major public address in nearly a year, Hull, in July 1942, could now look forward confidently that, quote, leadership toward a new system of international relationships in trade and other economic affairs will devolve very largely upon the United States because of our great economic strength. We should assume this leadership and the responsibility that goes with it primarily for reasons of pure national self-interest, end quote. In the post-war planning for economic affairs, the State Department was in charge of commercial and trade policies, while the Treasury conducted the planning in the areas of money and finance. In charge of post-war international financial planning for the Treasury was the economist Harry Dexter White. In early 1942, White presented his first plan, which was to be one of the two major foundations of the post-war monetary system. White's proposal was, of course, within the framework of American post-war economic objectives. The countries of the world were to join a stabilization fund, totaling $5 billion, which would lend funds at short term to deficit countries to iron out temporary balance of payments difficulties. But in return for this provision of greater liquidity and short-term aid to deficit countries, exchange rates of currencies were to be fixed, in relation to the dollar and hence to gold, with the gold price to be set at $35 an ounce, and exchange controls were to be abandoned by the various nations. While the White Plan envisioned a substantial amount of inflation to provide greater currency liquidity, the British responded with a Keynes plan that was far more inflationary. By this time, Lord Keynes had abandoned economic and monetary nationalism for Britain under severe American pressure, and his aim was to salvage as much domestic inflation and cheap money for Britain as he could possibly induce America to accept. The Keynes plan envisioned an international clearing union, or ICU, which, in return for agreeing to stable exchange rates between currencies and the abandonment of exchange control, provided a huge loan fund to its members of $26 billion. The Keynes plan, moreover, provided for a new international monetary unit, the quote, Bancor, which could be issued by the ICU in such large amounts as to provide almost unchecked room for inflation even in a country with a large deficit in its balance of payments. The nations would consult with each other about correcting balance of payments disequilibria through altering their exchange rates. The Keynes plan, furthermore, provided automatic access to the fund of liquidity with none of the embarrassing requirements, as included in the White Plan, for deficit countries to cease creating deficits by inflating their currency. Whereas the White Plan authorized the Stabilization Fund to require deficit countries to cease inflating in return for fund loans, the Keynes Plan envisioned that inflation would proceed unchecked, with all the burden of necessary adjustments to be placed on the hard-money, creditor countries, who would be expected to inflate faster themselves in order not to gain currency from the deficit nations. The White Plan was stringently attacked by the conservative nationalists and inflationists in Britain, particularly G. R. Boothby, Lord Beaverbrook, 
The Times of London, and The Economist. The Keynes plan was attacked by conservatives in the United States, as was even the White plan for interfering with market forces and for automatic extension of credit to deficit countries. Critical of the White Plan were the Guarantee Survey of the Guarantee Trust Company and the American Bankers Association. Furthermore, the New York Times and New York Herald Tribune called for return to the classical gold standard and attacked the large measure of governmental financial planning envisioned by both the Keynes and White proposals. After negotiating during 1943 and into the spring of 1944, the United States and Britain hammered out a compromise of the White and Keynes plans in April 1944. The compromise was adopted by a World Economic Conference in July at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. It was Bretton Woods that was to provide the monetary framework for the post-war world. The compromise established an international monetary fund. Or IMF as the stabilization mechanism. Its total funds were fixed at eight point eight billion dollars, far closer to the Whites than to the Keynes prescriptions. Its balance of IMF international control as against domestic autonomy lay between the Whites and Keynes plans, leaving the whole problem highly fuzzy. On the one hand, national access to the fund was not to be automatic. But on the other, the fund could no longer require corrective domestic economic policies of its members. On the question of exchange rates, the Americans yielded to the British insistence on allowing room for domestic inflation, even at the expense of stable exchange rates. The compromise provided that each country could be free to make a 10% change in its exchange rates, and that larger changes could be made to correct quotes. Fundamental disequilibria. In short, that a chronically deficit country could devalue its currency rather than check its own inflation. Furthermore, the U.S. yielded again in allowing creditor countries to suffer by permitting deficit countries to impose exchange controls on quote scarce currencies. This meant, in effect, that the major European countries. Whose currencies would be fixed at existing highly overvalued rates in relation to the dollar would thus be permitted to enter the IMF with chronically overvalued currencies and then impose exchange controls on quote scarce undervalued dollars. But despite these extensive concessions, there was no quote bankor. The dollar, fixed at thirty-five dollars per gold ounce, was now to be firmly established as the key currency base of a new world monetary order. Besides, for the dollar to be undervalued and other major currencies to be overvalued greatly spurs American exports, which was one of the basic aims of the entire operation. U.S. Ambassador to Britain John G. Winant recorded the perceptive hostility to the Bretton Woods agreements by the majority of the directors of the Bank of England. For these men saw quote, that if the plan is adopted, financial control will leave London and sterling exchange will be replaced by dollar exchange. End quote. The proposed International Monetary Fund ran into a storm of conservative opposition in the United States. From the opposite pole of the hostility of the British nationalists, the American attack on the IMF was essentially launched by two major groups: conservative Eastern bankers 
and Midwestern isolationists. Among the bankers, the American Bankers Association, or ABA, attacked the unsound and inflationary policy of allowing debtor countries to control access to international funds. And W. Randolph Burgess, president of the ABA, denounced the provision for debtor rationing of, quote, scarce currencies as an abomination. The New York Times urged rejection of the IMF and proposed making loans to Britain in exchange for the abolition of exchange controls and quantitative restrictions on imports. Another banker's group came up with a, quote, key currency proposal as a substitute for Bretton Woods. This key currency plan was proposed by economist John H. Williams, vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and was endorsed by Leon Frazier, president of the First National Bank of New York, and by Winthrop W. Aldrich, head of the Chase National Bank. It envisioned a bilateral pound-dollar stabilization, fueled by a large transitional American loan, or even grant, to Great Britain. Thus, the key currency people were ready to abandon temporarily not only the classical gold standard, but even an international monetary order, and to stay temporarily in a modified version of the world of the 1930s. The Midwestern isolationist critics of the IMF were led by Senator Robert A. Taft, Republican from Ohio, who charged that while the bulk of the valuable hard money placed in the fund would be American dollars, the dollars would be subject to international control by the fund authorities, and therefore by the debtor countries. The debtor countries could then still continue exchange controls and sterling block practices. Here, Taft failed to realize that formal and informal structures in the Bretton Woods design would ensure effective United States control of both the IMF and the International Bank. The administration countered the critics of Bretton Woods with a massive propaganda campaign, which was able to drive the agreement through Congress by mid-July 1945. It emphasized that the U.S. government would have effective control, at least of its own representatives in the fund. It played up, in what proved to be gross exaggeration, the favorable aspects of the various ambiguous provisions, insisting that debtor access to the fund would not be automatic, that exchange controls would be removed, and that exchange rates would be stabilized. It pushed heavily the vague idea that the fund was crucial to post-war international cooperation to keep the peace. Particularly interesting was the argument of Will Clayton and others that Bretton Woods would facilitate the general commercial policy of eliminating trade discrimination and barriers against American exports. This argument was put particularly boldly by Treasury Secretary Morgenthau in a speech to Detroit industrialists. Morgenthau promised that the Bretton Woods agreements would lead to a world trade freed from exchange controls and appreciated currencies, and that this would greatly increase the exports of American automobiles. Since the fund would begin operations the following year by accepting the existing, grossly overvalued currency parities that most of the nations insisted upon, this meant that Morgenthau might have known whereof he spoke. For if other currencies are overvalued and the dollar undervalued, American exports are indeed encouraged and subsidized. It is perhaps understandable, then, that not only the major farm, labor, and New Deal liberal organizations pushed for Bretton Woods, 
but that the large majority of industrial and financial interests also approved the agreements and urged its passage in Congress. American approval in mid-1945 was followed, after lengthy soul-searching, by the approval of Great Britain at the end of the year. By the end of its existence, therefore, the Second New Deal had established the triumphant dollar as the base of a new international monetary order. The dollar had displaced the pound, and within a general political framework in which the American empire had replaced the British. Looking forward perceptively to the post-war world in January 1945, Lamar Fleming Jr., president of Anderson Clayton & Company, wrote to his longtime colleague Will Clayton that the quote, British Empire and British international influence is a myth already, end quote. The United States would soon become the British protector against the emerging Russian landmass, prophesized Fleming, and this would mean, quote, the absorption into the American empire of the parts of the British empire which we will be willing to accept, end quote. As the New Deal came to a close, the triumphant United States stood ready to reap its fruits on a worldwide scale. Epilogue The Bretton Woods Agreements established the framework for the international monetary system down to the early 1970s. A new and more restricted international dollar-gold exchange standard had replaced the collapsed dollar-pound-gold exchange standard of the 1920s. During the early post-war years, the system worked quite successfully within its own terms, and the American banking community completely abandoned its opposition. With European currencies inflated and overvalued, and European economies exhausted, the undervalued dollar was the strongest and, quote, hardest of world currencies. A world, quote, dollar shortage prevailed and the dollar could base itself upon the vast stock of gold in the United States, much of which had fled from war and devastation abroad. But in the early 1950s, the world economic balance began slowly but emphatically to change. For while the United States, influenced by Keynesian economics, proceeded blithely to inflate the dollar, seemingly relieved of the limits imposed by the classical gold standard, several European countries began to move in the opposite direction. Under the revived influence of conservative, free markets, and hard-money-oriented economists in such countries as West Germany, France, Italy, and Switzerland, these newly recovered countries began to achieve prosperity with far less inflated currencies. Hence, these currencies became ever stronger and, quote, harder, while the dollar became softer and increasingly inflated. The continuing inflation of the dollar began to have two important consequences. First, the dollar was increasingly overvalued in relation to gold. And second, the dollar was also increasingly overvalued in relation to the West German mark, the French and Swiss francs, the Japanese yen, and other hard money currencies. The result was a chronic and continuing deficit in the American balance of payments, beginning in the early 1950s and persisting ever since. The consequence of the chronic deficit was a continuing outflow of gold abroad and a heavy piling up of dollar claims in the central banks of the hard money countries. 
Since 1960, the foreign short-term claims to American gold have therefore become increasingly greater than the U.S. gold supply. In short, just as inflation in England and the United States during the 1920s led finally to the breakdown of the international monetary order, so has inflation in the post-war key country, the United States, led to increasing strains and fissures in the triumphant dollar order of the post-World War II world. It has become increasingly evident that an ever more inflated and overvalued dollar cannot continue as the permanently secure base of the world monetary system, and therefore that this ever more strained and insecure system cannot long continue in anything like its present form. In fact, the post-war system has already been changed considerably in an ultimately futile attempt to preserve its basic features. In the spring of 1968, a severe monetary run on the dollar by Europeans redeeming dollar claims led to two major changes. One was the partial abandonment of the fixed $35 per ounce gold price. Instead, a two-price or, quote, two-tier gold price system was established. The dollar and gold were allowed to find their own level in the free gold markets of the world with the United States no longer standing ready to support the dollar in the gold market at $35 an ounce. On the other hand, $35 still continued as the supposedly eternally fixed price for the world's central banks, who were pledged not to sell gold in the world market. Keynesian economists were convinced that with the dollar and gold severed on the world market, the price of gold would then fall in the freely fluctuating market. The reverse, however, has occurred, since the world market continued to have more faith in the soundness and relative hardness of gold than in the increasingly inflated dollar. The second change was the creation in 1969 of Special Drawing Rights, or SDRs, a new form of, quotes, paper gold, of newly created paper which can supplement gold as an international currency reserve behind each currency. While this indeed put more backing behind the dollar, the quantity of SDRs has been too limited to make an appreciable difference to a world economy that trusts the dollar less with each passing year. These two minor repairs, however, failed to change the fundamental overvaluation of the ever more inflated dollar. In the spring of 1971, a new monetary crisis finally led to a massive revaluation of the hard currencies. If the United States stubbornly refused to lose face by raising the price of gold or by otherwise devaluing the dollar down to its genuine value in the world market, then the harder currencies, such as West Germany, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, found themselves reluctantly forced to raise the value of their currencies. Their alternatives, a massive calling upon the United States to redeem in gold and thereby the smashing of the facade of dollar redemption in gold, was too much of a political break with the U.S. for these nations to contemplate. For the United States, to preserve the facade of gold redemption at $35 had been using intense political pressure on its creditors to retain their dollar balances and not to redeem them in gold. By the late 1960s, General Charles de Gaulle, under the influence of classical gold standard advocate Jacques Ruff, was apparently preparing to make just such a challenge.
To break the dollar standard as a move toward restoring the classical gold standard in France and much of the rest of Europe. But the French domestic troubles in the spring of 1968 ended that dream, at least temporarily, as France was forced to inflate the franc for a time in order to pay the overall wage increase it had agreed upon under the threats of the general strike. Despite these hasty repairs, It is becoming increasingly evident that they are makeshift stopgaps and that a series of more aggravated crises will shake the international monetary order until a fundamental change is made. A hard money policy in the United States that put an end to inflation and increased the soundness of the dollar might sustain the current system, but this is so politically remote as to hardly be a likely prognosis. There are several possible monetary systems that might replace the present deteriorating order. The new system desired by the Keynesian economists and the American government would be a massive extension of, quote, paper gold to demonetize gold completely and replace it with a new monetary unit, such as the Keynesian, quote, bankor, and a paper currency issued by a new World Reserve Bank. If this were achieved, then the new American-dominated World Reserve Bank would be able to inflate any currencies indefinitely and allow inflating currencies to pay for any and all deficits ad infinitum. While such a scheme, embodied in the Triffin Plan, the Bernstein Plan, and others, is now the American dream, it has met determined opposition by the hard-money countries and it remains doubtful that the United States will be able to force these countries to go along with the plan. The other logical alternative is the rough plan of returning to the classical gold standard after a massive increase in the world price of gold. But this too is unlikely, especially over powerful American opposition. Barring acceptance of a new world currency, the Americans would be content to keep inflating and simply force the hard-money countries to keep appreciating their exchange rates. But again, it is doubtful that German, French, Swiss, and other exporters will be content to keep crippling themselves in order to subsidize dollar inflation. Perhaps the most likely prognosis is the formation of a new hard-money European currency bloc, which might eventually be strong enough to challenge the dollar politically, as well as economically. In that case, the dollar standard will probably fall apart, and we may see a return to the currency blocks of the 1930s, with the European bloc this time on a harder and quasi-gold basis. It is at least possible that the future will see gold and the hard European currencies at last dethrone the triumphant but increasingly uneasy dollar.